Hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Investigative Mi Committee, the second, 82nd sessions quoted, there's no free lunch. And that's a quote from Milton. And the case is that all decisions that are currently being taken, whether one gets the vaccination or whether one gets into resistance or whatever you do, there is no easy ride. You can't uh, simply float along. You'll have to take a decision. And the point of decision taking is closing, coming close for every one of us. We are changing um, or redecorating our room here. Uh, we want to improve the sound quality. That's why the outfit is a bit different today. But apart from that, we are back in good shape and same engagement as ever. I am alone here today. Rainer joined us on the Zoom. He's traveling and he can't be with us today personally, but he'll be our big brother on the screen in a minute in supernatural size. And lots of things are going on. We have passed a, an exciting weekend. I'll just uh, give you a quick note of that. We had the big digital party meeting of Debatin, where of the bases where Rainer and I are members, amongst uh, about 30,000, 34,000 people. And after that digital meeting, I had the impression that my eyes drop out of my head. I felt like a frog, and I waited for my skin to turn green, but. That didn't happen. Instead, Rainer and I have been uh, elected the head or the chairs of the party. We are two of eight chair people. Wolfgang Vodak is has become the column of freedom and many other great people have been elected as well. And we have the impression that now we are picking up speed. We've had meetings in the directory, which were very well going. And we hope what we see inside in the party will reflect in short time in the outside world, because we do see some parallels in the glotting and uh, struggling in the party. And that's what we see outside in society as well, things that are not good so well, but that have been encrusted a bit, as we have seen here. Apart from that, well, business as usual, uh, more or less, at least a lot, a lot of things to do. Maybe Rainer, would you like to do say something? Yes. I'm uh, traveling on business. I have a, a job, of course, that sometimes you have to deal with. And uh, we have a number of videos today that we won't all show at the end. But um, as we go, for instance, when Hans Tolzin uh, speaks after uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, the others, I have to take a closer look. I'll announce them as we go so they're not uh, lost by the wayside and uh, and we'll have to make sure that uh, this is not the end of our session because they're interesting videos but we'll start with Catherine Austin Fitz now we had her before she is the president of Solari Inc and uh, publishes the Solari Solari report and she is also um, the member of uh, Assistant Secretary of Housing and uh, Federal Housing Commissioner at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, 
she was during the uh, Bush administration, that is a um, assistant secretary. And uh, now she is the managing director and member of the board of directors of the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dillon, Reed and Company. Um, we have heard a lot about um, uh, the um, untruths, um, for instance, that the PCR test can't determine an infection, um, that we have a mortality rate of 0.5%. But we know that the um, measures taken to combat um, <coughs> corona are uh, having a huge impact, both uh, social, medical, psychological. And the question is, how come have people become crazy? And Catherine Austin Fitz will tell us something about this. Catherine, you try to kind out, Jura. This was just a short introduction, but since we, uh, since you've been on our show already, uh, I, I didn't need to go into any details. So let's just right. go right ahead. Right, but before we go ahead, can I just thank you? This is my second time appearing, but I've watched many of your interviews. And I have to say, doing this open source investigation, you know, we all feel we've been on a journey with you and it's been incredibly, incredibly productive. And I can't, you know, transparency is step one. And I think you've done as much as anybody to bring transparency. And I wanna just say I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you, Catherine. We, we appreciate your support as well. It can't work without us connecting and connecting with other people right. as well. But right. I think this seems to be working really well right now. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Okay. Yeah, maybe because I think you're today you're going to um, take a closer look at this sort of the the plan or the it's maybe more like the mindset behind what we can maybe see right. here and you see right. i think you're you you're um what you see as a as a driving motor basically of this whole thing is the the transhumanist agenda so what's so, that um yeah so i've spent many decades trying to understand you know my nickname for the governance system of the planet is mr global and i've tried for many years to understand who is mr global and why is mr global doing what he's doing and I just did a two hour Solari report, basically covering all the theories, because the honest truth is I don't know. I, I can certainly share what I've experienced, but the, to me, one of the biggest issues in addition to who is Mr. Global is what is the risks that Mr. Global is facing. I believe because of what I've seen in the financial system for the last three decades, that one of the priority goals of Mr. Global is to engineer a multi-planetary civilization. And a lot of what we're watching in terms of central control is to help build the capital to manage that process and make that process go. And if that's correct, then the question is why? And I do believe that for the last 20 years, we've had a financial coup with extraordinary centralization of control of populations and resources. And it's gone far beyond what the general population has understood until the pandemic. One of the positive results of the pandemic is people are starting to dig and realize the extent to which the central control has been put in place. Um, as we talked about the last time I was here, we've had a um, we've had a baby boomer population going through the global demographics, and there is no doubt. Uh, I believe in, in 20, 
basically two decades, two decades ago, starting in 1998, that we began a process called the financial coup d'etat, where all the funding that had been accumulated to support the, the baby boomer generation in their retirement was essentially being moved out of the sovereign governments. The sovereign governments were being levered up with debt so that essentially this 100-year balance of power between the central bankers and the sovereign governments could be resolved by the central bankers taking over the treasury and fiscal function, which is where we are now. So we've had a financial coup. The boomers have been promised a great deal, in the, particularly in the G7 nations. That money has essentially been stolen. And the question is, you know, how is Mr. Global going to resolve and abrogate all the contracts and re-engineer the sovereign governments? And of course, that generates huge amounts of unanswered questions. We can all guess, but the reality is we don't know. And it comes back to, you know, what are Mr. Global's goals other than complete central control because the technology allows that to happen or, or you know, somebody clearly thinks that it will permit it to let it happen. Um, what is his goals and or what are their goals and and what are the risks they're managing and then how do we somehow provide alternatives um i would say that uh one thing i wasn't clear about when i last interviewed with you is uh is that what is happening now is a genocide um we have been watching in the united states for several decades what i call the great poisoning and the great poisoning is a series of different things that's generally poisoning the population, either suppressing their immune system or increasing toxicity. And, and then people die of what they're weak. It doesn't look like an epidemic, but it is. Um, if you look at what we do know so far about the COVID-19 injections, they seem to be radically accelerating the great poisoning. And it's clear to me that the is sort of the death and the disability resulting from them is is more much more significant than whatever is happening from what the phenomena called COVID-19, which seems to be a, a relatively complex phenomena. But, but the injections are far more dangerous. And so I wrote an article in the beginning of the pandemic called The Injection Fraud. And I continue to think, you know, before us, we need urgently to stop the... Um, the mandates for the injections because too many people are being harmed and harmed in very gruesome ways. Um, but the other thing we need to do is stop the vaccine passports because when the passports go into effect, um, we will be subject to a tyranny that will accelerate the evil that can be done to us. What we're dealing with is nothing compared to what will happen if the passports go into effect. And it's extremely important to understand that the passports, the passport system has been put into place for the last 20 years. We have in the West a very deep, complex, invasive social credit system already operating on a covert basis. If you get overt approval of the passports, the speed at which that covert social credit system can go into effect will dazzle you because it's already in effect on a covert basis. The vaccine passports just give us the ability to take it overt. Um, and so whether it's stopping the harm done by the mandates, helping the people who've already been harmed, which is very, very important. Um, we have many, many people who are in real jeopardy from a health standpoint or 
um, and this is the last thing, if you look at who's financing this genocide, it's us. And so I just launched yesterday uh, with Polly Tommy on the Children's Health Defense TV, a 15 minute weekly show called Financial Rebellion. We have to unleash a financial rebellion if we're gonna stop the mandates and, and, and stop the vaccine passports. Because right now we are financing and building this prison and we have the power to stop. Can you, so you, when, uh, sorry, when, if, if the, um, if the, uh, the passports go into full bloom, what is it you expect is going to happen like immediately and in the long run? So it's, it's going to be total control, like for everything. It, for it's going to be total health control. So, so if you look at some of these vaccine passport apps, they envision seven plus boosters. Um, and, and, and that's important because we do not know what are in these injections. So we have a secret governance system injecting secret ingredients into our bodies. We know some things about the injections and what's causing harm like the spike protein and the lipid toxicity. But there are also, there's clear evidence that there are secret ingredients um, and we're not allowed to have informed consent because we're not allowed to know what's in it. And I think If there's one dominant unanswered question of the pandemic, it's what are the secret ingredients? What is in this stuff? And I don't presume it's just one batch. It's, you know, multiple matches in multiple places. But what is in this stuff and why does Mr. Global want it in? Because I think, you know, we mentioned transhumanism when we started. Um, my guess is those secret ingredients are going to tell us a lot about what transhumanism is being tested, experimented, envisioned, and, and where it's leading. And of course, I believe where it's leading is Mr. Global wants a slavery system where humans are essentially, you know, linked into the machine instead of linked into the divine in each other. So we're resonating with their machines as opposed to resonating with life. So that's my, that's always been my guess here, but to me, You know, I'm very big on unanswered questions. What are the unanswered questions that, that we need to bring transparency to? One of the most important is what are these secret ingredients? Because if you just look, so for example, the, the Japanese found steel particles. Why are we injecting steel particles into people's bodies? Yeah, yeah one of our um, scientists found these steel particles as well. Uh, right. But, you know, he believes that maybe this is due to the manufacturing process that it was sloppily done, but he's not sure. So that's to him too, that's another unanswered question. So if it was one researcher, but I've had multiple researchers report yeah. steel particles. And what I will say, if there's anything I've learned about what I call, we did a 12 part series on the Slayer Report called Deep State Tactics. And two of the most effective deep state tactics that I have ever encountered is One is we're incompetent. We made a mistake. You know, I can't tell you how incompetency is used effectively. You know, for 20 years, the federal government can't produce audited financial statements as required by law. But, oh, it's because they're incompetent. The second thing is um, it's complicated. You know, it's really very complicated. And it's really, very, you know, and between incompetency and complexity playing off against each other, You know, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. If you look at, I just published a review of Kennedy's incredible book on Fauci. 
And one of the reactions I'm getting from people when they read that book is they're saying, how could all of this been going on and me not know? And if you go back and you look at the at the coverage of uh, the AIDS epidemic or swine flu or all the different things documented in that book, I can't tell you how many of those were covered up with. We made a mistake. It's really complicated. You know, it's been going on for for years in both the health and the financial area. Um, the, do we in effect have two different governments, the, the, the people who are running the show behind the scenes and those who are acting as their uh, puppets, so to speak? So here's the thing to understand. There, there are no governments. There are no mm -hmm. governments. You know, there are governments as a technical legal matter and the funding mm -hmm. goes to the government. But here's, you know, so, so I'll use the U.S. government, which I understand. Um, mm -hmm. For a government to be sovereign, it has to have financial sovereignty and it has to have information sovereignty and it has to have a decision sovereignty. So I have to be able to say no without the bankers pulling my money and and putting me in a position where I can't send checks to, to the taxpayers and the citizens. So we don't have financial sovereignty. Part of levering up the, the governments is putting them in a debt trap. And it's been done to the selected part of the population too. So one, you don't have financial sovereignty. Two, you don't have information sovereignty. When I became assistant secretary, I would regularly try and get data from corporate contractors that was required for me to run my operation according to the law. So according to the law, the, the mortgage insurance single family fund in the United States is supposed to be run on a self-sustaining basis. That is the law. I could not get from Lockheed Martin the data I needed to tell whether I was making or losing money. I finally had to have the accountants moved over to report to me and do estimations so I could, I could basically try and implement the law. But I can't tell you the food fights I had with corporate banks and corporate contractors who would refuse to give me the data because they didn't want me to know what was going on in the operation because it was clearly outside of the law. The third thing you need is you need decision sovereignty. A, a, uh, so let me step back on information sovereignty. We've seen story after story of a president trying to have a private phone call with another global president and not being able to have a private phone call. And it's, it's getting leaked to the New York Times, et cetera, you know, by the intelligence agencies. And this comes back to the IT systems, which are now clearly under control of both intelligence agencies and their corporate contractors. The third thing is a sovereign government needs the ability to make decisions. So I need to be able to say no to big pharma without my children you know, being killed or me having a car accident. And at this point, the covert operations are significant and out of control. And that includes generating control files on massive numbers of people. You know, I was told very clearly by the cabinet secretary I worked for, who used to keep ordering me to obey the law, it was uh, disobey the law. I refused, which is why I had to leave. But he would basically tell me, you know, I'm going to find dirt on you and 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 basically expose you unless you do what I say. You know, and and it, what was very interesting is when I ended up being targeted by the Department of Justice. I think part of the problem was if you don't have a control file, they'll just make one up. And I spent 11 years and six million dollars. You know, working for free for 11 years is a lot. And I spent 11 years and $6 million proving that they had nothing. 
And, and not everyone, particularly people with a large family, can't afford to do that. Hmm. So financial sovereignty, information sovereignty, decision sovereignty, one of the things we need to grapple with, because I think the government is like a football, and, and we want to get the foot, football back. The, the central bankers are now taking over the treasury function and the taxation flow. This is all going to come down to taxation without representation, which is what I'd like to talk about and how the vaccine passports fit into that. But um, the central bankers are taking over the treasury function worldwide, and I think we need to take it back. In other words, mm -hmm. I think we want to return sovereignty to government and get the balance of power between the bankers and the governments back, you know, back in favor of people having a say in, in a democratic process as to how their world is run. But this all comes down to, you know, it's good you bring up transhumanism. Do we want to have a human civilization or do we want to have a transhuman civilization where instead of us being sovereign individuals under divine authority, you know, we're livestock, you know, that resonate with the machine because we've had digital technology poured into our body one way or the other. Let me like one one uh, step because you just mentioned this financial uh, constellation together with the uh, you know the the vaccination passport. Um, I remember like a few years ago there was some some activity in I think it was in, in Africa where they were offering also the vaccination passport that could also serve as a credit card. I think it was a or like a a payment tool. So I think that's the that's the point. That's that's what yes. they're going to be suggesting or like well, introducing. Well, if you look around the world. You know, oftentimes those systems are not being run by the health ministry. They're being run by the financial ministry. I mean, th this is a control grid. What they are putting into place is a is a smart grid control grid. They are ending currencies as we know it and instead putting in a financial transaction control grid. And, and the vaccine passports and central bank digital currencies are two pieces of what's already been built. I want to stress The covert social credit system and smart grid has been significantly built and 5G is a very important piece of putting it into place. But when it snaps together with, with the vaccine passports, taking the existing social credit covert side over, and then you add in central bank digital um, currencies, what you will see is a complete control where they can not only ask you to take seven boosters full of stainless steel particles or whatever the secret ingredients are, but they can literally come into your house and take your kids. Say, you know, we feel you're not raising them. We would prefer raising them ourselves or using them in a variety of ways. And so we're just going to take them. Well, it's crazy. And, and it is all going to be... Go ahead, Viviana. No, uh, Rainer, you say. No, I, I just wanted to say this and this um, COVID passport or the vaccine passport, that is the most important tool that they yes. need in order to gain full control over us. They need first rather, of all, they, as you said, this is the this is the overt uh, part of the whole deal. It's been they, going on covertly for quite a while. Right. Right. This allows them to take the covert social credit system in the West overt. And, and do it globally. And so, and so you, when you want to stop that, you also want to stop central bank digital currencies, but the passport's going to go in first. 
And so it's absolutely essential to stop the passport. And then you're still going to have to grapple with the central bank digital control or currency. Let, let me, and again, it's not a currency. Let me make a recommendation. We have just successfully stopped the nominee for bank regular, regulator in the, in the United States was a Cornell law professor who wrote an article in, in the Vanderbilt Law Review that was published in October 2021. It was just published uh, one or two months ago. And it mm -hmm. describes taking all the bank deposits in America and moving them from the banks. You basically extinguish the entire banking system and you put it at the central bank and the, the paper describes the fact. So that's $18 trillion moved out of private banks and credit unions, boom, right onto the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. And then the, the description is, the great thing about this, if inflation starts to take off, which it has particularly, I don't know if you've looked at the German producer price index lately, but it's taken off. If inflation takes yeah. off, you can just shut off their bank accounts. And this is what mm -hmm. is proposed. So, you know, luckily we were able to get that candidate killed. But, but once you have central bank digital currencies and vaccine passports in place, you can have taxation without representation. And when I say taxation, I don't mean they can just take a portion or a higher portion of your income. I mean, they can take your assets. They can take your children. They can deny you any kind of service. I mean, we are talking about I keep saying this word, but I, I want to underscore it. We're talking about a slavery system. And, you know, I think also because there's already talk that there's so many like vaccination passports now or like these vaccination papers that are now, um, you know, people are, are um, faking them. And, you know, there's already this kind of discussion. So obviously they need to move further and get this this passport in under your skin you know like it's either like you're identified by your iris an iris scan or like right. it's even more likely that it's maybe something that you get with the vaccination you know that you can show oh that's that's me and i want to buy this piece of this uh, you know this piece of bread or something like that so i think it's it's really that's the next step that it's moving under your skin this identification system i think Step one of the financial rebellion has to be to, to refuse an all digital financial system and an all digital communication system. You know, digital technology holds out wonderful, fabulous promise. But if you look at how it's being applied, you know, it's a tool. And if you have a governance system which does not have your best intention at heart, then powerful tools like digital technology can be used for ill and not for good. So this is why, you know, we have to grapple with who in the world is running these things and why are they behaving the way they're behaving? And, you know, and, and so bringing transparency to that and to the secret ingredients are, to me, two of the most important issues. I, I think and write a lot about what kind of financial system could work for us. And what I keep coming back to, if you, I just published an article about, um, a book review of a book on the currency systems in ancient cultures, because I've been trying to go back through history and see what worked and what didn't. And what you discover again and again and again, the thing that makes a currency great is the rule of law and a covenant within the society to manage itself and its resources according to the rule of law. And there are no solutions 
You know, it's funny. <laughs> I'm saying this is an investment banker to a group of attorneys. There are no solutions without the rule of law. And that's the question. How are we going to bring transparency and then enforce the rule of law? Because basically we have a planet being run by criminals and it's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse as the secret money has grown. There's a real correlation between the growth of secret money, including in the United States and, and the growth of organized crime globally and the power of their invisible weaponry and tools. But it's all going to come back to, okay, you know, how do we enforce, nurture, and support the rule of law? Because until we do that, no financial system is going to work. And I don't want to, you know, gold's not going to do it. Blockchain's not going to do it. You have to have the rule of law. Yeah, definitely. I absolutely agree. Um, I'm, I'm actually quite frustrated, is not the right word, angry, <laughs> I don't know, that in Germany, the rule of law is completely destroyed. I mean, nothing works anymore. There's only something going on on the surface, but this is only to keep people, to give them the illusion that some so, parts of the, of the judiciary are still working. Right. So, so here's what's happened. You have government officials, you have judges, you have policemen who have the same sovereignty issue. They don't want their children killed. They don't want to lose their ability to support their family. So everybody's, you know, I'm going to grossly oversimplify, everybody's in a situation of blackmail hmm. and, and threat for their life. And, and so they're behaving this way. And the reason the you know, the, the corporations who and banks who would love to sort of take over and run everything are leaving the sort of blackmailed judiciary and the blackmailed government in place is they're not yet in a position to implement taxation without representation. So they need the appearance of a government and the budget of a government to keep taxing and regulating. And the danger, of course, is when they get the vaccine passports, if we don't return the governments to some kind of position of sovereignty, we'll have something far worse, which is, you know, control by a very centralized group of people who are who are implementing it through corporations and banks. Um, and if you think the civil, if you have a problem with the civil service, where do you see those things implemented with a corporation and bank? And and and. You know, and then we're in never, never land. So before that happens, what we have to figure out is how to shift our tax money back to lawful governance and management and how to start protecting government officials so that they can implement the rule of law. Can I, I think it's the only way. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm really curious about this, uh, you know, the, the attitude behind this, this transhumanist aspect, you know, that maybe we can talk a little bit about that as well. And, you know, and then maybe come back to the solution parts again, because I, um, I think that's very interesting what you, um, what you've been, you know, thinking about that. And maybe could you el elaborate a little bit, because I think it's, it must be, it's also not like an obsession, it's some kind of obsession, right. you know. So uh, I have a couple of theories and I'll just share them. Yeah. One is, I think if you are looking at the entire planet from a very you know, high level and you're in the process of bringing automation in and you believe, which they do, that you can replace every existing 
job and employee with robotics and automation. You have a real question. How am I going to integrate robots into the labor force? And if you sit down and you look at what it would take to create two labor forces, one human and one robotics, and you had to invent globally new law, new regulation to manage the robots and, and keep the existing laws of managing people, that would cost trillions of dollars and take you know, decades. But if you can integrate robots into the existing system, it's much more efficient. One of the reasons it's much more efficient is there is a continuum from what is a human to what is a cyborg to what is a robot. So we're seeing doctors around the world, you know, replace amputated parts of people's bodies with robotics and, you know, it's working wonderfully for those people. So you have this continuum of, of integration between robotics and humans. And so you say, look, it, it's going to get wildly complicated. Why don't I just integrate everybody to the existing labor system? And I think a lot of the really bizarre transhumanist things we're watching is comes from that. So theory number one is it's much more efficient from a labor management standpoint to, to integrate robots into one existing system with humans as opposed to have two systems. That's number one. And that gets us deeply into taxation, which I want to come back to. The second thing is once you have CRISPR technology, the, in my experience, the people who are at the top of the food chain in the United States believe tremendously in the power of genes. And so there's a long history of what I'll call special breeding programs. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's people or racehorses or, you know, fancy dogs that they take very, very seriously. They, they invest an enormous amount sort of personnel management. And I think once CRISPR technology came into being, they suddenly realized, you know, we can control centrally what genes come into the world rather than um, have, you know, a man and woman get together and have, you know, let nature decide what genes come into the world. And so the idea of de-sexing the population and then, you know, I don't know if you've seen the advertisements of literally, you know, your baby uh, is, is incubated in an incubator sitting in your living room. I mean, you know, so... So I think there's a, a desire to take control of who can have children and what genes they're allowed to bring into this world is part of this. Um, and I think the third thing you brought up earlier is, is if you can disassociate people from their body and the real world, they're much easier to mind control, they're much easier to control, they're much easier to harvest. So when the World Economic Forum says it's 2030, and um, uh, and and you know you're you have no assets and and uh, you own nothing and you're happy. What I hear is, you know, we put the vaccine passports in place, we stripped you of all your assets, and now you're totally mind controlled. So um, I think those are some of the issues. Now, there's a third economic issue which is very important to understand. And that is if you understand the competition to win in the race to develop AI and literally manage the planet with AI, um, uh, what you will see is the, the person or the company or the country that produces the best AI is the one that has the most data. In other words, 
great AI is not created by software developers. Great AI is created by essentially a feedback loop between data and the, you know, the, the data generates the intelligence of the software. I'm grossly oversimplifying again. And, and so you see this race. Uh, we mentioned James Corbett, who has a wonderful, uh, wonderful Corbett report on data is the new oil. But you see this race to suck up as much data as possible. Um, Asia has a tremendous advantage because it has a much bigger population. And so part of the effort in the West has been to literally digitize everything, digitize the trees, digitize the animals, digitize all the material that we create, put digital technology into humans, digitize the atmosphere. I mean, there is a race to digitize everything on the theory then you can hook it all up to AI and use telecommunications to understand your world and manage the risk. You know, I, I keep coming back to the fact, in my experience, the people, um, literally the top leadership in America was phenomenally oriented to managing risk. And there's no doubt that if you can get everything digitized and literally constantly map, you know, all reality and all life, uh, you know, it can certainly help you understand and manage risk. The problem is you end up using the tools for control um, and control to protect your leadership. And the next thing you know, you've killed meritocracy. And we're on right now, we're on a terrible downward slope in terms of productivity, because the more you centrally control, the more you cut off the oxygen that creates open source intelligence. You know, markets and democracy are very messy, but they are brilliant at create, creating open source intelligence and improving the health and vitality of the culture. And of course, the more you engineer central control, the more you engineer privilege and the more that privilege is used to literally destroy the economy, you know, but make a few people very, very rich. I just heard um, Kennedy say that we've created 500 uh, new billionaires since the pandemic started. Not surprising. Uh, my guess is it's more. And but here we have a um, a uh, you know a citation here uh, by uh, from Sean Parker, former president of Facebook, said in in 2017 in an Axios interview, because I'm a billionaire, I'm going to have access to better healthcare. I'm going to be like 160, and I'm going to be part of this class of immortal overlords. Give us billionaires an extra hundred years, and you'll know what wealthy disparity looks like so it also right. seems to be like um the dream of like an like an endless life immortal and sort of like a, a like an ubermensch kind of uh, crowd that controls the rest of of the the creeps or so i i suspect part of the genocide is not just that you've stolen the retirement savings but part of the genocide is if you're going to expand the life expectancy in the you know, top 1% of 1%, you need to lower the life expectancy, you know, in the bottom and, 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 you know, they don't want to the responsibilities of managing an ever larger population. So um, they do expect to use this technology to live forever. And the problem is, you know, the reason to have complete control physically Of a, of a population and reduce them to slavery is because once they realize how much money you've stolen and once they realize, you know, that you're, they're using the technology to live for 140, I mean, there's nothing more gruesome than looking at people 
who cannot afford to feed their children, taking their children down to a center to give blood so that a Silicon Valley executive can refresh their blood with young blood. You know, and it was that company, that Silicon Valley company that had a lot to do with stealing all the federal monies that have course has reduced the economy of the person who now has to give it's a vampire model financially but then literally with the blood well um that's you've mentioned this a few times that so much money was taken out of the system both out of the american system but also out of the european system and i think if i remember correctly this happened towards the end of the 1980s and in both cases um, it was roughly an amount of, was it 60 or 61 trillion dollars or euros? So, so, so here's what happened. Mm -hmm. There was a budget deal that busted in 1995 um, in the United States in, in October of 1995. I was told by the, one of the, the president of the largest pension fund in the country that essentially at that point, they, whoever they is, they have given up on the country and they're moving all the money out, okay? The next month, November 1995, after the budget deal busted is when Oxycontin was approved and the predatory lending skyrocketed. Interestingly enough, under Andrew Cuomo, uh, who also had something to do with getting the pandemic going. So, so the policies, you know, somebody hit a switch and switched to a accelerated the great the great poisoning was on both financially and in health and it started with a vengeance in november 1995 in october 1st 1997 vast amounts of money started disappearing from the u.s government we've now documented undocumentable adjustments of 21 trillion but there's evidence to suggest it's much greater and i assure you with treasury and securities fraud you know, there's a near infinite amount of money that can be stolen. Um, anyway, that started in, in 1997, and it had become an explosive issue politically. Um, I was working on a major expose that was scheduled to be published uh, four days after 9-11 and published in Washington in a way that it went to all the senators' desks. At that point, there was $4 trillion missing. When 9-11 happened, it blew up the different offices that were doing the investigation, both in New York and Washington, uh, were told of the offices that were investigating the $4 trillion and to try and get it back. Um, and so you had a huge, not only cover up the, at the money that had gone missing at that point, but an acceleration of the theft that could continue because of the Patriot Act and the other sort of laws that facilitated central control and the ability to strip sovereignty. I mean, it's a the stripping the sovereignty. We were off to the races. And then at, as of 2015, there was an announcement of a new round of, of money gone missing. At that point, I started, I was documenting and doing radio shows on this regularly. And if you go to missingmoney.salary.com, there's great documentation. 6.5 trillion of undocumentable adjustments in 2015 at the end of the Obama administration. A professor, Dr. Mark Skidmore, heard me describing this and, and being a professor of economics said she has to be wrong because that's so many more multiples than the entire federal budget. You know, at that point, I think the, the, the uh, 
Department of Defense budget was about six or seven hundred billion dollars. Now it's almost eight hundred billion on the overt side, covert much more. Anyway, he he dug into the financial statements and realized I was right and called me and said, is there anything I could do to help? And I said, yes, I've never done a full, complete survey of all the financials at HUD and DOD over this period. If you could get your students and do a survey, he did and published a series of reports documenting $21 trillion missing. Then in October of 2018, the federal government, both the Senate, the House and the White House working together adopted a policy, and you'll find all of this described at missingmoney.salary.com, called Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board Statement 56. I call it FASB 56. It is a administrative policy that has not, that has not risen to the level of law or regulation, let alone constitutional amendment. And what it says is the federal government can keep secret books by a secret process run by a secret group of people. In other words, the financial system at the federal government, both treasury and central bank is completely 100% out of control. No disclosure, they can do whatever they want, they can spend it on whatever they want. And I believe, I would, I would absolutely bet you a euro that the pandemic could never have happened if they hadn't been able to turn on that spigot. It was interesting, right? Literally the month after they turned on that spigot, Moderna was able to raise, I think, $500 million. You know, and I would have told you looking at their balance sheet and their finances and management, no one, you know, no investor worth his salt would put a dollar in, let alone 500 million. So, you know, the question is, where did that money come from? And if you look at a lot of the money, you know, the, the day the money started to go missing, I had been Assistant Secretary of Housing at HUD, and money started going missing in vast amounts at HUD, which is how I discovered this and how we got we initially got onto it. And the minute, Reiner, that that money started going missing from HUD, suddenly all the, you know, you had firms like Carlisle and Washington suddenly raising billions of dollars with no, with no history or experience in this kind of investment. And everybody in the investment world was like, how did those guys raise a billion dollars to invest in China, you know? What's the miracle here? Where'd this money come from? You know, I now my big question now is, you know, and it's the same now. You see private equity firms buying, you know, buying everything up around the globe like a global sweepstake, just as the Fed is doing the going direct quantitative easing, massive amounts of money showing up in all these in in all these, you know, places. So, so what happened after 2015 is basically we went into a complete secrecy about the money. There is indications that the, that the adjustments may be up to 90 trillion, but we can't prove that those are undocumentable adjustments and we don't trust any of their numbers anymore. What I will tell you is people always try and, you know, the spin back is, oh, the $21 trillion is just accounting errors. That's ridiculous. I was the Assistant Secretary of Housing. I spent, you know, a long time and a great deal of money implementing perfect accounting systems, perfect accounting regulations, perfect accounting, you know, everything at, at, at the Department of Housing and Urban Development and making sure the resources were there. There is not one reason on the planet that as of 1998, HUD should not have had absolutely perfect books 
you know, with undocumentable adjustments of no more than a million dollars. Yeah, I, know. Just, I mean, that's really in, in absolutely unbelievable. I mean, that's that's impossible, basically, that you'd have like a larger financial, uh, you know, like bookkeeping. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are departments, uh, you know, obviously in these. And that's oh, impossible. But, that's crazy. But Vivian, the civil service is incompetent and it's very complicated. We have these systems and it's very complicated ah. and we're all incompetent. And <laughs> Right. It's crazy. It was always the same story, always the same explanation. But it's a very simple system. Then it's just like it's just like a Corona. It's right. It's everything is right in front of you. If only you could use your head, you would see immediately what's going on. What they did is they stole the taxpayers money by creating agencies and entities like right. uh, after 9-11 and and pushing the money into this new system right. where it disappeared and then was forwarded to enterprises like Carlisle right. and others. So you, you're bringing simple. you're bringing down the old. It's a coup. It's a financial coup d'état. You you yeah. you lever up the governments. You put the money in your new system, which you control, and you you know you slowly enervate and bankrupt the old system, but you use it to keep control. And you think it was, I mean, because you mentioned like covert uh, budgets before, you know, that existed prior to that moment. Um, do you think they were just not sufficient enough or it was like too complicated to, to do, to work with all these covert budgets? So they had so to go overt at some point. I think, I think that's an excellent question. And my answer grossly oversimplified is yes. So at the end of World War II, they created the 47 and 49 Act. And I have an online book, Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, that explains this. And in fact, next week, we're just about to publish it next week or the week after in German. Um, it's in French and Spanish. But um, so we created the 47 and 49 Act, which created the black budget. And we took the money seized at the end of World War II and put it in a hidden system of finance that you could use with that black budget as well as the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which we created in 34. But then what you did in 81, when the Bushes came and the Bushes were masters of this, they created an executive order that said private corporations and bank could do highly classified, um, highly classified functions. Well, then you've got the treasury market, both overt and covert, able to pump an infinite amount of money into publicly traded stocks. Well, then you're off and running with the military industrial complex. And what happens is you engineer more and more laws, classification laws, national security directives, and now FASB 56 that allows you to keep all the money secret and to do amazing things. So I have an article that, and you can link to it from missingmoney.salary.com called Caveat Emptor, which I wrote with my attorney to help people understand, you know, who are managing retirement savings or positions in treasuries, what this means to their credit. In other words, you now have created a situation where the vast majority of the US securities market has no transparency or no correct transparency or no meaningful transparency because national security law has basically allowed all of these different shenanigans and secrecy to go on. And so it is impossible if you're an investor to understand, you know, sort of what the credit is behind a US Treasury other than to assume all the assets you've financed have disappeared into a into another system. In two, I think it was 2012, one of the rating agencies in the United States tried to drop the rating of US Treasuries 
they were they and their parent company were attacked by the Department of Justice. The president of the company lost his job. He was fired. And basically they had to you know, the company was almost destroyed as a result of doing that. And now no credit agency dares to question the, you know, the treasury or no American credit agency dares to to question the U.S. Treasury credit. So we wrote Kavi and Emptor to help the investors understand what they're grappling with. How did they how did they go about um, shifting the money here in Europe, shifting it from our taxpayers' coffers to to their entities? Is was that done through NATO? I think so NATO played a my, big part in it. The only money I found disappearing in Europe, and I haven't looked carefully, was in NATO, which I found when I was still looking at the missing money. Mm -hmm. You had a Dutch auditor who highlighted the fact that there was shenanigans going on in the books. And my mm -hmm. guess is if you go back in NATO, you'll find enormous shenanigans. If you look at the condition of the European infrastructure and system, it looks to me like a lot more money in, in Europe has gone into basic governmental purposes than disappearing. I mean, it's very obvious when you drive around the United States that the money has not gone to the governmental purpose. So you have a tremendous deterioration in infrastructure and other systems that you don't see in Europe, particularly in Northern Europe, you see it more in Southern Europe. So I don't know about the European governments. What I can tell you is that, uh, you know, there was clearly funny business in NATO. And um, I, I think, you know, it's funny because the, the U.S. securities market has and stock market has significantly outperformed the European stock market. I suspect a lot of that is these kinds of shenanigans. And there are, I know a fair amount of investors who, despite the outperformance, continue to prefer European equities because they, they believe at least the earnings are closer to real. But Al, you know, we've spoken, you, you know, Leslie Manukian, um, she's yes. a former investment banker. And yeah. uh, she says she took, and she spent some 10 years in Europe, I think mostly in, right. in, in London, but also in Germany, I believe. And um, she says that uh, one of the reasons why they're pushing so hard, in particular in Europe, is because Europe is completely broke. Uh, the uh, pension funds are completely empty. Uh, every the money's all the all of the money that should have gone to uh, well let's say the support of the baby boomer generation all of it was probably through NATO maybe other um, maybe there's other vehicles that they use but it was taken from the public and then uh, shifted to these private entities that you mentioned. That's but very. It should, it, it, it's very mm -hmm. possible, especially if they're full of sovereign government bonds, when the governments mm -hmm. have been denuded of their assets or in debt. So if I fill up a pension fund, you know, whether in Europe or the United States with sovereign government bonds and I've stolen the assets from those governments that, you know, that were purchased with the proceeds from those bonds, you know, then my my retirement funds are full of bonds, but essentially they're, you know, they're next to worthless. Now, let me just say, because, you know, if you listen to me, you could get depressed, but <laughs> I will I, I will make this argument again and again. If you have a system, when you, when you centralize control in the way that we're doing it, 
you destroy the vitality and the productivity of the economy. And you have what I call a negative return on investment economy. What I did when I left the Bush administration is I created a company called Hamilton Securities, and we built relational databases that let us look at the economy on a place-based basis and to simulate how much wealth could be created with the blessings of new technology if we were to enhance the productivity of people and, and places and living things and build an economy where the the financial system and the environment have a win-win relationship. Right now, the financial system and the environment and living things have a win-lose relationship. But if you re-engineer to a win-win, how much wealth could be created? And the little secret here is the wealth that can be created is absolutely fantastic, but you're gonna have to go to a governance system that is not secret and is not, a, you know, that is a meritocracy. And, and so what I discovered is it seems like there's not enough money and everybody's bankrupt as long as you have a negative return on investment system. But if you will switch to a positive return on investment system, you know, there's a lot of hope because then you're talking about, you know, the economics dramatically improving wealth. Now, given how much money's stolen, I don't know where it's gone, what it's in, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, can you get that money back or do you have to generate new wealth? I don't know. So so there's absolutely there's been a shift. But uh, the idea that things are hopeless because we have a negative return on investment economy when we could convert to a positive return on investment economy. It's kind of like, you know, it's I don't know if you ever saw the American movie Animal House. You know, but if everybody's behaving badly, there are no solutions. But if everybody starts behaving productively, there are real solutions. Are we gonna to have to tighten our belts? Absolutely. You know, one of the ways we got into this because there's a, you know, everybody has a desire to say, oh, this happened because the top guys are bad guys. You know, let me, let me just say as an American, I've explored the depth of the corruption at the, you know, at the all the way bottom up and the bad behavior and the dependency on, you know, the, the clear message of the American voting population is keep the war and the financial fraud and the organized crime going because it makes us money. You know, just, you know, just give me a story of I am good, but I want the money and I want to be able to pretend I'm good. And the reality is, you know, the, the corruption is not just at the top. The corruption is throughout the society. So we're all very visibly right. Very visible now, because if it wasn't for the corruption in the lower ranks, so to speak, this whole thing wouldn't have wouldn't have been. So they couldn't have pulled it up. So I'm going to say a very tough thing, you know, but I'm a big believer in tough love. What I studied for many years is how can 70 percent of Americans say they're Christian and our number one business is war and organized crime? How can that be? How can this be engineered? And what I discovered, I came up with something called the story of I am good. What everybody in America wants is a story of why I'm good and I can keep taking the money. You know, so I can go to work for a pharmaceutical company that's engineering death and I can take the check and still feel good. Or I can put my money in their stock and I can still feel good about myself. You know, so everybody wants the story of I'm good. It's not me. It's him who's doing it. Mr. Global's the bad guy. But, you know. I hate to say this, if, you, if you're gonna march people into gas chambers, then you have to face you're doing genocide. 
But if you can give them an injection that poisons people slowly, invisibly, you know, that's their story of I am good. And we have doctors and nurses all over the world and paramedics who are basically marching people into gas chambers and they're doing it because they have a story of I am good. And I think a lot of them know it's just a cover story. You know, some of them believe it, but not everybody. But but they believe as long as they have, you know, the injection is the new story of I am good. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, also even perverted, sense. like obviously, like in the communication that you, you know, it's an act of solidarity. And so, you know, they're, they're pushing also that button on, on the people. So right. that's, uh, yeah, I mean, as right. can I can see. feel good about killing you. I'm, I'm helping you. It's extraordinary. Yeah, right. but, yeah but, you know, that's, there's a long, since, since the 47 and 49 Act went into place, there is a long history of the evolution of the story of story on my good. It started George Keenan at the end of World War II said, and I'm picking on America now because that's what I know and I'm an American citizen, but George Keenan at the State Department said, we have, we have 50% of the resources and 6% of the people. We can't keep this going unless we drop a lot of bombs. So Goldwater ran for president. He said, you know, we're going to have to drop a lot of bombs. And the American people rejected that. They said, oh, no, we're good Christians. So then Jimmy Carter came along and he said, we're, you know, we're good Christians. We're going to cut back on our use of resources. And the American people rejected him and said, oh, no, 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 no. We, you know, we want to be warm in the winter. And, and the Bushes came along and said, you know something? You all are good Christians. Here's your check. Don't ask questions. And we said, okie dokie. What was the ratio again? 6% of the population have, of the world's population? Yeah, it's a very famous quote from George Keenan, and it's up on the Solari Report. I'll, I'll find it and send it to you. We have 6% we have of the people and 50% of the resources. We can't keep this going without dropping a lot of bombs. Yeah. And in this financial uh, coup d'etat, how many people do you think really know what's, know the whole, whole thing? I think you would be shocked and amazed at how few people it took. You I know, ev everybody's on a need-to-know basis, and a lot of those people have control files. So one of my theories is um, I happen to believe pornography was used very astutely by the IT systems and the tech companies to get control files. And I'll tell you how. If I can get a civil servant in the account, if I can get everybody in the accounting departments watching porn on a government computer, and all I have to do is once, all I have to do is once migrate them to kitty porn, you know, just an underage actress, they may not even realize what they're doing. Bam, I've got a control file. I've got them on a felony. Okay. So you have all these different tactics with this technology to get control files on people. And then you get somebody to do what you need them to do, but they don't see the big picture. It's very interesting when we first started to publish all the, the stuff, you know, the information on the missing money, we would, we would come out with a big thing on, you know, we found another, you know, 500 billion missing at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And all of a sudden these huge fights would break out And I swear, because it looks just like what used to happen on Wall Street, I swear people had helped steal, you know, they'd helped steal a trillion dollars and they didn't realize it and they weren't getting paid. And, and suddenly they would start complaining. They wanted a bigger bonus. Wait a minute. You know, if you got 500 billion, I went, you know, so the fights would break out. And that's why a lot of what we focus on with transparency is 
what can we do to bring transparency to the money that will cause those personnel fights to break out? Because, you know, the beauty of our opportunity here is if you look at who's running this, you know, they depend on force and greed. They don't have a, they don't have a culture that binds them. And, um, and so I believe ultimately they're going to end up killing each other. And that's why we need a, we need a plan. But if we can stop the, the, the mandates, if we can help the people who've been physically harmed, if we can stop the passports now, uh, you know, the question is, how can we bring about a human civilization with the least pain? Right now, the pain is going to be tremendous. If they get passports and full mandates, the pain is going to be unbelievable. So we have to stop that before it happens. It is happening already in some countries, but in other countries, it isn't. And in some of the states in the United States, I think in Florida, wasn't wasn't it Florida where um, a law was just recent? No, there's a there's a decision by one of the courts. I I think right. You have two. Yeah, you have two decisions in the Fifth Circuit. You have a South Carolina judge, a Georgia judge. I think yeah. there's something in the Sixth Circuit. But you're starting to see this momentum. And I think one uh -huh. of the reasons you're starting to see this momentum, and, and you know, I credit you guys with what you've done with helping, is for the first time in, in 30 years, I'm seeing a critical mass of the talent we need to create alternatives coming to the realization that is really this bad. You know, for the, since 1991, I have spent an enormous amount of psychological energy struggling with the fact that the really talented people you need to run the planet just can't fathom that it's this bad. And, and I'm very yes. sympathetic. You know, so, so you pick up, you know, Kennedy's book on Fauci, And what everybody's mm -hmm. asking is, how could it have been this bad and me not know? You know, which is a legitimate question. But but now that you see you see the critical mass of talent we need to run the planet, realizing, you know something? I'm not going along with this for anything. I, I would rather, you know, I always tell people death is not the worst thing that can happen. Um, I, I wouldn't want to be part of that group for anything. I don't want to, I don't, I call them the Midianites. I don't want to be on the Midianites team. So, you know, I'd rather die on this team than be on the Midianites team. So I think we're going to win, but, you know, and, and my concern is it's, I, I would hate to, I would hate to be as painful as it could be, but I, I wouldn't be on the Midianites team because you know something, they're a creepy group. Yeah, yes. definitely. I mean, it's quite still, obviously. Look, it's still true <laughs> what, the, what we have here. You know, we really just have to yeah. disconnect, you know, and it, yeah, I think yeah, yeah, it's yeah. So, so easy. It's always the same, you know, it's just a question and of it's choice. Happening. So I'll, it's I, have happening. To, I have to tell mm -hmm. you a story. So in the last month, twice, I've been rejected to eat in a restaurant because I didn't have a QR code. And I when it happened, you know, I had assumed if it happened, I would feel frustrated. When it happened both times, I felt this magical feeling of, you know, it's like there's a divide going on and I'm going into this magical world. And it was really funny because the second time it happened, we had to eat outdoors and it turned into an absolutely magical experience. <laughs> 
And it was so I mean, it was wonderful because everybody in the restaurant had masks on and they looked totally miserable. So so we're outside watching the prawn ships come into the port and two seals came in and sort of and I thought this is wonderful. And I used to have a friend who uh, would talk about a term, a South American term she called Jatino, the magic that comes in dangerous times. And it's happening to me more and more that I feel this magic that comes in dangerous times is the people who really will go yes. to the wall for freedom come together. You know, I was in yes. Milan and Bern when Kennedy came to speak, and it was the people in, in Milan and in Bern. When you get together with thousands and thousands of people, I know you guys have known this because of the big protests in Germany, but God, it just feels like you could lift off and, you know, it just feels like liftoff. It's an amazing, amazing feeling. So that magic is going to work. And that's our opportunity. Yeah, it's true. It's a whole like new quality of people, you know, like all the small yeah. talk yeah. has gone. And it's really like it's it's to the point, like facing the brutal facts, but still be able, you know, to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's I think it's it's a whole new energy. And yes. yeah, I see Absolutely. that also everywhere. Yes. And then you have the people who are stuck, you know, yesterday I went to some store where I always bought like thread yarns, you know, for my uh, for my fashion business. And they were like, you, you know, really like timid and had masks on. You could only enter this tiny store with like uh, 2G. So, I mean, vaccinated and or, right. So, it, so this it, is why I think it, know, is, but like it it's, is it's so important. We help the people who are vaccine damaged. I think we have yeah. to do everything we can to reach out and help because, um, and and also we have doctors and nurses now because of the mandates coming out of the system and they need to tell all and feel forgiven. We need to, we need to bring in as many people as we can and help as many people as we can sort of enjoy the delights of teaming up with us. Um, and I think there's huge opportunity to do that because uh, I can't tell you how sorry I feel for those people. And I, I appreciate that some of them are sort of locked in the media. Um, you know, the more we can get people to turn off their TVs and, and go outside and look at the seals That's swimming the around the harbor, the better off we'll be. But I think That's it can also secret. not be hidden uh, anymore. Yesterday, um, someone from Israel told me that on mainstream Israeli TV, they are now discussing the vaccine damages. Damages, and really? you know the uh, the um, this um, this move, um, you know this film by documentary by by um, um, Abital, you know Abital Le Le Levy. Uh, I think it was. Was name. that the one that had all of the people who've been vaccinated? Yes. Yeah. and I think that, that also ran on TV. Yeah. But then also they had you know now discuss discussions about that on regular TV, and it's becoming more and more obvious. And this person told me that the Israelis are especially obsessed with like or like I mean especially uh, you know with like saving their children from any harm. And so right. I think it's really this this you know this threshold that they're crossing, and I think it's now really becoming also more and more obvious to them, apart from the fact that they're realizing that they've been tricked into this um, vaccination uh, circle, you know, that's not supposed to be to stop, you know, because it's the second, the third, fourth, whatever. So they're, they're angry, plus like becoming more and more protective about their children. Right. Well, there's, yeah, that's you know, Mr. Global's tactic is to do, you know, divide and conquer is one of Mr. Global's most popular tactics, as I'm sure you know, but 
but the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated is is the new great you know effort to try and divide us and we can't let that happen and that's why if the if the unvaccinated or the people who've been opposed to the mandates reach out and do everything they can to help the vaccinated who've been harmed or damaged um, yeah. we have that, to do it that's why we um couple of weeks ago, months ago, actually, um, have come up with the idea of buying a, a whole new hospital or not a new one, but right. one of those that, are, that have been shut down. Um, the, the thing is, it's too complicated to get this thing running because you have to get all these official permissions and we're not going to get them. Uh, we will buy one, two, or even more hospitals, but that'll take too long for, for, for us to help these people who have now who have now come to the conclusion that maybe what they're suffering from has something to do with the vaccinations. It's so funny. we're about to, yeah, it's but but that's the only way. You have to, this is learning the hard way. Uh, and I just hope that the uh, so-called vaccines, in particular the mRNA vaccines, which are not just dangerous because of the very toxic uh, spike protein, but also because they are literally shutting off your immune system. Right. Um, but it's, I guess, I, I think there's still hope. And what we're going to do is we're setting up a network of um, family doctors who are then connected and who have um, who have the ability to help the people right where they are in their That's region, fabulous. in their community. What I That's get from subscribers is, you know, I'm in country X. What are the practitioners I can trust here? And yeah. that's what everybody yeah. needs to know, the practitioners. The other thing is, because when I got booted out of the establishment, I was in a political situation where I couldn't go to doctors. I couldn't go to hospitals. Part was financial, but the other part was it just politically it wasn't safe. So um, I literally had to learn how to do everything yourself. And I rediscovered, you know, scads of old timey recipes. You know, I've tried everything, but I also got introduced to sort of, there's a whole underground health system in the United States of people for a variety of reasons who don't feel it's safe to go into the, um, into the sort of majority hospital system. I grew up in an African-American neighborhood and that, that, that sort of church network, and you have all these old timey networks there that that have passed down the technology of how to deal with these things. But anyway, one of the things, our hero of the year on the Slayer Report, you know, we have a hero every week and, and then a hero. Uh, we had heroes of the pandemic. So, Reiner, you were in the heroes of the pandemic. But our hero oh. this week is, uh, is Wim Hof. I'm a huge Wim Hof. Do you know who Wim Hof is? You, you've mentioned him. Yeah, uh, when he's, spoke he, on he yeah. is a a Dutch athlete who has done a lot of work with the use of cold water and ice and breathing exercises to improve health. And he's had a lot of doctors and universities now study his um, techniques. He's come out with a new book. And what we've done is we've bought, actually, we've we told people it's 50, but we bought 100 copies of his newest book, The Wim Hof Method. And what we've said is to any subscribers as part of our Christmas donations, um, every Christmas, we highlight a whole bunch of groups to sort of encourage donations. But we said to the first 50 subscribers who email us and say, I've been harmed by the injections or depression related to vaccine injury or death, um, uh, you know, uh, send me a Wim Hof book. We're going to send them because Wim Hof believes it can help tremendously. And so we're mm -hmm. sending them a copy of the Wim Hof. We're just about to publish an interview with him next week. And uh, 
it's extraordinary the health benefits he's been able to bring to people who are struggling with inflammation and, and suppressed immune systems. Whether it can help in this circumstance, I don't know. But one of the things I believe is, you know, it's amazing what people can accomplish when they just try and collaborate and share their results. So I've worked a lot with vaccine uh, families struggling with vaccine injured uh, injury before COVID-19. And what they've been able to accomplish is just, you know, again and again, they've been told by the doctors that it's hopeless and yet they, they accomplish miracles and it works. So I never underestimate what the human race can invent when, when pushed to the wall. Yeah. That's why I think, I think it's, it's not hopeless. Yeah. It's never, it's never hopeless. It's never hopeless because the human race is very inventive and they don't understand that. They are digitalized. They don't understand that they oh, can only I think, see one zero. I think zero. they I think they do understand that. I think they're very concerned about maintaining control. And uh -huh. you know, we're coming up into a huge shift in consciousness. You know, mm -hmm. we're coming into a shift in consciousness where we can run the enforcement of the rule of law by culture globally you know, to a very high extent. And we don't need all these hierarchies of control anywhere to the same extent, particularly given the wealth that can be created from these kinds of technologies. So, you know, and there's a risk management issue that's very, very serious to be sure, but uh, I can understand why they want to get complete control now before this shifts out of control. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's so the it's a very like crucial point in time, you know. And in, in Germany, I just saw an interview or like a, a speech someone gave at an at a demonstration, like a double vaccinated person, you know. And he was really reaching out to the uh, unvaccinated, mostly at the demonstration, and he said, you know, I can feel that I'm here with like real human beings, and I really absolutely hate this this situation, you know, that's happening to democracy, and I feel this is a fascist situation, you know, that person said that clearly, and right. everyone, of course, was like uh, happy that he was speaking out on behalf of yeah. the unvaccinated, and I think there's also a push of solidarity from the vaccinated side, not even right. because they all feel deceited, you know, because maybe they have not realized that 100%, but just because they feel this is not what democracy is about. This is not what we right. want as human beings. So, Well, remember, the passports will be used to strip the assets and rights of the vaccinated as well as the unvaccinated. Yeah. And so. there's practically no difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated because the or the vaccinated are soon to be the new unvaccinated right. because if they don't get their booster shots then they're back to back to where they were when they started uh, i mean this is something that is making them very very nervous so i think the most important thing is transparency so we have to continue to expose everything including what what we're talking about now with you because this is the one of the most important aspects right give you the yeah go ahead transparency but take action so take action yeah. what what but you can I only hear... take action if you understand what's going on correct so so first you need a map you can't drive you know i can't drive to berlin without a good map an accurate map but don't think that you're unimportant you are very important your bank deposits your purchases your investments your taxes one of the things we're going to have to do is our tax dollars are being spent illegally and we need to move our tax dollars back 
into yeah. lawful management. So let me tell you one story. When I settled the litigation, I got a large settlement in. And at that point, I tried to pay off all the existing creditors who hadn't been paid off. And I owed one of the large New York Fed member banks $14,000 on a credit card. And at that point, the missing money, which is now $65,000 per person, was $14,000 per person. And I wrote them a letter and I said, I owe you $14,000, but you owe me $14,000. And I'm asserting a common law right of offset, something that the Department of Justice had taught me about. I'm asserting a common law right of offset, and I'm offsetting my $14,000 against your $14,000. And if you have a problem with that, here's the name and number of my attorney. Please feel free to contact her and we can you know, proceed to negotiate and litigate this issue. They wrote off the debt. I never heard another word. Now, a smart financial wow. person would say they probably got me back on my credit score, and I can't tell you that they didn't. But that, you know, between offsets against the banks or escrows of taxes under some kind of local, you know, serious stewardship and management to ensure that our tax dollars go lawfully. I just finished publishing with my attorney a very large piece. If you go to ourmoney.solary.com, it's a very large piece on the US taxation system and different ideas of how we could affect um, escrowing our tax dollars or doing offsets against the banks to start to claw back the money that's been disappeared. And I would encourage you to think about this because if we're gonna integrate the health side with the money side, it's all kind of come down to the fact that we, through our taxes, are financing this kind of criminal behavior, and that must be addressed. So when we go back at them on the health issues, you know, so, so for example, I always tell the, the mothers whose kids have been vaccine damaged, I said, don't go to the school board and talk science. Go to the school board, audit their books and records. I assure you they're in violation of multiple provisions and get them on the money just like you can get the federal government on the fact that they're they're not obeying the financial management laws. I mean, the, the Fed's got Al Capone on taxes, not on criminality, right? So, so we have to integrate our pushback with the money because if we're financing the people who are killing us and poisoning us, you know, there are no solutions until we deal with that financing. Absolutely, we have to stop them from grabbing our taxpayers' money. Uh, we've been thinking about that in particular with um, our most important legal advisor, Professor Martin Schwab. He's he's come up with some pretty good Wonderful. ideas, but others have as well. Can you send him? I'm going to send you a link to that article. It's ourmoney.salary.com and just click on the taxation with or without representation. Now, that's the U.S. tax system, but I happen to believe a lot of the you know, sort of legal analysis and discussions will inform any any country in the G20. Very good. I'm going to check it out. Well, this was great, Catherine. It's always, <laughs> it's always great to talk to you guys. I can't tell you how deeply I appreciate it. You know, when I say we have all this incredible talent now jumping in to help, it's what uh, one of the guys who was leading the SWIFT referendum said to me last Christmas. He said, Friends are turning up everywhere. <laughs> you real know, that, friends for a change. Real friends. And that is the magic yeah. that comes in dangerous times. So yeah. from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today. I hope you have a great day. You Thanks too, so much. Catherine. Fantastic. This is not the last time.
We'll speak okay. again. This is okay. really, really great. Okay. You have to, Take well, care, next Kathy. summer, if you can, you all have to come up here and go sailing with us. Okay. That's good. No problem. Yeah, I'm, yes, I'm from, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Thanks again. Bye then. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, it was fascinating again. That's the all-round hit, really. In a, an area that we at best have guessed. Uh, she mentioned it last time that tons of money have been kicked out or thrown out or stolen out of the public system because the public system is corrupt you can't imagine it really uh privately you can and it's incredible in the us and over here whether it's 21 billion or, or trillion or 80 uh, uh, trillion uh, so much money out of the public institutions to for example in the us what was it the 9-11 act um, saying everything is very dangerous now all these new institutions had to be established where the money went and from there it went to private hands Carlisle is an example so absolutely simple and that has to be made public we have to stage that in a way that everybody catches it and gets it so we know what we have to do and we know we are at a very critical moment you said this viviana and she uh, said this as well we are in for it now we have to stop their vaccine passports it is working in some of the u.s states and i think it's working in some of the countries i don't know precisely for now but some european countries i think mostly eastern europe countries where it is working and support, uh, of course, important that uh, people refuse to get vaccinated so that this doesn't happen. That's really crucial. Um, if you don't know what's uh, in those vaccines, and we know that there are different batches. So it's a bit of Russian roulette that you're exposing yourself to. But I think it is still a, a critical moment um, and we have to... Um, tie the sack now because um, if it opens up again um, the uh, the cats will get out of the bag and they, they'll jump into your face with their claws exposed we're quite late now for Hans Tolzin I hope he's still with us he is still there I hope you um, are not annoyed it was important for all of us yes of course uh, nothing else would be expected of course it was very interesting uh, the clarity of this lady is um, exceptional. Uh, I didn't quite everything. My English isn't that good, but a uh, very important contribution. Yes, I do think so. And uh, she's not only been in the midst of it. She's been a uh, associate secretary and uh, she was in investment banking and she's highly intelligent it has to be made sure that the information is passed on in a way that everybody understands but it's not too difficult it can be made complex but it's as simple as i just put it it's uh, from the public funds the money has been stolen put into different institutions in u.s in the europe by the nato and then it was pushed over to the private companies who probably funded BlackRock or Carlyle, that's a similar company, 
Uh, so, very simple thing, but you have to make it public. Okay, Hans, we don't want to waste more time or lose more time. I don't think we waste any. You're an author and uh, founder of the Tolstin Publishing House. You publish the Inf Report. And you've got uh, lots of books, Able or Uncensored, which you wrote in 2016. The Disease Inventors, that's probably what we're going to look at in uh, right now, from the Spanish flu to EHEC in 2012. And we have a video, uh, but we'll show that after we've heard your story. Um, we know that from Klaus Kuhnlein and Torsten Engelbrecht. I think you work together sometimes as well, or was that only sporadic? No, we um, aren't always in contact, but again and again, um, because we work in the same area and there's a bit of team spirit there, because it's really a core issue. The way um, infectious diseases are de uh, treated. Yes, and Spanish flu is always used as a club to tell us we are in the same situation. And Klaus and Torsten told us, in truth, the Spanish flu or flu was under control and or it only got as bad by the vaccination at the time already, which was used then, and that turned it into disaster. Is that true? Well... For me, that was the point of departure in 2005, the uh, swine flu, no, no, sorry, um, the bird flu. Uh, they kept referring to the Spanish flu as an example of uh, why we have to be really afraid that somewhere, somehow a virus can mutate in one person and start spreading, um, keeping all of humanity busy. Um, making people sick or killing them, more or less like with Asterix and Obelix, uh, the Gauls who are always afraid that the skies may have it on, uh, on their heads. And that's this uh, pressure um, that we are exposed to. And I was wondering uh, what really happened with the Spanish flu, and that was in 2005 that I started doing that research. And what was the outcome? I prepared a bit of a presentation and I can share it with you if you want. I'll have to um, share my screen. It's still deactivated, inactive. I uh, need to have the um, the um, participants' screen um, activated for that. Not yet possible. Not working. Something's afoot there. Now it's working, it seems. Share screen. So here we are. 
Spanish flu is the topic. What really happened? I have to say that uh, I don't see that a research uh, project now. I'm a um, auto-appointed journalist. It's a collection of indications. And if you want to have a scientific or legal um, um, approach to it, you can take that as a, um, a basis. I published this in 2005. Uh, back then, I started with um, the um, magazine Infreport, Vaccination Report, and uh, the book, um, The um, Epidemic um, Inventors. So you can see that's a um, picture from the time. Um, we know the masks here. Uh, we are familiar with this. No um, boarding without masks. And then this attitude of this lady on the right, wear a mask or go to jail. So we keep hearing that as well. So it's all uh, nothing new, what's happening now. Um, this is a um, sick room at the time. If you compare it to our uh, ICUs now, there's really something uh, happening back then. So why should we look at the Spanish flu in the first place? It is uh, reported to be um, the worst pandemic of modern times. It's um, used again and again as evidence uh, for the fact that viruses can always mutate, become terrible monsters. And we are reported to be uh, completely helpless against these monsters because they're invisible. And it's like um, the, the fear of demons in the Catholic Church. So um, the demons are um, our heritage from the Catholic Church. And the only way out is the pharmaceutical industry. That is the official line. That's the, that's the official statement in this context. Now, the official hypothesis on the Spanish flu is um, that it was a random mutation of an otherwise harmless influenza virus named A slash H1N1. But the question is, when did it happen? Where did it happen? How did it happen? And who started it? Who was the person who hosted uh, the virus that mutated and then sh um, expelled it uh, to the wider world? And how about global spread? Where did it start? And how was it transmitted? Because the uh, Spanish flu uh, was a global pandemic, um, uh, killing 20 to 100 million people. That's the official estimates. Now, there are different problems associated with it, uh, with this, that I can see with it. And the first one is that there are um, no typical symptoms, um, symptoms that aren't typical of a flu. I have original quotes here of um, doctors who thought about this, and I would like to read out a bit of it. Um, so you get an idea of what uh, the symptoms were. So you may, may feel a 
dull pain in your head, then the eyes start burning, you start uh, shivering, you go to bed and roll up, but no matter how many blankets you cover yourself with, nothing will keep you warm. You fall into an, a disquiet uh, sleep, um, you dream weird stuff while the fever keeps going up. And when you slip out of sleep into a kind of stupor, your muscles and headache, and you're vaguely, vaguely aware that as your body weakly struggles against it, you're going to step by step towards death. It may take a few days or a few hours, but nothing can stop the progression of the disease. Doctors and nurses have learned to interpret the symptoms. And they are, the color of the face turns brownish purple, you cough up blood and your feet turn black. In the final phase, you only gasp desperately for air and bloody saliva comes out of your mouth. You die or rather you drown because your lungs fill with reddish fluid. And the autopsy doctor finds that the lungs are heavy and wet in the chest cavity, soaked with a thin, bloody fluid and no longer usable. So, well, another quote before I um, proceed uh, to the source. At first, the disease looked like a normal flu, but as soon as the soldiers were in the military hospital, they developed the most vicious pneumonia I've ever experienced. Two hours after admission, mahogany-colored spots appear on their cheekbones and a few hours later the cyanosis slowly spreads. That's this uh, facial um, discoloring because of uh, lack of oxygen in the blood. Um, cyanosis slowly spreads from the ears of the entire face until you can hardly distinguish the colored person from a white person. Uh, now it is only a question of hours before death ensues. At the end, patients gasp for air and asphyxiate. It is horrible. You can um, suffer to watch one or two men, but here these poor devils are dying like flies. This is really getting at you. We have 100, 100 dead per day, and we keep this average. That's one of the reports. And uh, this source has been uh, very um, helpful. That's Gina Colata, a uh, medical journalist from the US. On the right hand side, you can see the original. On the left hand side, the German translation. And she's not a, a critic of the virus hypothesis, but she has numerous quotes and sources in her book that are contradictory. And that makes this book so interesting. So we have to be thankful to her uh, for uh, collecting these uh, sources. Another quote on this. When the disease was first diagnosed, doctors were reluctant to call it a flu. They thought they were dealing with a completely new condition. Some spoke of bronchial pneumonia, others of a plague-like respiratory disease. Some um, spoke of uh, bronchial pneumonia, others of a plague-like respiratory disease. Some doctors thought it was cholera or typhoid, dengue fever or botulism, others called it an undefined epidemic. Those who called it influenza put the term in inverted commas. 
Another quote again. When Dr. Welch had opened the chest, taken out and cut open the blue swollen lung, which remained firm only in a few places, he turned to us by saying, this must be some new infection, said Welch, some kind of plague. So those were the cases, particularly in the um, um, barracks in the US, uh, because in my research I focus on the US because I speak English, and because some newspapers um, back in 2005 had already digitized a large uh, share of their archives, so I was able to get back to old newspaper clips to uh, research what happened at the time, at least as reflected in the newspapers. And what's really behind this? These are the gruesome stories that we're hearing now. Maybe we make them that. I'll get back to it soon. The second problem that I can see is this diffuse simultaneity of um, the development. Uh, you can't see where it started. There are uh, scientific studies that assume uh, the disease to have started uh, from Europe spreading to the US. Other research finds the opposite uh, spread. And I found these uh, this set of statistics here, which shows the peak of the pandemic. <laughs> so the largest number of deaths uh, in New York, Paris, London, Berlin. And we can see that it's all within a 14-day frame, uh, a 14-day range. To uh, try to conclude where it started on the basis of this is difficult. And unfortunately, I still don't know. I tried to find out how long a ship took to cross the Atlantic from Europe to the US or the other way. Uh, at the time, but 14 days is really a very uh, narrow uh, time frame. And as you look further to the right, so that's the 25th of October, you can see. Um, yes, uh, can we you can, see my uh, we cursor? We can see your mouse. Okay, 25th of October, 8th of November. So if you look at the peaks, but if you go left, where it all starts rising, you can see it's not evident where it started and where it then may have spread either from the US to Europe or, or the other way around. Then um, this morning, I uh, found by coincidence with the 9th of November here, and on the 11th of November, 1918, the armistice um, was proclaimed. And there are uh, witnesses uh, from the times that in all those cities, particularly in Paris and London, the streets were full of people. Millions of people took to the streets uh, celebrating the armistice. Same in Berlin, numerous people in the streets but we can see on the graph, just like now, uh, we can see it with Corona. Then, this is more or less the 11th. Uh, so to the right of this uh, 
right um, white bar. There should be some peak subsequent to that. The graph should have reacted to that. If it were as contagious. If it was infectious, as was claimed. Another problem is the atypical age. We can see the dashed line here. That is the age distribution of influenza uh, mortality in the US between 1911 to 1917. From the left to the right, you can see the age groups. And we can see that the very young were particularly affected and the very old. But with the Spanish flu, we have a kink in the center, that's the 25 to 34 year olds, more or less. So the young adults, the strongest, were particularly hard affected, which speaks against a typical influenza epidemic. Right. I could observe a similar a curve in, um, from Arnsberg in Germany um, it was the 25 to 35 year olds who were particularly affected, not the very young, not the very old. There are probably other examples as well. That's only two uh, examples of untypical um, developments. This is a representation of 16 US barracks. Each column um, being one um, uh, barracks. Um, it starts with Shelby, then Sherman, etc. And the symptoms in all 16 barracks, you can see that the disease comes from nowhere, from nothing. And we uh, heard in the description earlier, earlier, people died within hours. And then the second line is uh, prostration. Nearly everybody suffered that, then fever, etc., etc. What I want to point out with that is the um, special affliction of um, U.S. military personnel in their um, barracks. Another typical uh, image of a sick room at the time. And then the uh, example with the uh, failed uh, infection um, experiments. Um, this has been mentioned already uh, in this uh, uh, committee before. It was an uh, experiment in Boston in the November of 1918. 62 healthy sailors who uh, were um, in jail uh, for official misconduct and they were um, promised um, pardon. And here's the quote. The Navy doctors collected the vis vicious secretion from the noses and throats of terminally ill men and spread it into the noses and throats of some test subjects and into the eyes of others. In one experiment, they scraped the mucus from a patient's nasal septum and then rubbed it directly on a test subject's nasal septum. In an attempt to simulate the processes that normally take place, 
when people contract influenza, that's really what these um, experiments were to simulate. <coughs> the doctors took 10 of this test, subject, uh, test subjects to the military hospital to expose them to flu-stricken soldiers. The sick lay curled up on their narrow beds with fever-hot faces, alternately slipping from sleep into delirium. The 10 healthy men were instructed to each approach a patient, bend over him, breathe in his foul-smelling breath, and chat with him for five minutes to ensure that the healthy person was also fully exposed to the disease the sick person had to exhale forcefully with a healthy person inhaling the sick person's breath. <coughs> That's a tough cookie, isn't it? Finally, the flu patient had to cough into the volunteer's face for five minutes. Each healthy pre uh, test person performed this procedure on 10 different flu patients whose onset of illness could no longer be uh, could uh, could be no longer than three days ago. This was to ensure that the virus or whatever had caused the flu was still in the secretions from the nose or lungs. But not a single healthy man became ill. So to everyone's surprise, <clears throat> well, no, nobody got sick and the source at the bottom. And this was repeated in San Francisco with 50 sailors and again, for everyone, to everyone's surprise, not a single test subject became ill. The scientists were baffled. If these healthy volunteers didn't get infected, even though the doctors did everything they could to make them sick, what triggered the illness? And then how did people get infected with the flu then? Was the question by Gina Colata quite rightly asked. And that's the big question. <coughs> and in the year after that, there were um, experiments done in Japan with up to 30 million people who got sick, according to the documentation at half. Many of them died. 170,000 died. And there were 52 doctors and nurses to volunteer but there it was done a bit differently they used uh, spit and blood from sick people and rubbed that into the nose and throat of healthy people and uh, injected it underneath the skin and parts and the consequence was that only those who hadn't yet got influenza got ill so the question is can that be used as a counter argument first question is the same epidemic in the first place and if it was a virus was it the same virus that would be one question that need to be clarified and then the immunity status how did they determine it and what was the criteria for the diagnosis? There is nothing exact there. There's a very short uh, scientific publication on this only with many, many question marks, at least question marks that I have on this. <clears throat> and now we move on to a very interesting area. Of course, 
This is military remote diagnostics. Of course, this unstirred the U.S. Army medicals, and the inspector uh, ordered four experienced doctors, and he, the four doctors were ordered to Washington to talk to the American medical inspector, Dr. William C. Goggers. And he, uh, who had conquered the yellow fever in Cuba, Gorgas called the mandatory's office and barely looking up from his desk as the illustrious team entered and said, travel to Fort Devons immediately. That is where an outbreak of the Spanish flu is. <clears throat> uh, he didn't say... In Fort Devons, there's a mass, a horrible sickness that has occurred with uh, unknown cruel, cruel symptoms. Go there, find out what's the cause. He says, Spanish flu. It, 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 there was an outbreak of Spanish flu there. Okay, let that sink in. So, he did remote diagnosis, obviously. Very, very strange. Didn't he get any information? Did he think this up himself, or did he just think this can't, something bad can only be Spanish flu? Well, we could discuss this. It's uh, unclear. The question is, why uh, does he behave in this funny way? And according to my opinion, he's a central figure in the so-called Spanish flu in the U.S., there were massive vaccine experiments with U.S. soldiers before that. Here in the Washington Post of 3rd of February 1918, there was an article quoting um, Dr. Gorgas, and he is... Um, he is um, <clears throat> he's argued here for mass experiments. Of course, there was uh, denial of this by the U.S. Army. But what I want to say here, there was a public discussion on experimental mass vaccination of U.S. soldiers. Another article from the Washington Post, 9th of April 20, 18, 9, 1918, a U.S. congressman uh, says that the um, anti-vaxxers um, are traitors because thousands say they say that thousands of U.S. soldiers died of the vaccination. Um, they uh, are accused of secretly associating with the German Kaiser. Well, that's the same thing that we have today. It's incredible, incredible parallels. Uh, parallels. <clears throat> Another article from Vacation Science Monitor, 23rd of December 1918. Influenza uh, uh, vaccination experiments with soldiers and the uh, consequences of the vaccination are classified as typhoid so that surprises us we are talking about 1918 what vaccinations did they have well 
and how many? There are reports of up to 20 different vaccinations that some of the soldiers had to take. And then another source reports up to 25 injections that the soldiers got. Or one officer, one, one source reports that some of the soldiers got up to six vaccinations in a single day, injections in a single day. So what was that? What was available? Um, no, uh, it's not conclusive here. Smallpox, cholera, rabbi, rabbi, diphtheria, pest, typhus, tetanus. Typhus in, uh, is, becomes a mandatory U.S. vaccination in the U.S. Army in 1911. Meningitis, serum, probably a passive vaccination, but serum and vaccine. There was not a clear differentiation in the newspaper reports at the time, active and passive. And uh, whooping cough, pneumonia, tetanus, meningitis, diphtheria, five-day fever, and then there was a meningitis vaccination study in the environment of army camps to find out whether there was a hypothetical contamination or spread of diseases from the barracks to the civil environment and whether that could be stopped. And then again, 1918, the Spanish flu influenza to stop that and Spanish flu uh, from the sample, the specimens, they tried to make vaccines from it and uh, lots of vaccine um, experimentation had been gone on, similar like Corona, incredible for the time. <clears throat> Here we have a list of vaccines from nine, 1911 um what vaccines does a vaccine center have <clears throat> 39 different products 1911 so uh, that was really rocking it at the time and this is nobody is aware of this i wasn't aware of this well wow another problem which china colata had mentioned as well and she refers to other experts. Actually, the military doctors at the time who were there, they were immediately affected. And it's a riddle until today, as they hardly published about it. So, and it's puzzling because everybody who wants to get anywhere in their area of work and f discover things and have new findings, they're going to publish it normally. That's good for career reasons. And of course, military doctors are often bound to instructions. And their top boss was who? It was Mr. Gorgas, whom we've heard of before. So if I carry on researching, I would look into things like what this Gorgas had to do with David Rockefeller, for example. That's a key figure. 
And the silence also affects normal doctors, not military doctors only, and the media as well. And that takes us to someone who was very influential at the time already, Mr. John D. Rockefeller, who has actually established what we call um, school medicine today in a way which wasn't around before. I think that also coincides with the establishment of the FDA, I think 1913. Yes, there is a temporal correlation here. His foundation and the Carnegie Foundation, I think, uh, awarded $500 million uh, for medical schools at the time that voted into pharmacy instead of natural medicine. And that had a massive impact at the time, influencing the development. Because at that time, natural medicine in Europe and in the US was <clears throat> moving, was advancing strongly. And it would have been, it was successful over centuries. Um, what they had at the time, there was nothing else than natural medicine, or rather than traditional recipe. There were the uh, Quakers before who mixed up things and sold something to the people. And that's what I wanted to say. His, his father, with a wrong doctor, um, uh, said that he he could do it. Well, I don't know the details, and I I only know that he was in. I know what the Wikipedia entries are. He was called Doctor Livingstone, and he sold snake oil uh, against cancer at the time. Well, you should think of this. Um, we had the uh, we've had the the. Uh, Quakers at the time, and they used um, they used mercury, and that that uh, causes a stress reaction in the body, and uh, it that takes away the symptoms, but only to come back worse. And so, wh where does that take us? Well, it takes us. <clears throat> to an experience report from Elora McBean, who passed through this as a child. And she writes, the disease had the characteristics of the PESC in addition to typhoid, typhoid, diphtheria, pneumonia, smallpox, and all the other diseases that these people have been vaccinated against right after First World War. Virtually the entire population had been given a dozen or more diseases for soldiers in the front line, but everybody else as well, they have been fully poisoned with uh, poisonous vaccine serums. And this was a tragedy to spread all these doctor-made diseases at one time. The pandemic dragged on for two years, kept alive by the 
uh, administration of more toxic drugs, which doctors tried to suppress the symptoms waves. But as far as I could find out, only those who were vaccinated fell ill. Those who refused the injections escaped the flu. My family had refused all vaccinations, so we stayed well all the time. At the peak of the epidemic, of the epidemic, uh, schools and even hospitals were closed, and the doctors and nurses had been vaccinated and were hit by the influence. Nobody was on the streets. It was like a ghost town. And those who, who uh, we, who didn't get the vaccination, seemed to be the only family who didn't get it. So my parents went from house to house to take care of the sick as good as they could, because at the time it was impossible to get a doctor. I'm just through just going, coming to the summary, if microbes, that's what she says, bacteria, viruses, or bacilli can cause sickness, then they've had more than enough opportunities to attack my parents as they spent many hours per day in the rooms with the sick, but they didn't get the flu, they didn't bring the microbes back home that would attack us as children or cause anything, anything else. No one from our family had the flu, not even a simple sniffle, and it was the winter, and it was in deep snow. So while the orthodox doctors had tw 33 of their flu patients who died, the natural hospitals, or hospitals with natural medicine, achieved curing rates of almost 100%. That's something. Can you, can you go back? I need to see these figures again. So, 33 versus 100 nearly. Incredible. So, let me uh, proceed to the summary. Well, the fact is there was a uh, public debate uh, in 1918 uh, due to uh, numerous vaccination experiments, especially on soldiers. Army and politics had a motive to cover up the bad consequences of the vaccination campaign, so the motive um, is there. The course of the pandemic um, is not understandable, how it started, how it spread. So. The index patient, the index country where it once started, nobody knows, there's only speculation. The infectious disease attempts failed spectacularly, one has to say. There's virtually no reappraisal uh, of the Spanish flu in special publications. <clears throat> that is something in itself. The symptoms are not typical uh, symptoms of influenza, even uh, severe influenza, but they are those of a severe case of poisoning, at least in the outbreaks described. <coughs> then we uh, are dealing with the original sin of, I won't say of school medicine, but of Rockefeller medicine. 
a Rockefeller medicine, uh, a medic, um, a physician will not perform a differential diagnosis. There are different co potential causes for cold symptoms, such as a lack of uh, nutrition, all sorts of stress, physical, psychological stress. Yes, and in, including poisoning, isn't and it? And poisoning, yes. But that's really what Wolfgang Wodorf, uh, with refer reference to the current pandemic, says again and again. If you only look for this one sickness, you'll only get it. Differential diagnosis. This is like a blueprint. What you've been putting forward is like a blueprint for what we're seeing now. And if it is true that Bill Gates is trying to follow Rockefeller, well, then uh, we have a possible explanation, which I think is very convincing. My view exactly. <clears throat> uh, well, the evidence for a virus as the cause and a mutation of a virus, um, um, there's no any uh, no evidence for this to this day. I can see clear evidence uh, for a cover-up of uh, severest vaccination damage. Well, can we say this would also applies for the other things? This EHEC, that was something that was apparently on some soya beans? Well, my approach is this. I always look at the very, very, very first reports um, by the um, press agencies, uh, by the press, and how did it start? It started with a patient in a um, hospital in Hamburg. And the question first is, if there are people um, with um, diarrhea, um, and there is a, a large number, then how come anybody comes up with the notion of uh, performing a PCR test for um, EHEC? And I found in Hamburg they have the Bernhard Nocht Institute. <laughs> That's telling. And they um, do this kind of research with these uh, modified um, intestinal bacteria, Escherichia coli. And at least one of them uh, doctors in the clinic where you had these first cases participated in this study. Now we have an automatic uh, sequence. What what studies were these? Bernard Institute, they were working on genetically modified Escherichia coli uh, bacteria. So, what we uh, found with the bird flu, that the outbreaks happened near such labs. In Wuhan, it's the same thing. You have the outbreaks in uh, near such labs, and that is quite striking. One hypothesis might be, one possibility might be that some genetically modified um, pathogens uh, leaked out, but I just think that there's a lot of testing um, near such labs. So they go out, get some um, samples, and um, if you look long enough, you'll find something. With the PCR test, you always find something. 
Then, just before EHEC, that was in May 2011, there was a strong increase of temperature from 10 to, tw uh, to um, 10, 25 uh, degrees, and a lot of people don't uh, can't take that. Um, if you have a excessive increase of temperatures, then um, they're, of course, in, in the hospitals with sunstroke or whatever. And then some um, doctor comes up with a notion of uh, testing for uh, something that is good for a publication, and then you have to report it. So the clinic, once it was tested for EHEC, it had to report it to the RKI. And the next day, RKI sent a team to Hamburg. And the day after, the first um, press um, reports came out. That was an incredible speed. So what what could have been behind this this EHEC? Could there be any? Uh, there was this was on the uh, was it cucumbers or was it soya beans or what was it? Um, what was vegetables? Yeah, it was um, vegetables, fruit. Just think about it. Somebody, somewhere, for some reason, has the notion of performing an exotic PCR <clears throat> test. Then this has to be reported. Either he has to report it himself, or the lab has to report it, or they do voluntarily. And that's the start. The whole mechanism is set in motion, uh, because uh, it's reportable. If the RKI, then of course, because they don't want to make a mistake, and there's uh, huge uh, political uh, attention and media attention on them, and they don't want to make a mistake, uh, they don't want to be accused of having neglected something. So they'd rather ring the alarm once uh, to money than not enough, yeah. That was in 2011. So who was... I, I remember that Drosten worked at the Bernard Nocht Institute as well, but not at that time. Or was he still there? No, I don't think so. But I'm not 100% sure now. Okay. Well, at least you have... Uh, well... Well, the scaremongering <clears throat> with the arguments there was once this horrible Spanish flu that is at least unnecessary, maybe even criminal. Yeah, but now they've really found out how it works. They came up with swine flu that worked well with the panic. And what we have now is unthinkable without the panic. Well, if Paul Schreier is right with his research, in 1999, the first um, scenarios were uh, performed, then this is not by coincidence. Of course not. And that uh, correlates with what we've heard from Jim Bush, who has told us one-to-one -one what we have here, taking the example of, I think, 2001, briefly before 9-11, where they had a scenario called Dark Winter. That all matches, it all fits in the hints become closer. Uh, of course, it's not foolproof, but the fact that in the Spanish flu, there was never any real scientific research carried out by the approved scientific institutions. It was only covering up all the time. 
that at the time, which, which most of us wouldn't think, there were vaccination campaigns and at, at uh, unbelievable ways, <coughs> although in the US they put multiple vaccinations in the children already now as well, uh, that, that was done at the time already. If I understand this in the overall view, what we saw now, what we see now, what we saw as swine flu, what we see with Spanish flu, it looks like the same pattern. And the only question is, if at the time they had a specific intention, as we can see now, which is to destroy economy and reduce the population, or whether they just played out some experiments to see what they can do with the vaccinations. I would assume that reduction, reducing the population played a role at the time, but that is an assumption. I'm not sure. Couldn't be sure. The question is, to what extent is it relevant? What's important is to know that truth, uh, to be able to distinguish between truth and lie and manipulation to make your own decision. That's the important thing to start with. And uh, a legal uh, follow-up uh, with legal consequences, well, I'm happy not to be involved in that. Well, this is what Catherine Austin Fitz just has correctly told us. We can only start doing that when the public has been presented all this facts in a comprehensible way. Some things are made easier, as tragic as it is, uh, it is made easier by the fact that the body count is growing, that the death rate it cannot be swept under the rug anymore, and all other consequences cannot be swept under the rug anymore. And that opens the eyes, that's an eye-opener, and maybe leading to question, and maybe leading the people to the point where we are already now, with what Kerstin Austin Fritz and what you have told us, but that's important to make the right decisions, and the right decisions are not to think whether in some mainstream media now the somewhat critical, I don't want to mention main uh, names, who want to get uh, cover the split between mainstream and what they really know, that's that's wrong to think about that and to wonder whether this is uh, gross or, or, or slight uh, negligence of the politics. Now the step is to f see that this is about life or death and that our government is not, as Catherine Austin Fitz told us, it's our government. These are puppets on strings for people who want to play out their goals. Uh, Franz, Hans, uh, that was great. Uh, especially um, adding to what Korsner and Gebrecher and Klaus Kuhlein have told us, that really rounds things off. Uh, it's a good overview of the Spanish flu, which apparently just was a vaccination scandal and had nothing to do with the vaccination, especially that report from 77, which you reported. A whole family that wasn't vaccinated and that didn't have anything uh, indicates this that here really these were experiments that went wrong or really did what they were intended to do which is damaging the population maybe it was just an exercise that is pure speculation hans so far so good yes well i'd like to thank you 
for your stamina. It's unbelievable what you're doing there. And that you uh, know no taboos. And I think that's very brave. Look at all the evidence. I always said you have to know, every, know everything. You have to look at the hard truth. Otherwise, you'll take the wrong decision. Hans, again, thank you very much for joining us. We're a bit behind our timetable, and uh, anyway, it's interesting, so we move on. And let's hear if Dr. Chetty is still there. Hans, if that's okay with you. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice weekend to yourselves. Thank you. Rainer, you had, uh, you mentioned a little video. Yeah. Rainer, you announced the video. <coughs> well, we should uh, show it now if uh, we can... Uh, do that now, we can get it organized. Um, that's the um, video on the Spanish flu. All right, right, here, here it comes. The fact that we are controlled by evil psychopaths, we know that, what has changed? Nothing changed. The fact that people comply, that's a cause for concern. And you know why? Because these are the people who are going to go after you at some point. Not the government. The Nazis said we're not going to do another Holocaust the same way. We're going to do another Holocaust. We are in a Holocaust. But not the same way that it was brutal and forced. You're going to voluntarily go into the gas chamber. Like you see these long lines in Tel Aviv, people are just waiting in line. 5,000 people are waiting in line to get vaccinated. They're not even forced, there's no dogs, there's no, no SS officers. So the Nazis became more... Okay, so this, is not, this was not about the Spanish flu, um, but it gives you an insight into what other people think about what's going on right now. Uh, pretty outspoken. Uh, Dr. Shankara Chetty, I'm sorry to have kept you waiting for so long. Uh, I hope that much of the stuff that you may have heard when we interviewed Catherine Austin Fitz was, interest, uh, Fitz was interesting, but I'm really glad that you're still with us. How are you nah, doing today? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, no, it's, it's fine. Yeah, absolutely fine. It was enjoyable to, to actually listen to what he was saying. I don't understand German very well, but... Uh, <laughs> I got the gist of what was there. Yeah, he's, the uh, gist of what he said is that uh, it's very funny that the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu, uh, that nobody uh, from the, um, from the uh, scientific establishment ever took a closer look at the Spanish flu. So all he has, to, all, he has all the facts that he has, that he can work with, is from other investigative journalists and from other sources. But it turns out, and this is the gist of the matter, nothing, uh, nothing points in the direction of a flu. This, this was probably not a flu. But on the other hand, everything points in the direction of massive um, vaccine experiments that were conducted back then, which most of the general public isn't even aware of. There's more to it, but that's probably the gist of his story. This is... It looks as though this is a precursor of what we're seeing today. 
Yeah, surely. It, 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 it looks very much like that. I think we, we're heading into a pandemic of vaccine side effects and problems. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we've got, we got a tough road ahead, Rana. Yeah. Let's, um, I'm, I'm, let me quickly introduce you. You're a general practitioner with a natural science background in, um, whoops, can't read this, genetics, advanced biology, microbiology, and biochemistry. Um, you have um, treated over 7,000 COVID patients with on-label uh, use uh, uh, drugs. No one died and pretty much everyone was saved. Is that, is that about it or um, did uh, I get something wrong? Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct, Rana. I've, I've, I've been through now uh, quite a bit more than 7,000. Uh, those are patients uh -huh. that I have physically examined myself. Uh, mm -hmm. I, don't do I didn't do telephone consults with them. I've excluded those from the numbers. I've been treating patients around the world, but that figure is actually the patients that I physically examined myself. And uh, look, uh, people think that when you do outpatient treatment, you're seeing only the milder cases. I've seen some critically ill patients and uh, all of them, uh, besides the lack of hospitalizations and deaths in my practice, I've negated the need for oxygen as well. So I don't have oxygen in my practice. I've never found the need for it. Uh, so yeah, some uh, amazing statistics, but I think uh, if you follow the science, you can achieve the same results. You think of, of you know, other in other countries where people um, didn't didn't get treated, or like maybe also in your country, like didn't get treated the same way, and then then died or had like serious side effects. You know, so that's that's really amazing. So, what is it you um, you think? Uh, um, here, I see that you had the information that there's like on day eight there can be like some allergic or autoimmune complication that yes. causes a lot of problems uh, i'll explain that to you uh, <clears throat> look when we when we started with the pandemic itself i uh, before before we got the first case in south africa i started to look at the information that was coming through around the world to try and figure out how i'm going to deal with this once i get the first patient in the door and i felt it uh, nonsensical to isolate to not examine patients to not understand the progression of the illness because I think that's what's important to keep patients out of hospital. We know that we must treat early. Don't allow the patients to deteriorate in any illness. And so uh, I took the opportunity when it started in South Africa to examine every patient. I moved out of my home, I isolated myself, I put a tent out in my parking lot so that I have the uh, ventilation and sunlight. And I wanted to examine every patient. I wanted to understand why patients were getting to hospital so critically ill. What was leading up to that, uh, to that uh, scenario? We knew in hospitals there were blood clots, there was the cytokine storm, uh, patients were breathless, uh, requiring ventilation and oxygen. Uh, but those were all hospital perspectives. There were no perspectives on patients presenting on an outpatient basis from the onset of the illness to the point where they got to hospital. So I wanted to fill that gap. I felt that that was the bit of information that was missing from the pandemic itself. And I think that's what brought me to a realization. 
I, I inquired on every patient's symptoms, the onset of the illness. I knew that breathlessness was a problem, so I, I, I explained to every patient that if they start to notice that symptom, they must present back immediately so that I could examine them and, and figure out the clinical picture that we were seeing uh, with this breathlessness. And something very strange happened. Uh, all the patients that I treated with COVID had a flu-like initial illness, and it didn't seem any different from an average viral flu. Now, there's a lot of known information out there. Uh, so I, I knew what a respiratory virus does. I knew how to protect myself from it. I understood the, the course of that illness and what I'd expected a standard respiratory virus to do. And a majority of patients had this kind of illness. Yes, we had loss of smell and taste and a few minor symptoms that seemed different for coronavirus, but uh, everything else was the same. And in all the patients that I saw, I noticed by the fifth or sixth day of illness, they showed signs of recovery. They got their appetites back, the fever had broke, they started to feel better. But there was a subset of patients who developed breathlessness, who came back to me feeling breathless. And they presented back on the day the breathlessness started because I had educated them prior to present back timelessly. And when I looked at that breathlessness, there were a few very unusual things. The first thing I noticed was that every patient that developed breathlessness in the first wave developed that breathlessness exactly a week after their first symptom. So if a person started noticing that they're feeling unwell on a Monday, during that week, they would have the viral illness. By the end of the week, they had improved. A lot of patients had completely recovered, completely. We're engaging in sport, we're back to their usual lives. And exactly a week later, on the Monday, got up feeling fatigued. By lunchtime, we're breathless. And by the evening, we're showing signs of saturation dropping. So it was very strange that on the eighth day, you were having patients with breathlessness who on the day before were perfectly fine. So I knew from that point on that I'm dealing with a biphasic illness, something that has two completely different uh, pathogenicities. So I started looking at the second part. Why was there the subset of patients who came back on the eighth day breathless? Uh, it wasn't everyone. A lot of patients recovered and had absolutely no sequelae. Now, when I looked at this group of patients, there were a few things. From the group itself, it didn't seem to have a predisposition to comorbidity. Yes, I was seeing patients slightly older that were presenting with breathlessness, but I've had patients with severe comorbidities and age that presented with this and recovered relatively quickly. I've had patients who were in their 50s, uh, absolutely healthy, no comorbidities, and presented on the eighth day with very severe illness. So I couldn't see a pattern related to comorbidity there. And then on examination of these patients, it was unusual. Now, I've examined patients with uh, viral pneumonias before. Uh, a viral pneumonia, just to get the, the, the ground set, a viral pneumonia is a progressive illness. It starts with an upper respiratory infection, spreads into a bronchitis, progresses into a pneumonia, and that's where the breathlessness sets in. So you can almost see the progression on a daily basis to that pneumonia. 
However, with these patients, they were perfectly fine the day before. So there wasn't that typical progression you'd see with a viral pneumonia. The second thing I noticed with viral pneumonias, patients are acutely ill. They have high fevers. You can see that the patient is acutely ill. Whereas with these patients, they were breathless, they were fatigued, but they weren't acutely ill. If you took a step back and examined that patient from afar, you would think that patient's perfectly fine. So it wasn't the usual typical presentation of a pneumonia. The third thing I noticed was on examination and clinical examination, these patients had no restriction to airflow. So air was entering and leaving their lungs unrestricted, unlike a pneumonia where there's restriction to flow. And of course, uh, these patients were breathless, but the only symptom they had with breathing was that they couldn't take a deep breath. The breathing was rapid and shallow, but there was no restriction to airflow. So they were panting. So I looked at that and I thought, well, this is definitely not a pneumonia that I'm dealing with because uh, these patients are presenting with something very, very different. Now, from the spread of the cases that I was seeing, uh, there was no uh, link to comorbidity. So whether you were diabetic or hypertensive or a cardiac patient, didn't seem to play any role in the severity of the illness that started on the eighth day. Now, I must uh, stress, I divide this into two illnesses, one on the first seven days, which is the viral phase of illness, and the second part to this, which is the hypersensitivity-triggered inflammatory phase, which starts on the eighth day and promptly. So uh, in the second phase of illness, I had to figure out what the pathology was. What was causing these patients to deteriorate, devoid of any link to comorbidity? Now, some patients on the eighth day had mild symptoms, which upon treatment subsided very easily. Others had more moderate illness starting on the eighth day, and that seemed to be prolonged. And uh, the last subset were those that had very severe illness, and that progressed to ventilation sometimes very quickly, within a day or two. Now, looking at pathology and what pathology actually would fit that kind of uh, uh, picture, the only thing that made sense to me was an allergic reaction to an allergen triggered on the eighth day. So a type one kind of hypersensitivity reaction that for some reason gets triggered on the eighth day of the illness itself. So I looked at it and tried to treat using that, that modality. Now, as a doctor, every patient that comes to see me is put through a clinical trial. We come to a diagnosis, but we're never sure. We put the patient on medication and the speed to recovery uh, is what uh, justifies your diagnosis. If the patient recovers timelessly, then your, your diagnosis is likely to be correct. If the patient doesn't improve timelessly, then you've got to relook at your diagnosis and adjust, do the necessary tests. So speed to recovery was always uh, the most important parameter for me to determine what was going on. Now, early on in the illness, uh, the world was using steroids. We knew that this is a steroid responsive illness. We are aware of the uh, problems with using steroids too early and especially in an infection. It can suppress your immunity and cause the infection to go uncontrolled. So there is a particular point at which steroids become vital. And I needed to make that uh, determination. 
now seeing patients present back uh, on the eighth day with this uh, sudden onset of breathlessness, it gave a point in time to initiate steroids. And so with the first few patients, I initiated steroids. And it took uh, three days, three to four days for patients to show signs of good recovery. And the first four or five patients within a week had all recovered. Uh, these were the patients that presented back on the eighth day. Uh, from looking at that, I knew the time to recover, the speed. It was two to three days on a dose of steroid. So uh, understanding that this is type 1 hypersensitivity, I decided to treat as such. And so the next patient that came in was a 40-year-old female, diabetic and hypertensive and obese. And she presented to me on the eighth day with a saturation of 80%, very breathless. Uh, she was perfectly fine the day before, had a history of having a flu exactly that started exactly a week later. So again, a very typical presentation of a sudden deterioration on the eighth day. So with this patient, I, I understood that the steroids are going to take two or three days to get her to feel better. But if it was a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction, then I thought the addition of an antihistamine would clarify that by giving me a quicker speed to recovery. And so I put her on a kidney's dose of promethazine, which is a first-generation antihistamine, an essential drug, an emergency medication that's sanctioned by the World Health Organization and should be in every doctor's emergency kit. So I gave her a kidney's dose of this medication and asked my staff to phone her the next day and check on her improvement. And I did this with every patient, uh, kept in touch with them to plot the, the recovery. And the very next day, she was perfectly fine. Her saturations wow. had improved to 100%. But I had just given her one day's worth of medication. And when you treat an allergic reaction, it's got to be suppressed till your mast cells actually calm down. If you withdraw treatment too quickly, you'll have a rebound. And that's what I expected with her. So I asked my staff to inform her that if the breathlessness comes back, she needs to report back immediately. And uh, the following day, the breathlessness resurfaced. She came back to see me. She was started on a full course of antihistamine and she promptly recovered. And that drew my attention to the fact that I'm dealing with a type one hypersensitivity reaction. Now, when you have a type one hypersensitivity reaction, this is old science. Uh, we all have seen people having anaphylactic kind of reactions and we know clearly what needs to get done with that. So that is how my protocol of treatment evolved. Uh, from that patient, I was under the impression that we are not dealing with a COVID pneumonia. We are rather dealing with an allergen instigated hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Now, if you look at those two conditions, COVID pneumonia versus hypersensitivity pneumonitis, the presentation of hypersensitivity pneumonitis is a sudden quick onset of breathlessness without the other symptoms of a, of a pneumonia. So the patient's not acutely ill. It is due to the exposure to an allergen which triggers the severe allergic reaction in your lung, a sudden severe allergic reaction. And that leads to the sudden onset of breathlessness. Now on high definition CT and on X-ray, which is the standard of uh, looking at pneumonia, uh, these two conditions cannot be told apart. Uh, if you do a, a high-definition CT or an X-ray on uh, these two patients, they look identical. You get the ground glass appearance, you get all the same markers. So you cannot tell them apart solely by X-ray or CT. 
So I've been under the impression from the start of this pandemic that the globe has misdiagnosed this illness as a COVID pneumonia. It is, uh, it is more likely to be a hypersensitivity pneumonitis from the uh, speed to recovery of my therapeutic clinical trial. Now, looking at the mediators released when you have an, uh, an allergic reaction, the four main mediators that get released in any uh, allergic reaction are histamines, leukotrienes, prostaglandins, and platelet-activating factor. So my protocol of treatment followed that very early on. To the antihistamines, I added Montelukast to deal with the leukotrienes. I added platelet activating, for platelet activating factor, I added an anticoagulant. Uh, it was aspirin or clopidogrel added to those who are already on aspirin. Uh, so the anticoagulation was well documented and I needed to address that. And so from the very start with using this modality of treatment, I saw great results. Uh, the dose of steroid, if you're treating a pneumonia, you've got to be very cautious. However, if you're treating a hypersensitivity pneumonitis, the high dose of the steroid is vitally important. You have to turn the reaction around before it spirals out of control. So uh, in the first wave itself, uh, with all the patients that I'd seen, I had improvement in oxygen saturations or improvements in hypoxia within a day. It was actually within hours that I saw patients' oxygen levels returning. So I knew from that point that I'm dealing with a hypersensitivity pneumonitis triggered by an allergen. This was too sudden an onset of the second phase to be anything else. There was no progression. And if not treated on the eighth day, it relatively quickly would spiral out of control. So what we were seeing were people on the eighth day that were allergic to this allergen, having a hypersensitivity reaction. That reaction could be either mild, moderate, or severe, like any allergic reaction. And it's, dependence on, it's dependent on your genetic predisposition to allergy rather than any comorbidity. Now, those that had mild symptoms on the eighth day, like a bee sting, they had transient irritation in their lung, and that would resolve reasonably spontaneously. And that's what we saw. Some patients recovered relatively quickly on treatment. Uh, the second subset would be those that would have moderate reactions, like a bee sting that caused a rash throughout your body. And if you left that to be uh, settled on its own, it might take a very long while for your body to rectify that. And that was what we saw as long COVID. Long COVID, in my opinion, is just a moderate allergic reaction triggered on the eighth day that has been inappropriately treated and left unchecked for too long. And so it spirals out of control. The third subset are those that are severely allergic to this allergen and would have a severe reaction. That would spiral very quickly and would result in uh, severe edema and inflammation in your lungs. And if unchecked, would uh, result in a cytokine storm that would put you on a ventilator relatively quickly. So the modality of treatment followed that uh, perspective. Uh, every patient that came in was educated about their respective eighth day and what to look out for. So I think the education is vital early on. Uh, every patient that came in on the eighth day was assumed to be having this kind of reaction and started on a quick, aggressive treatment. Uh, the dose of steroid in the first wave had to be titrated up. 
I came to an average dose of about 80 milligrams of prednisone as the minimum effective dose. Anything below that didn't seem to work. And so in the first wave, I had no deaths, I had no hospitalizations, and I hadn't found the need to get oxygen into my practice for breathless patients, because everyone seemed to, no matter how severe the presentation, recover by the next day. Quick speed to recovery. When we got into the second wave, I had now the opportunity to examine long COVID patients from the first wave, uh, not treated with my modality. Uh, in the treatment that I did in the first wave, I had not a single patient develop long COVID. Neither did I have a patient develop any complications of COVID. So I think if you catch this early and treat appropriately, uh, you don't get the sequelae. When I treated patients with long COVID, <clears throat> uh, approaching the second wave, I took the opportunity to do certain biomarkers. To prove my theory of uh, type 1 hypersensitivity, I needed to either show on the eighth day the release of histamine or tryptase, these are the common markers, or an elevated level of immunoglobulin E, which is uh, the immunoglobulin that is involved in allergic reactions to allergens itself. However, tryptase was an expensive test to do. Histamine required a 24-hour urine sample to be collected. And of course, while that sample was being collected, I had to defer treatment. And if I deferred treatment, that could be uh, dangerous to the patient because the, uh, the progression could be very rapid in this illness. So I couldn't do those tests to prove the eighth day. However, with the with the long COVID cases, I knew that they were exposed to the allergen for long enough and to have been given sufficient time to have elevated IgE levels. And so I tested them. And every single one of them had elevated IgE levels, elevated to the point where the normal values ranged up to 100. I've had patients come to me with long COVID with values in the 5,000s. And I use that as a marker of severity and of course a marker for recovery. Those patients with long COVID were treated in very much the same way as a mast cell degranulation or a mast cell activation syndrome that seemed to be self-perpetuating. And so they were put onto a dose of steroid, antihistamines, montelukast, anticoagulant, uh, and uh, all of them within the first three to four days, irrespective of how long they were suffering with long COVID, showed signs of good recovery. However, when you treat long COVID because of the length of the injury, some things uh, there, there will be some irreparable damage because of it. And so with long COVID cases, we do get good recoveries, but we do see some sequelae that need to be addressed. And those are simply because of injuries, because of the deferment of treatment. When we got into the second wave, we had the notorious South African variant. And so I took the opportunity to understand that. Uh, the eighth day remained exactly the same. Uh, patients that deteriorated started that deterioration on the eighth day. The first seven days was exactly the same. We had patients who had a sore throat for a day, recovered, spent the rest of the week perfectly fine. And on that fateful eighth day, suddenly noticed new symptoms and started to deteriorate. Uh, however, in the second wave, there were a few nuances. I was seeing a lot more gastrointestinal symptoms, runny tummies, cramping, nausea, vomiting. I was also seeing that on the eighth day, it was no more breathlessness that presented as the symptom of the onset that heralded the onset of the second phase. Uh, it was more re-emergence of diarrhea. And of course, we saw fatigue. 
patients would come back on the eighth day with this overwhelming sense of fatigue, where the previous day, again, they were perfectly fine. So the education changed a little to, uh, to uh, enlighten patients that fatigue is now the, uh, the presenting symptom on the eighth day. And if they notice that, they must come back immediately. Uh, in the second wave, we had a lot more, uh, it was a far more severe variant. But on, uh, from examining the mutations that uh, made the South African variant, the mutation only caused a change in the spike protein. And so uh, I looked at the presentation. We were dealing now with a far more contagious variant, which ties in with the change of spike protein. We were dealing with uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, which again ties in with the change of spike protein and increased affinity for ACE receptors in the gut rather than the lung. And of course, on the eighth day, I was dealing with a far more severe hypersensitivity reaction. And so that clarified that the allergen triggering this process was actually spike protein. After all, it was the only thing that changed on this variant and it caused the, those three symptoms to actually change. Now, I've always had one eye on spike protein as the culprit for this uh, trigger. Uh, spike protein is what gives a virus its affinity for a particular host. Now, as we were initially told, we have a bad coronavirus that had jump species to a human being. And that would be the result of a change in its spike protein. And of course, uh, we've been uh, exposed to coronaviruses through history. And it's the first time I've seen this kind of presentation, an allergic kind of presentation. And so usually when you are exposed to new environments, there's a risk that you will be allergic to something, seeing that it is, your, seeing that it is a new exposure or an unusual exposure. And so spike protein was always at the back of my head as the culprit triggering this allergic reaction. And in the second wave, when we noticed the increase in severity of the hypersensitivity triggered on day eight, it brought to the fore that spike protein was actually the culprit. Uh, in the second wave, the treatment modality remained exactly the same. We treated the first phase of the illness as an ordinary viral illness. Patients were treated symptomatically. The aim of early treatment was to get the patient to the eighth day, having completely recovered from the first phase of the illness. So symptomatic treatment for a majority. Uh, in both waves, those that presented with signs of high viral loads, severe body aches and pains, spiking temperatures, looking acutely ill. To those patients, I added uh, plasmaquine, uh, subset from hydroxychloroquine, just to as an antiviral, and it worked well. I had those patients out of that illness within two or three days of initiating that treatment. But that was kept, that was reserved for a few patients that seemed to have high viral loads. The rest were treated very symptomatically and in anticipation of what might transpire on the eighth day. So the, the treatment modality through the four waves that we are going through now has not changed. Uh, every patient uh, is taught about the eighth day. Every patient is meant to, is, is to understand the severity of symptoms. Uh, the presentation on that day and the importance of timeliest presentation back if that occurs. After all, with an allergic reaction, quick, aggressive, timely intervention is the most vital thing. And so if a patient understands when the deterioration is bound to occur, if it does, they can present back timeously. Uh, in the third wave of the, of the uh, 
uh, illness with the Delta wave, we saw exactly the same. Uh, with the changes in variant, we found slight changes in the initial presentation, changes in the severity of the hypersensitivity reaction triggered on the eighth day, and of course, changes in the symptoms that heralded the onset of that hypersensitivity. But the timeline remained consistent throughout, irrespective of which variant I was dealing with. Viruses tend to have a very set pattern when they infect a human body in their replication cycle, unlike bacteria. Bacteria can grow indefinitely. Viruses run through so many cycles over a period of so many days, and then they eventually are self-limited by an immune response. Like measles or chickenpox, there is an evolution to the illness from a fever to start with through a rash with that blisters, through crops, and to an eventual recovery. And that chickenpox illness has a finite time and can be plotted. So you can plot the symptoms as they evolve through the illness. And that was my aim, to plot how this virus actually infected the human body and led to the mortality and morbidity we see. So could I, I, could I ask you a question? Like, um, yes. so if you have, because the coronavirus has been around for ever, I mean, like the normal, or like at least that's what we hear, like the normal or other types of the coronavirus. And have you ever noticed such a pattern before, like that on the eighth day, like, or with an influenza situation that some, some people can get these infect allergic reactions And is is this uh, you know is this the first time you see this or is this also possible with other viruses? Uh, it is the first time that I've noticed that trend. Mm -hmm. uh, other viruses, if they infect, they tend to be self-limiting. Those that have comorbidities tend to get more severe infections, and those infections progress to a pneumonia. Uh, I've never seen a patient completely recover with the other respiratory viruses and then suddenly on the eighth day take a turn for the worse, even after considering to be fully recovered. And that's what drew my attention to this being a separate pathology starting on the eighth day itself. Uh, but I've never seen that before. In fact, uh, there's, uh, there's a few other things that uh, I think were very telling Uh, in the first wave, when I realized that I'm dealing with a hypersensitivity reaction, uh, hypersensitivity reactions are very typical. You have to have a genetic predisposition to a hypersensitivity reaction. So it tends to run in families. Like a dad that's allergic to penicillin, his son would probably be allergic to penicillin also. And that's what I was seeing in the community. I was seeing father and sons that were severely affected, but mums that tested positive and had no second part to this. They never had a reaction. Uh, I've had uh, mums get acutely ill and recover by the sixth day. And fathers and sons have a transient sore throat and suddenly on the eighth day presented with new symptoms and ended up critically ill. So I could clearly see the genetic predisposition there. And of course, there wasn't this uh, correlation with comorbidity that you would expect in a pneumonia or a worsening illness. This was something new. And in the first wave, uh, we were, it was reported around the globe that people over the age of 55 seemed to be at much higher risk of mortality and morbidity from coronavirus illness. Now, all the mortality and morbidity of COVID illness lies in the second part of this. 
Nobody dies from the first seven days of viral exposure. It's those that have a severe allergic reaction post eight day that are the highest risk of mortality and morbidity. Those are the ones that would end up in hospital itself. So looking at that, I have started to wonder why would it be that over 55s are more prone? And the simple explanation would be that over 55-year-old patients had been previously exposed to something very similar to this coronavirus. Now, to put that into perspective, if you're allergic to a bee sting, the first time, that's a genetic predisposition. The first time in your life that you are stung with the bee, you will not have a clinical reaction to it because you don't have the antibodies that will trigger that allergic reaction. But on that first exposure, you produce a specific subtype of immunoglobulin E for that particular allergen. The second time you're exposed to it, you now have the immunoglobulins to mount an inappropriate allergic response to it. So coming back to what we were seeing, I was under the impression that people over the age of 55 in the first wave had developed these inappropriate IgE molecules due to exposure previously to a similar kind of allergen. And that's the reason they were predisposed to having the reaction on the eighth day, not younger people. And that's what we saw throughout the first wave. But understanding that theory, it's simple to postulate that people below 55 were not reacting in the first wave simply because it was their first exposure to an allergen. However, during that first exposure, people below 55 would likely be sensitized, those that are allergic, and would have a severe reaction with subsequent exposure. So in my article that I wrote after the first wave, I postulate that the second wave will bring mortality and morbidity in a far younger population group, irrespective of the severity of the illness, just from the fact that they were more likely now to have been sensitized to the allergen in the first wave. And that's what we saw around the globe, that from the second wave, it was a far younger subset of population that were dying. But this is simply because now they were primed or sensitized to have this allergic reaction from an exposure in the first wave. And how is that? How, how do you see that in connection with the vaccination? Because that's also a priming because you have the, the spikes yes. now in your blood. And do you see yes. a difference? Because we have all these like, um, uh, what's the term in English uh, for the Impfdurchbruch, uh, Rainer? Breakthrough. Yeah, so this, this, this vaccination breakthrough. Okay. And that's maybe like, mm. a, so, so So some of the vaccinated people also get a very strong reaction. And that's maybe because of the, the priming. Do you see that? Or how has your observation changed like after people got vaccinated? Uh, in, the, in the third wave, I was exposed to vaccinated patients. So I could understand what was going on. But if you understand the underlying pathology, then you can postulate what might be the case. Now, what I'm seeing in vaccinated patients, uh, this is with the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, I noticed that once the vaccination program had started, I was seeing patients presenting to me uh, a large subset, seven to 10 days odd after vaccination with the onset of illness, uh, presenting seven to 10 days after vaccination with either a sore throat or the onset of breathlessness. And so these, it, it, there were too many of these patients presenting after vaccination, testing positive for COVID. Uh, 
for it to be uh, just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So I looked at that, and in that subset that presents soon after vaccination, there were a few patients who, on the second, third, fourth day of illness, suddenly deteriorated and their oxygen dropped. And that has never happened with the unvaccinated patients, irrespective of the variant. So I looked at that and I thought, well, I'm dealing with spike protein illness. Now, what I classify on the eighth day is spike protein illness. It's an illness triggered by spike protein, an allergic illness, but it can be other. So I classified it early on as spike protein illness, the second part of, uh, of, of the, the presentation. Now, I was under the impression that these patients presenting to me very soon after vaccination were actually presenting with spike protein illness. They had missed the viral phase of the illness completely. The vaccine had caused their bodies to produce spike protein, and when it reached an appropriate concentration, it triggered a reaction. So these patients on the first day of illness were actually on already into the hypersensitivity pneumonic phase of this illness. They had missed the viral phase completely and likely to be shedding spike protein or messenger RNA for the PCR test to be turning positive. So I did now uh, in the uh, with the unvaccinated patients, on the eighth day, I do a few biomarkers, uh, your interleukin-6, your D-dimer values, your CRPs, and those give me a good indication of the second phase. They tend to be slightly elevated in the first phase of illness, but from the eighth day take off exponentially. And so if I see those elevated markers, I am 100% sure that this patient has gone into hypersensitivity phase. And of course, I used those markers to gauge the recovery. The aim was to get them back to baseline as quickly as possible. Now, with these patients that presented after vaccination, I decided to do the very same biomarkers, but do it on the day they present with illness. And I saw the elevations, which clarified for me that they were already into the hypersensitivity phase and had missed the viral phase completely. So those patients on the third or fourth day of illness that were deteriorating and having a hypoxia and the rest, they were not actually on the third or fourth day of illness. In the plot of the natural illness itself in an unvaccinated patient, these patients were starting illness on the eighth day. So on the third or fourth day when deterioration occurred, if you looked at that from the natural course of infection, it was actually the 11th or 12th day. Uh, and it's at that point that you see people that are unvaccinated with a natural infection present to hospital. And so that made me understand that these patients that were crashing two or three days into the illness were those that were the most allergic to spike protein. And of course, uh, the vaccine takes a little while to build spike protein in your body. So it looked like there was a seven to 10 day odd lag between the injection and the reaction to spike protein. And that lag would allow IgE to actually develop. So in those patients that presented early on with these kind of vaccine reactions, I did IgE levels on them. And every single one of them that had a severe reaction had drastically elevated levels of IgE. So IgE in that subset of patients that presented early after vaccination became the marker uh, 
uh, as uh, as to the severity of the reaction that might occur. So those that had high elevated IgE levels needed to be watched very closely. They were the ones that could deteriorate very rapidly. And the treatment of those patients that presented a week after vaccination was exactly the same as I use from the eighth day. Steroids, antihistamines, Montelukast, anticoagulant, and all of them showed signs of recovery. So when I look at the vaccines itself, <clears throat> we're dealing with a few different mechanisms. Uh, the, the immunity is different from the allergy. So the vaccines itself are meant to stimulate an immune response, which is supposed to bring you uh, immunity against infection and transmission. However, the vaccine as well exposes you to spike protein, which is an allergen. And so the vaccine has the ability to develop a measure of tolerance to an allergen. And I think that is where the vaccine gives us the benefit of improvements in uh, severe illness and death uh, compared to any immune-mediated uh, resistance to a virus itself. So I've seen breakthrough infections constantly. I've had those subset of patients who presented early after vaccination with what we suspect is COVID illness, but clearly is spike protein illness. And then I've had the subset of patients who presented a month or two after vaccination with COVID. Now, those patients are truly having breakthrough infections. We've given them sufficient time after vaccination to develop a robust immune response to the virus. And if they develop infection subsequently, then that's a breakthrough infection. And in those patients that present more than a month after vaccination, they have the typical uh, uh, evolution of their illness. They have the first seven days of viral illness, and then on the eighth day show signs of worsening. Uh, typically like we'd see in unvaccinated patients. So I'm of the opinion that the vaccines itself provide us no immune benefit. Because I'm seeing patients just today alone, I must have seen about eight patients already that are fully vaccinated that presented with COVID, with this new Omicron variant. So clearly the vaccine does not stop infection, neither does it stop transmission. So as a vaccine, it has failed. It does not do its job. But where we see the improvements in the clinical outcome, uh, now there is this claim that vaccines prevent severe illness or death. That is due to the vaccine being able to stimulate a measure of tolerance to an allergen, or what we would call desensitization. So when a patient is exposed to spike protein, if they are allergic, that low dose of spike protein that they're exposed to will give them a measure of tolerance so that when they are exposed to the allergen through a viral infection, they do not develop the same severity of hypersensitivity reaction. And that is where the benefit is in the decrease of severity of symptoms uh, due to desensitization to an allergen, not to any immune mediated benefit itself. And that desensitization will only persist for as long as there is exposure to the allergen. So we've seen three or four months post-vaccination that vaccinated people start to have severe illness again. That's a good indication that they're no more exposed to spike protein. So the desensitization has stopped, the tolerance has waned, and so on exposure, they will have a severe reaction again. 
Isn't is sorry, um, my, we don't know each other. My name is Wolfgang Burak. Uh, I have a question. Isn't it very important which way you get the contact with the allergen, so with the spikes, whether you inhale it or whether you get it injected? I think and this is one thing. And when you get it injected, isn't there a big, big, uh, because you don't aspire when you inject, is there a big chance that the acute cases that it happens when you get an intravenous uh, accidental intravenous injection, which you have with other allergens too. You have a very sudden reaction then. And it's always, it's very often, it's the heart and it's the lung. So whether, whether it goes first, where the blood goes first after uh, the shot is set. So what do you think about that? I think that what we see as vaccine side effects needs to be classified accordingly. Uh, remember that the vaccine does not have spike protein. It's a messenger RNA that gets your body to make spike protein. So the exposure to spike protein post-vaccination will be delayed in that you've got to wait. How long? For How long? Uh, that's the How thing. Long if, is I'm patients, yeah, if I'm seeing patients seven to 10 days after vaccination triggering this reaction, then I would suspect that it takes seven to 10 days to build uh, the spike protein in your body. I have, uh, I've seen that, that that it goes very, very fast when, when the yes, nanoparticles yes. and the mRNA yes. enters the cells. For instance, the endocard, uh, the epithel, then it, it's very fast. It's it's ours. And it started producing and, and, and showing this, the spikes to the blood so that the reaction could happen within one day. Yes. Look, when you talk of hypersensitivity and an immediate reaction, The immediate reaction can occur to messenger RNA. It can occur to polyethylene glycol. It can occur to graphene oxide, all the other adjuvants and additives to the vaccine itself. So hypersensitivity can occur to a wide diversity of ingredients. However, allergy to spike protein will be restricted to those patients who are allergic and would be reasonably dose dependent. Now, when you look at the myocarditis and all those kind of side effects that we are seeing with the vaccine that are very immediate effects, those might not be uh, related to hypersensitivity, but more related to the biologic effect of spike protein itself. This has been a push from the start that I wanted research to stop focusing on the virus and start focusing on spike protein and for us to understand its biologic effect on the body. Now, since There's a lot of information that's come out about this biologic effect on of spike protein. We've seen the uh, endothelial injuries, the affectation to the myocardium in the heart. We've seen the similarities uh, to other pathogenic proteins like prions. And so the understanding that we should see a host of neurologic illness because of that, uh, a host of uh, increase in Alzheimer's and dementia We've also seen similarities to other pathogenic proteins related to HIV. And so we expect uh, this to have an immunosuppressive effect, uh, subsequently causing a re-emergence of latent infections or viruses, and of course, the re-emergence of cancers that were in remission. We've also seen that the spike protein has the ability to enter a cell nucleus, and with its inhibition of the BRCA enzyme, can actually prevent DNA repair. 
and that has some grave long-term consequences in the inability of cells to repair. And of course, those that survive damage would uh, likely form cancerous growths. Uh, we know, of course, that spike protein is, is a, a membrane protein, and so it should be expressed on the cell that produces it. That cell will be recognized as foreign to the rest of the body, and that would trigger a host of autoimmune responses dependent on the tissue that's actually making the spike protein and depends on where it was actually biodistributed. Mm -hmm. So we know that spike protein has a wide diversity of toxic biologic effects on the body. And any one of those effects can come into play at any point in time. So from the perspective of hypersensitivity, uh, yes, there are immediate responses to hypersensitivity, but if it's an immediate response, it's very likely to be an immediate response to one of the adjuvants or the messenger RNA. Because I've seen seven to 10 days, like I've said, after vaccination, that I'm seeing this allergic propensity show up. So uh, I'm of the opinion that it takes seven to 10 days for a sufficient amount of spike protein to be built to trigger this allergic process. If I had to put into a little bit of context how I see this pandemic, uh, if you looked at another, another chemical like, like penicillin, now penicillin's biologic activity on the body is that it's, it's, it's an antibiotic. To get that biologic effect from penicillin, you need to have a full course, a certain length of exposure to have that biologic effect. Now, if I, like the virus does, uh, gave everyone on the planet a single dose of penicillin and then isolated all of them for 14 days, uh, I would not see the biologic effect of penicillin, so it would not act as an antibiotic because it was a single dose. However, all those that are allergic to penicillin due to non-treatment would die. And I think that's what's happened with the virus. People that were allergic were isolated not uh, without understanding the illness. And because of the delay of early treatment and intervention had demised. Now, when you take a vaccine, you are exposed to spike protein for a longer length of time and maybe at higher dose. And so you would see its biologic effects like a full course of penicillin. And so the need to understand the biologic effect of spike protein on the human body. And so I'm, uh, I'm happy that research has taken us down this road to understand what the potential of spike protein is. And if we look at the VERS system, and of course, long COVID, uh, those would be the two reportings where patients were exposed to prolonged uh, spike protein. We might not see the numbers, the, the, the absolute values, because of the under-reporting and non-reporting of symptoms and deaths. But we can look at the spread of pathology that we see. And if you look at all the reports on the VERS system, the prediction of what spike protein might do bio, as a biologically active substance is exactly the spread of pathology that we see in the VERS system. We see the endothelial injuries resulting in strokes and heart attacks and blood clots and uh, emboli. We see the myocarditis, we see the neuropathies, we see the increases in Alzheimer's and dementia. We've seen the immunosuppression, uh, the emergence of latent viruses, the emergence of cancers, uh, the, the, the spiraling of uh, autoimmune conditions. Uh, Gillian Barre, we've seen CJD showing up. So some very unusual conditions have now become the norm. 
And so it shows that spike protein's biologic effect is the likely culprit here. Whether it's reported, whether the figures are accurate is irrelevant. The spread of pathology is what I'm more interested in. And that spread of pathology is dictated by the biologic activity of spike protein, and that pans out. Uh, so I think that with the vaccines itself, we got to be very cautious about our reporting of side effects. Uh, All-cause mortality is vitally important to look at, and of course, excess deaths. If we don't know what's in the vaccine, then every single side effect is considered to be a vaccine side effect until we prove otherwise, not the other way around. So no cherry picking side effects. Uh, we'll never figure that out. And uh, can I ask you, like, uh, when you see like people who are like one time um, vaccinated, two times vaccinated, and maybe even with a booster shot? So like the people who got this allergic reaction should expect to have like an maybe even stronger or another or could I mean, do you see that that that's happen again and then again? And so what would be the perspective for these people? That is, uh, that is uh, something that I found very strange. Uh, in general, people that have had a severe reaction with uh, COVID itself tend to have a severe reaction with the vaccine. Uh, the first dose of vaccine is a mild reaction and the second dose a far more severe reaction. However, I've had patients that have had severe reactions with natural infection who had no reaction to the vaccine. And I found, find that very confounding and uh, confusing. But of course, we are also aware that there is inconsistency in the vaccine itself. Uh, the doses or the vials are not the same. Uh, some were found to have just normal saline in them. And so I think that that is likely to be due to the inconsistencies in the vaccine rather than any inconsistencies in the illness itself or the response to the illness. Mm -hmm. So important, yes. As I think as well that uh, The, the, the first dose uh, is a mild dose, and you're, not, and you're not sure what patients are actually getting in their first dose. Uh, the second dose, uh, in all patients, the second dose seemed to be far more severe reactions. I've had many patients' demise with the vaccines. I've seen a lot of neuropathies, a lot of strokes, a lot of uh, cardiac issues. Unfortunately, the medical fraternity refuses to accept that. Uh, I've had patients being told that it's not the vaccine, even though the side effects occurred a day or two after the vaccine. So I think that the information that we collect from this is never going to be good information, good data, because we're not looking at every case and we're not looking to understand every case. I think we're just trying to justify the vaccine by brushing a lot under the carpet itself. I have a question, another question. Uh, I've heard that the spike of hepatitis B uh, is similar a little bit to the spikes of uh, uh, coronavirus. And have you heard about that? There are similar proteins. Half of the spike is said to be similar. Uh, could it be that those people having been vaccinated against uh, hepatitis B uh, react differently than those who are not? I think uh, with the with the uh, spike protein and its ability to suppress the immunity is where the problem lies. There are a lot of latent viruses in our body that are suppressed by a good immune response, and that immune response tends to be lifelong. However, if you suppress that immune response, these latent viruses are going to show up. India at the moment is having an outbreak of dengue. Uh, that is very strange, uh, strangely after a mass vaccination campaign. 
so we are seeing a lot of latent viruses coming to the fore. Uh, I am actually uh, looking to see my uh, HIV patients, and I'm watching closely their CD4 counts and viral loads to see whether those that are vaccinated have any worsening. Uh, a majority of my HIV patients are very well controlled. And so any change in that control will be obvious. However, a lot of the patients that I have that are HIV positive are very skeptical about the vaccines. And I think a majority of them have refused to take it. So in the few that have taken it, I'm waiting with bated breath to see what the outcome might be. <laughs> Well, what about the Omicron variant? Uh, we have heard many stories from people, both Germans and other people who have been living in South Africa for a long time. And one of them, I think we're going to show a short video at the end of our session. One of them traveled from one hospital to another in order to find out if the hospitals are really overwhelmed with victims of this new Omicron variant, in particular, if there's so many children. And uh, each and every one of these hospitals was almost completely empty. Yes. How can that be? Uh, Rainer, I think this is fear-mongering. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been seeing a lot of the Omicron variant. I've seen hundreds of children through this pandemic. I've not had a single child progress into the second phase of illness. And seeing that the second phase is where all the mortality and morbidity reside, it's clearly understandable that children are not at risk of mortality and morbidity. Their immune systems are not mature enough for them to develop this kind of hypersensitivity response. Mm. It is almost a protective mechanism. So children being exposed to new environments at the start of their life are given a bit of latitude to tolerate them. So the immune systems are learning. So you don't have this overreaction. But once a child reaches maturity, I wouldn't say a specific age, but once a child reaches maturity, the immune system changes, and then they're at risk of having hypersensitivity reactions. Now, understanding that children are not at risk, so I don't see the need to be vaccinating children. Children have a robust innate immune system, and they have the ability to learn. And I don't think that children were ever super spreaders or ever put anyone else at risk. So the campaign to vaccinate children needs an irrational push to fear monger parents into thinking that their children are at risk so that it would justify the vaccination. Now, with what I'm seeing with Omicron, there are a few changes that have occurred. Patients are not having the typical upper respiratory symptoms that we've seen with the other variants. Uh, they are presenting more with fatigue and with headaches, uh, some of them with gastrointestinal symptoms again. But from all that I've seen and all that I've uh, endeavored to look into with Omicron, it is a mild variant. Uh, there is no hospitalizations. There is no critical illness that seems to be associated with it. And even those patients that turn on the eighth day, it is a very mild turn that can be easily suppressed with the right appropriate medication. So this is a very mild variant. Uh, this is what we would expect from a pandemic, like we did with the Spanish flu. Viruses uh, have, no, uh, have no will to kill their host. 
a dead host is of no consequence to a virus. So as the pandemic evolves, there's an expectation that viruses, the variants will become more contagious, but will become less pathogenic, uh, cause far less illness. And that is the trend in general infections. And so when Omicron surfaced, it was expected. I would have expected that the first and second wave would have been the most severe, seeing that patients needed to be desensitized or sensitized to respond. The third wave would be the building of tolerance, and the fourth wave would drive this virus into endemicity. So it will become an endemic pathogen that we'd all learn to live with and be well primed to do that with our natural immune response. And so that is what Omicron <laughs> actually is. Uh, I, have I would question. be cautious because we know of uh, we know the virus is uh, man-made. And so uh, if Omicron was another one of the variants that they made, there might be a sting in the tail. So cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. I have one, another question. You're, uh, there are fruits we never ate in Europe uh, many centuries ago, but now we import them like kiwi fruit or such fruits. And there was lots of allergy against those fruits. How many generations does it take until it's a fruit you are used to and no more diseases appear? What do you think? How many? How long does it take to adapt? Look, I think that's a, that's a genetic predisposition, and I think it's dependent on the type of allergen and how severely it triggers a reaction. If you look at penicillin, you would have expected that people that were allergic to penicillin would have become tolerant by now. But I think it is dependent on the exposure. So if your dad was allergic to kiwi fruit, but he kept eating it in spite of that then there's a higher propensity for you to become tolerant to it because it would become part of his genetic makeup and he'll pass that on to you. But if he's allergic to kiwi fruits and stayed far away from it, you'd probably still be allergic to it. Okay. So I think the process of learning is important. <laughs> well, we, we, we cannot avoid the contact with coronaviruses. We cannot avoid the contact with viruses. But kiwi, yeah. we can, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a, look, with Omicron, I, I, when, it, when it came out, uh, the whole world jumped up and decided to ban South Africa from travel abroad. And I thought that was the most nonsensical thing anyone could do. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, I was asked, what would be the best way to make a vaccine? Because I thought that messenger RNA was the stupidest technology to use to make this vaccine. Just to put context to that, we taking messenger RNA, putting it into a cell, that cell has to make spike protein, which is coded for by that messenger RNA. That spike protein must be recognized as foreign and trigger an immune response. That immune response is meant to build specific antibodies to that spike protein. And if those antibodies are neutralizing, and if you are exposed to a variant that has the same type of spike protein, then those neutralizing antibodies will kill the virus. And that is the, the, the uh, way in which the messenger RNA is meant to work. So I asked a question. Messenger RNA needs to be stored at minus 90 degrees Celsius. We're not sure of its biodistribution in the body. We're not sure how long lived it's going to be. We're not sure how much of spike protein it will make. We're not sure how long it will make spike protein. So we have all these variables that make the vaccine difficult to monitor. But the end product 
is, uh, is a neutralizing antibody to spike protein. So why didn't we inject people with spike protein directly? We would have got to the same end point. The spike protein would have triggered an, an immediate response, and that would have caused the development of antibodies to spike protein, which would have given us the same end point without the messenger RNA involved. And uh, nobody can seem to answer that. Uh, it would, a spike protein would be easier to manufacture. It wouldn't require a specific minus 90 degree Pfizer fridge. Uh, we could dose it absolutely perfectly dependent on patient's body weight. We would know its half-life and exactly how long it will be eliminated from your body. So it's something we could control far more effectively. So what was the need to use messenger RNA to make spike protein? Then coming back to the uh, vaccine, the best vaccine would be a live attenuated vaccine. So I said, look, take the mildest variant of coronavirus and use it as a candidate to make a live attenuated vaccine. That vaccine would cause mild illness and you would develop natural immunity once you recover. And seeing that it caused mild illness, it would be self-spreading. So you would not require, you won't be required to vaccinate the entire population. Whoever you vaccinate, uh, just advise that when they develop symptoms, they must go and play in a crowd and they'll spread that vaccine to every person around them. So we'd create an artificial mild pandemic that would spread very quickly and we'd develop natural immunity and without the mortality and morbidity. Now with Omicron, God seems to have given us that. We have a mild variant that's highly contagious without the mortality and morbidity. And I can tell you Omicron's better than the vaccine in many ways. So it should be the replacement for mass vaccination. We should all get Omicron and get natural immunity. And the natural immunity would be far better than any vaccine conferred immunity. So closing our borders is the most nonsensical thing to do. Uh, closing your border and trying to vaccinate the population out of Delta is stupid. Uh, open your borders, let Omicron come in and it'll displace Delta without a second thought. And you'd have a pandemic of uh, Omicron that's mild without any consequence and we'd all get to herd immunity without lifting a finger. And I think, uh, yeah, people need to, uh, the science needs to do this. We will have the immunity in the right place. We won't have it inside somewhere, exactly. but we would have exactly. it in the right place. Exactly. I mean, can I ask you like, oh, yeah, they, you know, the, Omicron's fear mongering, nothing more. So if you yes. say okay. that for the, uh, for the, what's your explanation that for the Pfizer um, uh, vaccine, there's all of a sudden the 90 minus 90 degrees uh, Celsius is not um, necessary anymore, but it can be stored in a fridge, I think with like normal. If it's spike protein. How, how yeah, if that? it's just spike protein. Uh, why, why need the mRNA? Manufacture spike protein. Use it as the Very trigger. Very good question. Very right. good question. Maybe the maybe the mRNA is just a distraction from exactly. the real danger, which seems it to has be a purpose. highly toxic. Yeah. yeah, if the if you have a vector, you don't need such a low temperature. I think. Yes. You can have yes, you can have less temp. You can have more normal temperatures. So this is the difference between those two. And as well, uh, when I look at COVID illness itself, uh, COVID illness is not caused by coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus causes pathology, the viral illness, but that's self-limiting and transient, and of course leads to no consequence in a lot of people. So the primary pathogen of COVID illness is actually spike protein. Uh, spike protein is what leads to all the mortality and morbidity in COVID illness. So coronavirus is just a vector. 
It's a vector that brings spike protein into your body and exposes you to that allergen. Uh, just like the viruses, uh, the vaccine is a vector for spike protein. So we're dealing with two vectors. You're gonna, you know, it's it's a it's a joke amongst my patients here in South Africa uh, from the start of the pandemic. We're dealing with an airborne virus. Uh, we're dealing with a faulty PCR test that would never allow me the latitude to isolate it effectively, and in so curb its spread. Uh, it's like trying to find the pee in a swimming pool. You don't have something to differentiate the water from the pee. And so uh, it's a laugh with my patients. Uh, I, I told them from the start that the likelihood is that you are going to get coronavirus at some point during this pandemic. So choose your variant carefully. <laughs> Shankara, I'm really impressed. This is the first time that I understand a medical lecture. <laughs> and I've listened <laughs> to quite a few because I've done uh, a lot of a, medical law. It's what will, be, it's what will really keep you impressed. safe, Raina. <laughs> yeah. This is great, great. And, and it's important to understand these things. It's also important to, um, to expose these things, to make people understand what the real dangers are. It's not, it's, it doesn't seem to be, it's the spike protein, obviously. It's the spike yes. protein. And everything else is just, well, we don't know it yet, but it does look as though there, everything else is a, is a, is a distraction yes. or exactly. an experiment. Mm. I, have a, I have a question. What do you think of the fusion without induced by the spike protein? Sorry, I didn't get that question, uh, Wolf. Have you, have you heard about it? I didn't, I didn't hear your question. The fusion without. So they, the, the spike protein makes a cell fusion, is induce, in, inducing a, a fusion of cells so that, that several cells go together and have multicarriote, uh, multicarriote cells afterwards. We were we were discussing that with Mike Eden. It was uh, yes, yes. Question because okay. of fertility. There is sensitin sensitin like uh, mechanism, and which uh, which could have which could be there could be antibodies against sensitin, and we were afraid that fertility. there were no there were no experiments to to exclude infertility after this vaccine, and this is the question of fertility being being influenced by getting vaccinated, which takes a lot of time notice yes especially when you're going to vaccinate children uh, yes. it might take a long while to realize that it's affected their fertility uh, look with spike protein uh, I, I had a discussion last night and uh, I was uh, I was taken to task for calling it a toxin uh, I was taken to task for calling it a poison but uh, if I had to understand what I see the facts are the facts and I've got to take these facts and try and understand and make logical sense of what's transpiring around me. Now, uh, from what I see, I've got to draw a picture as to what's going on around me. Now, I asked a simple question. I said, if you got up one morning and found someone in your home and mainstream media told you that he's there to visit you and keep you company. And so you believe that. And when friends come by, you tell them, no, this guy's here to keep me company and uh, he's here just to, just, just, just to, 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 to visit. Uh, but that doesn't explain your missing television and the car missing from the garage and the <laughs> front window broken in your house. And so you, as much as you wish to uh, accept that and tell everyone that he's there for a visit, uh, you might start to justify the missing TV because you start to realize he's probably a burglar, but it makes you look like a fool to admit that. So, but once you do admit that he's probably a burglar, then uh, all the facts start to make sense. 
And so that's what I have to do with the facts that are in front of me. So when I look at spike protein, I know that it's an engineered protein uh, of, of, of the uh, receptor on a virus to uh, cause it to move from a bat to a human being. So I'd expect that that was a feat of engineering to get the, the uh, receptor changed. But when you look at the complete protein structure and you start to realize the pathogenicity of this protein, uh, I don't think nature will conspire to find all the bits of protein uh, around us that would probably kill human beings and then in one mutation put it all together on the spike of a, of a new virus that miraculously jumped from a bat to a human being and became the most infective human virus we've seen in a long time. So I'm of the opinion that uh, spike protein is likely to be the most well-engineered human poison ever made. And that's what it looks like. Now, a can of insecticide on my desk is toxic, but it's a can of insecticide. The day I decide to force my family to drink it, it becomes a poisoning. And so when I look at what's going on around the world, the mandating of vaccines, that whole game, I think that this is a global mass poisoning. And until I have any other evidence that points or paints a different picture, that's what I suspect we are dealing with. Because the vaccines have absolutely no scientific basis, yet they're being hunted as a health intervention. I just, I, I just used the chance you are here, and what do you think about this technology of Novavax with all those spikes on, on some nanocylinders, and, and uh, they are doing it RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus, they have the spikes, and they have the spikes of the coronavirus, and they put it in some nanoparticle, and they want to inject this. What you, this is a, this is the new technology. Many people hope that we are, are they don't want mRNA. They, they are looking forward for this. What do you think about that? Uh, Wolfgang, whether it's mRNA technology, whether it's nanotechnology, it is absolutely wholly unnecessary. <laughs> we are spending our time chasing bees and killing bees, and we're not treating the people who are allergic to the sting. It's a That's... complete waste of our time. Uh, if we concentrated solely on the mortality and morbidity, like we should have done from the start with early treatment to build understanding about this pathology that we see, uh, it would make vaccines unnecessary. Now, I wrote an article about this, describing from the Spanish flu all the way to what we're going to see and how we would get to tolerance. And it became one of the most controversial articles written at the time, simply because there was a line in it that stated that if we could curb all the mortality and morbidity of COVID illness with early treatment, it would completely negate the need to rush a half-cooked vaccine to market on a global scale. And of course, I think they thought that was a dig at vaccination before vaccinations were even a thought or, or on the agenda. So uh, it became controversial just for one line. So I think vaccines are completely in the wrong direction when you talk of COVID illness. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I have all my vaccinations. This is inappropriate science. And I cannot uh, justify anything that would injure my patient. Uh, it's the first principle is do no harm. So as long as I see a vaccine uh, ability to cause injury, I've got to weigh that risk up against the benefits it might provide to that patient. And quite frankly, with early treatment, no one is really at risk. If you, if you do not treat, then everyone's at risk. 
So yeah, when you look at the comorbidities as well, a bee doesn't actually care whether you're fat or thin or whether you've got diabetes or high blood pressure <laughs> to kill you. All it cares is that you're allergic to its sting. So yes, the comorbidities do play a part, but they do, do they play a part in the recovery from the illness, not in the pathology of the illness itself. So if you're a diabetic and you have a bee sting, you have more risk of severe illness. But uh, you, you're not, you, the bee sting is not going to kill you because you are diabetic. It will kill you because you are allergic to a bee sting. So I think a lot of this needs to be brought in. If you look at the vaccines itself, the vaccine should stop infection and transmission. And that's what gives a vaccine a group benefit. So if you take the vaccine and it stops infection and transmission, you actually protect me. And that's the population benefit of the vaccine. So it either stops infection or transmission. We don't talk about decrease. Infection and transmission are variables that have many factors that play a part. So a vaccine either stops it or it doesn't. If they have this claim that it decreases transmission, that's, that's uh, dubious. If a person is highly infectious and across the road from me, it doesn't affect me at all. If a person, person is mildly infectious and in, in the middle of a crowded dance floor, it probably infect everyone around it. So it's either it stops infection and transmission or it doesn't. Now, clearly Pfizer and the rest have acknowledged that this does not stop infection or transmission. So quite frankly, that means you haven't proven a group benefit to your vaccination. Now, saying that it prevents severe illness and death is a therapeutic benefit. Uh, my treatment prevents severe illness and death, but I don't expose the entire planet to the side effects of my treatment. It's limited to those that are unwell. I don't go around giving people paracetamol in anticipation of a headache tomorrow. And when that wears off, give them another in case the headache hasn't shown up just yet. They would experience side effects from that. And that's where we're going with these vaccinations. Repeated doses to try and prevent you getting a severe reaction, reaction to spike protein. So you haven't yet proven a group benefit. The prevention of severe illness and death is also an individual benefit. So if you take the vaccine, you might not be severely ill or die when you get COVID illness. But that benefit is not transferable to me. It has no bearing on me whatsoever. So if I treat you for the flu, I can't expect your neighbor to improve with your treatment. And I can't understand without this uh, population-based benefit, the justification for mandating it globally. Uh, unless you've proven a population benefit, there is absolutely no logic to mandating something for a group. You haven't shown a group benefit. Yeah. Makes perfect sense to me. It all ties in Thank with you. what everyone else has told us, except this is the most comprehensive lecture I've ever heard on this. And uh, it makes perfect medical sense, even to a layperson like myself. Excellent. Uh, my, my push from the start, uh, when I wrote this article, I got a lot of flack and I knew that I'm dealing with governance structures that are, uh, are, are suppressing uh, information, that are coercing people. I knew from the start that I'm going to be dealing with this problem. So my push has always been to educate doctors and to educate people. If the doctors know what to do and the people know what to look for, I don't need anyone's permission to save lives. And so I knew from the start that patient education is vitally important. It is how they've coerced the population. 
through the fear and, and the rest. So getting people to understand what's going on is vitally important. The layman on the street is who's important. You know, I, I put the vaccinations into, I, I gave an analogy that made a huge impact on people around me. I said, look, the vaccine provides you with an individual benefit. So if you looked at the vaccine, it's akin to skydiving. Uh, an individual risk, an individual benefit, and an individual choice. So when I skydive, if I have to die, there's no collateral damage to people around me. Uh, so I have the choice to skydive. Now the vaccine is someone telling me that I should skydive to protect the person next to me. And I ask about the science. How does me skydiving protect this guy next to me? And you say, well, follow the science, but you can't show me the science because you've got no group benefit. Uh, after a few months and you're getting annoyed with me, you say, okay, if you don't want to jump, uh, I'll give you a beer and donut. Why don't you? And I don't need your beer and donut. I just want to know how it protects the guy next to me. After all, I, don't, I, I, I like him. And if it protects him, I'll probably take the plunge. But give me the information that shows me that I'm going to protect him by taking this risky act. And you haven't. Now humanity is at the point where you're threatening to push me out the plane. And you still haven't shown me how it protects the sky next to me. And of course, I've become very suspicious of your motives because you offered me a beer and donut. Now, uh, when I look at the parachute you've provided me, it's leaking. It's got too many holes in it. It doesn't look very safe. And when I look at the spot on the ground where I'm supposed to land, there looks like a few dead bodies down there. And when I ask you about it, no, nothing's wrong. Don't look there. Just jump. Now, uh, if I stuck you on the edge of an aeroplane with a leaky parachute and a few dead bodies on the landing spot, I'm sure you'd be hesitant too. So I think vaccine hesitancy is warranted. You've got to be an idiot to do this. So when I look at it, sometimes I think, you know, it's just a play on words. It's just fear mongering. And I, I, I've looked into the entire psychology of what's happened around me. And yes, it is mass formation. It is an, uh, it is an opportunity that they are taking to reset society. There's economic agendas, there's social agendas, and people are so hypnotized that they don't actually see it. They were convinced about an, uh, a foe that you couldn't see. We were told the safest place for us would be in jail. So we gave up our freedoms and our businesses were closed and we went and sat in jail, hoping to be a little safer from an airborne virus. I can't understand how that works, but we had a point now where we want our freedoms back. And to get those freedoms back, we have to take a vaccine. So we weren't put into jail for our safety. We were put into jail to curtail our freedoms and so we were herded like cattle into a pen. And the only way out is through a dip. So vaccination or you stay in jail. So I think the uh, society doesn't realize that this has more to do with the curtailment of the individual freedoms than any healthcare intervention. And unfortunately, it's brought out a lot of uh, pre-existent prejudices in people. So suddenly now you take a vaccine and you think it gives you blue blood. Uh, you're allowed to sit at the front of the bus and I'm relegated to the back. But uh, I guess in six months time uh, and your vaccine's expired, you're going to have to come sit at the back of the bus with me with your side effects in tow. So <laughs> I think people, people are just being coerced. 
and they don't realize that this is something that has grave consequences for their freedoms in future. Uh, if we bring out the digital passport system, look, the passport is uh, illogical in any way. We're giving a vaccine passport to people where we haven't actually clarified that they've had an immune response to the vaccine. So we should be giving out immune passports. Every patient, whether they have immunity that was come to through a natural infection or vaccine-induced, deserves a passport to be free in society or immune to the illness. Now, we don't want to acknowledge natural immunity, and we're handing out a passport without testing for immunity conferred by a vaccine. Now, I think the reason for that is if we developed a test to show who's immune, we'd probably find that the vaccines have failed and very few people that are vaccinated are actually immune. So it's a shot in the foot. I so, think they, they do something else now. They, they're analyzing our genome worldwide yes. and they find out who will be allergic. And yes. they, they, so they can focus in the next, the next time they fear monger, they will very, very intelligently focus on certain groups of people. Yes whom they know who are to be targeted and where they can reach something. Uh, well, uh, coming back to that, I did a submission to the king of uh, Malaysia about the uh, side effects of the vaccine. I was hoping that on, on religious grounds, he would declare fatwa and I would be able to influence the Arabic world from taking this vaccine. And part of that was to look at the trend around the world. And if you remember, uh, in the first wave in America, It was mostly the black population of America, the African-American, that was affected. Uh, they thought that it was because of lower socioeconomic group, lack of access to uh, uh, medical care and all that kind of thing. But here in South Africa, I saw exactly the same thing. The first wave was majority, if not all, black patients. I had not a single Indian or white patient in the first wave. And of course, I looked at that and thought, well, maybe it's because the black clientele being of a lower socioeconomic group didn't have the ability to institute lockdowns and isolate. And so it ravaged the black community. In the second wave, I noticed that it was mostly Indian patients and Indian patients of Indian origin, not the Muslim community. And that ravaged, the, that was the second wave. When we got into the third wave, it seemed to be primarily the Muslim community and the white community that was affected. So it seemed like the different variants had an ethnic propensity. Do you, do you remember do you remember this, this the WHO recommending very very high dose of hydroxychloroquine a toxic dose of hydroxychloroquine and you know that there is a the favism is very very spread among black people so if black people got hydroxychloroquine almost up to one third of them would react because of favism with uh, dyspnea and all this what is it may be They stopped it after the first wave. It, it, was, it was published then that it is dangerous. So they stopped the high dose hydroxychloroquine. This may be one reason why in the first wave there were many black people dying and many people black, black people were hurt. I just want to mention this. Yes, I think, I think that the powers that be, we are dealing with a well-engineered virus and a mandated vaccine. <clears throat> so uh, again, looking at this uh, stranger I found in my home, Uh, I would say that the person that made the virus is the same person that made the vaccine. And they understand full well 
what the effects are going to be. Uh, remember that when you engineer a virus, you don't only you don't have to only engineer its effect. You can also engineer in a pattern of mutation. And so after every so many cycles, the virus would change or mutate according to predetermined parameters. So the mutations uh, affecting different subsets of Q community might have been pre-planned. This might be a kind of ethnic cleansing in that different variants have a propensity for different populations. Here in South Africa, mm -hmm. I saw the Indian population affected in the second wave. And if you remember, the second wave in India was the most deadly. The, so, so it looked like that variant had a propensity for that ethnicity. So I think there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. But I think if we understand we're dealing with the burglar, we'll figure it out a lot sooner. But can I ask you, like, Absolutely. do you think if it was like a natural, um, if an, a natural muta mutation, is it kind of realistic that this natural mutation would have these ethnic, uh, you know, um, preferences? Okay. Or would we rather need to think that there was like a new virus then, for instance, like put out if we if we follow that that train of thought, like in South Africa, for instance, targeting the the uh, the Indian community or like it, if it comes from India and then moves over. But do, do you see what I mean? Like, is this like, yes, yes. is it realistic to think at all that it can be by a natural um, selection, this virus also, or all of a sudden becomes uh, more toxic to white people or to black people or to to the Aborigines? Look, when, you, or, when you look at the original virus, uh, we know that it was made in a lab. It has no ancestry. Uh, so you can't trace back the mutations that occurred to bring it to that point. Yet we got uh, inventory of coronaviruses through the uh, through the ages, and we can see how they've changed and mutated and evolved. And suddenly you have this virus that doesn't have an ancestor. So it's definitely made in a lab. Then when you look at mutations, mutations tend to be very uh, definite in time, a process. So we know that it takes so many years for a mutation to occur in certain species. And we use that when we analyze genetics to work back in time to see when divergence of species actually occurred. Now, so we understand mutations, but we're dealing with a virus where in one failed swoop with Omicron, we had 30 mutations in spike protein and nothing leading up to it. So usually when you look at mutations, they occur one at a time. You get one mutation, that becomes a dominant strain if that mutation gave it a selection advantage, and then you get another mutation. And so you can look at these mutations evolving over time. Now to suddenly have a variant that has so many mutations in one spot that gave it a selective advantage, and of course, no mutations elsewhere, is very unusual. Uh, if you had a high rate of mutation, the high rate of mutation would influence the entire virus. And that high rate of mutation would lead to a lot of variants that are actually, uh, they, they, they actually don't have the ability to infect. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing variants that have changed drastically and have an even better ability to actually be contagious. And that I find a little strange, that we have this level of mutation with this virus. It can be that uh, 
the new variants are simply put out there uh, and they spread. They are, again, uh, lab-made. And that's the reason I say with Omicron, we need to be very cautious. Omicron might have been, yes, with any vi virus, man-made or not, there will be a process of natural selection. So let's pray that Omicron is a natural selective process of a man-made virus that has taken away its pathogenicity and will give us uh, long, robust natural immunity. However, we got to entertain the thought that Omicron might be another man-made variant. And if that is so, then I guess we got to try and understand what the long-term effect of that is going to be. So with a milder variant, we might drop our guard and allow it to spread worldwide. But we might in a few months time realize the, the gravity of an Omicron infection. Uh, my concern is that there's been some mutation in the furin cleavage site of this new variant, and that might give it the propensity to spread into different tissues, and more importantly, uh, breach the blood-brain barrier. And if that occurs, I would expect to see neurologic effects, but those neurologic effects might be deferred they might only become clinically apparent a few months down the line. And so we gotta be very cautious about this being a mild variant or classifying it as a mild variant. Uh, we gotta understand the entire ambit of what this new type of spike protein can actually do. And so I think the caution is always warranted. Uh, I examined the patients with Omicron very closely, uh, understanding that perspective. And the patients that, look, everyone talks about headaches and fatigue, but I've noticed that the headaches that present are atypical. Patients complain of this vibrating sensation in their head with the headache. I've also started to see patients complain of strange visual symptoms, uh, the sensation of a fan blowing on your eyes, if that's how best I can describe it for now. But these are the kind of symptoms we need to interrogate a lot more closely to get an understanding of what truly is going on. And it's only time that will tell us that we've completely recovered from Omicron and it has no long-term or delayed effects. So I think we need to be cautious. We are dealing with an engineered pathogen here and we need to keep our eyes open. And I have one more question. Like when we're looking at genetic um, differences between people and if they can be classified you know like say um like even like also within germany there might be certain types like if you're looking at one village you know it's all white people for instance look at one village and maybe they have a different genome uh, like i don't know from what could be the the variations but you know that it's possible to then target is exactly that uh, you know doesn't need to be like a different big variance yeah. like in, in like say people from africa and people white people or so but it can be like small maybe you could target even like little yeah. tiny things that could be like hits like 2000 families in germany or something yeah. so you're looking at you're looking at better ways to risk stratify to see who's at high risk before they actually get the illness now, to do that, I mentioned this in the article that I wrote. Uh, if this is, hyper, look, uh, uh, hypersensitivity has been conclusively proven. Uh, Marcus Sanchez and Kenneth Day wrote an article in uh, August or September last year 
that postulated that this is hypersensitivity, immune-mediated uh, pneumonitis rather than a COVID pneumonia. And I contacted Marcus and I told him that that was exactly the article that I wrote, but I had proved it on a clinical basis. And so we've been collaborating ever since. Uh, we're looking to publish a comprehensive uh, article bringing the science and the uh, clinical and observation therapeutic trial together. Uh, subsequently, I think in August this year, I think it was in China, that a research paper was published where they looked at the exact immunoglobulin E subset for spike protein. And they found a correlation between those levels and the severity of illness. So clearly, that's how it works. The higher the level of IgE, the more allergic you likely to be. Now, IgE testing is done commonly for other allergies, milk and gluten and the rest. So my aim was to push to have the development of a specific subtype of IgE, uh, spike protein specific subtype. And if you identified that subtype, then you could do a quantitative test on every patient to see who first of all has the subtype and the levels. And so those that have the subtype are prone to having a reaction on the eighth day. And those with high levels of the subtype are prone to having a severe reaction. That would be one of the most important risk stratification tools we could ever have, more than whether you're fat or thin or diabetic or hypertensive. That would tell us exactly who's going to react on the eighth day. And of course, uh, everyone's been distracted by the virus. And so it's been a bit of a push to get science to look in that direction. This is something I wanted to do in June last year when I realized hypersensitivity. But I've contacted quite a few universities for assistance, but I've got no feedback from any. After all, their funding or their funders would push them to investigate vaccine efficacy rather than anything that would solve the problem. Is, so there, I say, is there any chance to have a scratch test? That's what we were going to do. We were going to, you see, they got mRNA vaccines. If they had spike protein vaccines, that would be a simple thing. But it would be simple to scratch a patient on the skin and put some spike protein on it and see if it flares, like a Manto test uh, that we do for yeah. TV. Yeah. Uh, it's simple to gauge allergy. So I don't think we need to go through the genetics of things. We need to just understand who's going to react. And to do that, every time the spike protein changes, we just got to make sure that we test who's allergic to the new type of spike protein. But what I've seen so far is that it seems to be the same kind of subset. So I think it is, uh, it's almost like a mixed bag of nuts. If you're allergic to nuts, then some are allergic to walnuts and some more allergic to peanuts, but uh, you're allergic to nuts. The different types of nuts might trigger different severities of allergy, but you're allergic to nuts. Now, just in that uh, perspective, uh, the mixing of vaccines is a dangerous thing because you might be allergic yes. to peanuts and not allergic to walnuts, but a bag of mixed nuts poses a unique risk mm -hmm. to you. So, so would a mixture of vaccines pose a unique risk to you as well. So, yeah, I think we need to be cautious about mixing the vaccines. So if we're lucky, if we're lucky, Shankara, then om the Omicron variant will lead us out of this catastrophe without them, the other side, even wanting this to happen. But if we're lucky, 
this is a, as you described it, let me read it. It's a natural, it's a natural selection process of a man-made virus so that it more or less eliminates itself, right? Yes, but we have eliminates, to be uh, careful. Eliminates the illnesses. This is very, very, it's very much contradicting yeah. what Mr. Van der van van Busche uh, always is, is telling, Van der Busche. And uh, I think uh, he's just sent from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to, to the fear monger again, I think. No, look, I think we got to understand that we're dealing with uh, two types of people here, vaccinated and unvaccinated, even though I'd, I'd, I hate to uh, distinguish. But uh, the unvaccinated, when they get this infection, they will develop a wide, robust response to the Omicron variant, which would hold them in good stead in the future. However, those patients that are vaccinated, whether infected before or not, we know that the vaccine damages your immunity. And so the question is that needs to be asked is, do vaccinated patients, when they are exposed to a natural infection, have the ability to develop a robust, broad, natural response? And if not, are they going to be the subset of population that are going to be prone to reinfections? Because developing a vaccine that gives you a non-neutralizing antibody response is almost a distraction to a good immune response. So when you are in contact with the virus, your immunity looks out and sees that you have soldiers fighting this, even though it does not recognize that the soldiers are ineffective. And because it thinks you're fighting the virus, it won't mount a full robust response. And so vaccinated people may be compromised in our aim to get to herd immunity. And I think that's a big issue. Yes, it is. And that's the reason the pandemic of the of the vaccinated. Uh, besides the yeah. side effects and things we see, uh, they might be the subset of population that leads to the perpetuation of this virus. In any event, coronavirus will become endemic. Uh, mm-hmm. It will become endemic and we'll never in, uh, eliminate it from our environment. It uh, has other animal uh, hosts, uh, dogs and cats and other vertebrates. And so we'll never eliminate it. We're not going to go vaccinating every animal on the planet to try and eliminate this. It doesn't need to be eliminated. It will lead to, it will, it will become endemic. The problem is that with the vaccinated forcing selection away from the vaccine, we might see more severe illness. It will, there won't be the general trend towards milder illness. You can have a vaccinated patient incubate the virus and have a more severe variant suddenly become more contagious because it's not the natural selective pressure that you put on a virus. You know that there are two there are two variants of vaccines now in the clinical studies that are self-spreading. Yes. They produce, they produce two vaccines that they, they are said to be self-spreading because the virus is, is, is amplifying, is, is, is uh, replicating. And so you can just infect your neighbor with a, with a vaccine. And uh, what do you think about that? Again, uh, Wolfgang, now we're building beehives. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. When I look at it, I think 
do we actually need to go through? <laughs> Don't we have better things to do with our time yeah. than to be chasing these bees around when this, this is these are fantastic times for people who are thinking ten years about have ideas about vaccines and about yeah, 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 interfering yeah. with our immune system. They all they all want to have patents. They all want to earn money. And now this is the time they can try it out. And nobody says no because we are threatened so much and we need That's to right. find something to fight it. You see, yeah. this this is this is the issue as well. Yeah, the fact that I understood that on the eighth day we're having hypersensitivity, and the fact that the rest of the world was chasing a virus, that tells me that very few people on the planet actually understand the immune response to a natural COVID or coronavirus infection. And that is where we failed in trying to treat this. Now, if we do not understand the body's natural response to the virus, what right do we have to influence the immune response of a planet through a vaccination program? We are running blind with that. It makes no sense at all. I can you can I compare it with the, with the language when you when you invent a new language and you spread it and some understand it some don't it's like Babylon a little bit it yes. crash it it crashes nobody will understand anybody anymore because it's all mixed up and all the, the reactions established for centuries or for thousands of years and the communication established is just confused by all this yes. which is suddenly happening you know I think uh, I think a lot of it has been. Uh, science going in the wrong direction over the past 50 years. And I think that direction has been too greatly influenced by finance. Uh, yeah. Scientific discovery is stifled <laughs> by big pharma itself. Just forbid the patents and everything is solved. Yes, you see, when you, when you look at scientific discovery, uh, if you're testing a drug, which you know nothing about, against a population, that is diverse, then you will get, uh, in examining the effect, you'll get a bell-shaped curve. A majority will have what we'll see in the center, the effect of the drug. You'll have a tail on one end with side effects and a tail on the other with no effect. But our focus is always on the center of the bell because we're trying to understand what this drug does. And that is what randomized clinical trials are meant to do, show us the consistency. But that doesn't give us any new information. It just clarifies what we want to understand. Now, when we look at coronavirus, here we're dealing with the effect of a virus against a population. But it's not that we have no knowledge of a virus. There is a huge amount of knowledge surrounding what a virus does. This is not the first respiratory virus in history. So again, when you look at how this virus influences this variable population, you will get a bell-shaped curve. A majority have the symptoms that are grouped in the center, and you'll have a tail on either end with the unusual kind of symptoms. Now, where scientific breakthrough lies is not in the examination of the center of this bell, but in the understanding of the tails. So the greatest scientific discoveries throughout history were made by doctors coming together either in the doctor's lounge or the pub at the end of the day, discussing their unusual cases and trying to make sense of it. And that is where new discovery lies, not in any randomized clinical trial. Yes. But unfortunately, that's a, that's a, a, cons a construct of the pharmaceutical industry. And they've transferred that to the medical profession uh, very illogically. So unfortunately, like we're seeing with the vaccines, 
It's a comment that sounds crude, but doctors have been well trained by the pharmaceutical industry over the past 50 years on how to shine shit. And that's what they tend to do. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, we beware, have to, we have, of to have the ability. <laughs> Most people do not have the ability to set priorities. They, they're chasing everything at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. You have to set priorities. And the most important priority that we can see right now is probably the spike protein. Many of the other things may be worth chasing as well, but not now. Let's first go for the real danger that we can see. I think yes. that's the most important thing. And that's the most important thing for people to understand. Rainer, that is the focus of my work right now. Uh, COVID is no more a challenge. Uh, I don't have patients that demise anymore from COVID. Uh, but the spike protein is what's going to cause all the, the, the pathology I'm expecting to see over the next five years. And so the understanding mm -hmm. of that spike protein and how to negate its effects is going to take center stage, whether we like it or not. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, this is man-made. Remember that the only way to have been exposed to spike protein prior to vaccination was through exposure to a coronavirus. And when you got that virus and got over that infection with early treatment, uh, you would now be immune to the vector, coronavirus. And so being immune to the vector would prevent you being exposed to spike protein in future because the vector can't get into you. Unfortunately, now we vaccinated a, a large proportion of the planet, and that large proportion is walking around with spike protein. And so they are the new vectors of spike protein. So I guess the vaccinated are now the new coronavirus that's exposing us to spike protein. And so we're gonna have this long-term exposure and the understanding of its biologic effects, short-term, long-term, is vitally important. The diversity of what we see with spike protein is mind-boggling. I don't think that there will ever be a pharmaceutical intervention that's going to solve this problem, simply because pharmaceutical interventions are far too narrow in their target. The diversity of injury that we see requires uh, products or, or, or chemicals that have a broader diversity of action and have the ability to get the body to self-correct. Uh, I, as a doctor, would not be quick enough to tell you what's wrong with you when there's this diversity of things happening in your body. But I'm sure your body knows what's wrong. So the nutraceuticals are going to prove to be the next uh, big thing, in that if we understand their biologic effects, and how they will influence the pathways that spike protein damages, they would be the next best thing in trying to solve the problems with spike protein. And that is the kind of research I'm being involved in with uh, a few researchers and pharmaceuticals around the world to try and figure out the right mix that would actually help us uh, negate the effects of spike protein. But it's a difficult task in that uh, if the poisoner realizes that we can fix his poison, then he might change the poison. And if humanity stops deliberately poisoning itself, it makes my job that much harder. So, yeah, tough times. Yes. Okay. Well, again, I can't thank you enough, Shankara. As I said, this is the first time I really have an overview of what's going on. I can see all the little dots and I can even connect them from this medical perspective, which makes it a whole lot easier for me to analyze it in a legal manner. 
I think we are, um, because it's, this is always the most important thing for a lawyer to find out what the real facts are. You don't learn that at law school, not in Germany. You do learn it in the Anglo-American system, but not here. But uh, your lecture gave me a, a huge step forward in that direction, getting all the docs, dots connected so that we have the real facts, which we have to then analyze in a legal manner. Thank you very much again, Shankara. You're most welcome, Rainer. And if there's anything I can help with, please, uh, I'd be more than, more than willing. We will definitely Thank you stay very much. in touch because I think there's going to be more to talk about very soon. Yeah, you're more okay. than welcome. More than welcome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. And have a great Thank weekend. You. you too. You too. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a busy one. I've, uh, God's delivered Omicron for my Christmas, <laughs> and the world wants to know what's <laughs> going on. So I guess I got my Christmas cut out for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, enjoy. I uh, wish you well. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ja, also ich fand wirklich, Wolfgang, das ist bis... Really think, Wolfgang, this was up to now the most comprehensive summary and the guy is precise. He's, he works like a lawyer and he sees where the priorities are. Particularly good that he has the clinical experience. And it's not only theory what he does. It's not, how can I say, he's not in, in, in the ivory tower. He is actually a practitioner. And what he does is he tries to uh, tie up the loose ends to understand what's happening. And he tries to avoid maltreating his patients. And I think he did it in a very um, uh, analytical way. And I think that's the basis for further uh, consideration Although we don't know what those uh, who uh, came up with this um, are um, having the pipeline, it's like a war. Um, it's like an arms race. So uh, somebody builds a weapon and you build something to neutralize that weapon and then they improve their weapons, etc. It's uh, almost like a war, against, not against the virus, but against the people who came up with this. That's the point. That's the point. And he's got the overall picture. He didn't just concentrate on his medical aspects. But at the end, he said he knew from beginning or he saw that there, he's working against the government, as he put it, trying to cover up the truth. Yeah, had I known that earlier, it would have made life easier to me. Yes, I'm very surprised. And he also, he sees the priorities and he says, yes, we have to see to Omicron when we address this, that this may be the exit because possibly that is the variant or the mutation which will do away with that COVID sickness in the end. But he, at the same time, he says, be aware, we don't know, just like you just said, what the uh, these guys have come up with next. Well, Drosten said in September, well, vaccinating is not so uh, helpful. It's better to uh, contract the disease yourself. And he said it in on primetime TV in Germany. And uh, said uh, he's. Uh, I've heard that before. Um, so that uh, seems to be something that um, people in other parts of the world see the same way, and we can't ignore it anymore. And the question is, don't we have to remain skeptical and uh, make sure that this is not abused? This um, 
security that people feel right now that um, this has been anticipated and that they have something else to make us uh, unsure again. So we have to be watchful, yes. But Wolfgang, if you imagine, I wonder how two these uh, these vaccines, that's that self-disseminating vaccines, how can it be that this can get to research? How is it possible? No, there's no, uh, those aren't any uh, committees of ethics and um, uh, wherever they're still around, you can buy them, forget it. I was, I've often been asked about the spreading and I always thought of the mRNA that you can pass on right after the vaccination because you're building the spikes yourself. And I was thinking of the spikes they don't do anything, they're not uh, harmful, but I, I, I think there was a mistake. I think as allergens, they do something, they do provoke things, and uh, as an allergen, not an infectious agent, um, they're proteins that can be digested, but if I eat uh, something that I'm allergic to, uh, like a nut, then the uh, spikes can uh, cause a disease, a spike allergy, and that is something that has nothing to do with an infection. That is indeed is just an uh, allergy that he compared to the bee sting. But I think we'd have to look at this at this uh, IgE diagnostics. I, uh, I I know it as a uh, uh, doctor for allergic reactions, and there are uh, specific IgE fractions uh, for every uh, uh, allergy, be it plant pollen or. Uh, animals uh, hair and his idea was to develop that sort of thing specifically uh, for spike proteins uh, very interesting uh, notion uh, those will be routine laboratory tests where you can make a distinction between uh, uh, from those who are allergic to those that are not but if the spike proteins keep changing which is not unlikely well then you'll have to keep developing new IgEs. It's something really like in a war where uh, you have an arms race where you always have to keep going until we've um, put these uh, gangsters in jail. And that's where uh, the lawyers are called for or that where the population needs to uh, protest and impose change. But Wolfgang, what if you are exposed to vaccinated people what uh, would be what problems would you develop? Well, it has to be uh, treated early, early on, as you said. That's very important. So, is it COVID or anything else? Well, it has nothing to do with the virus. It could be allergic reactions. So you could get anything. You could lose your hair, whatever. If somebody has a nut allergy, uh, they get uh, severe diarrhea and anaphylactic reactions. They can have a um, uh, blood um, um, shock, um, and they can die in short order. So um, doctors need to know it's very important for uh, Corona. It's important to get this into people's heads. That's why the lecture we just heard uh, should be uh, distributed everywhere by the uh, physicians' chambers. Uh, this is beautiful. I've never heard that from a German colleague so far. Yeah, it was a lecture. Okay, should we move forward to your section? 
I have an idea. We can start with the physician's chamber that if you look at uh, this video, you get uh, further training points. So um, submit it to the uh, physician's chamber, um, register it as further training, physical uh, physicians further training, and then it gets, uh, uh, it has points attached. If uh, physicians uh, engage in further training, they get uh, points if they do that. So we should try that. See what the physician's chamber says once they've watched this video. I'm looking forward to Mon Mr. Montgomery's face. Oh dear. Well, he's he goes into the Drosten box. So anyway, let's uh, should we move forward to your section on how what an immune response normally is to a virus infect, and how the mRNA vaccinations stop this. Well, Ulrike should have joined us a long time ago, and here she is because she prepared a great presentation with images and all. I think it's very thrilling. Ulrike, can you give the presentation and we'll talk about it later? Yes. Uh, it, I think it was a highlight, that uh, presentation just now. I will share my screen. Can you see my screen? Yes. So I have briefly has gone had a long break uh, for what he said with the mRNR minus 90 degrees. To my surprise, I found something which is older in the ORIF, the Austrian radio, where they describe the lipid production, saying the RNR RNA is from uh, Biontech and frozenly uh, delivered to polium and the vaccine is sent at a temperature 2 to 8 degree, degree to Belgium and packed there. So this minus 80, that's what it says here, this minus 80 only seems to be necessary after it goes to the um, vaccine bottles. But that's what they considered that it's a bit strange that suddenly the uh, GPs were taken out when the uh, vaccination centers were built up. That was only against the background of this claim that it has to be this minus 80 degrees, etc. That was the theory I came up with at the beginning last year. Um, that the experience in swine flu was that the doctors protect their patients and if you want to push this through, you have to bypass the uh, doctors. And that's why these expensively paid um, helpers were sent to the gyms of the nation and uh, people were vaccinated there. And the reasoning was that um, minus 80 degrees storage. That was a trick to get the general practitioners out. And when it went uh, on, they said, oh, it's okay. Because, because now the stuff uh, has no shelf life anymore. You can keep it forever in a day in the fridge. So apparently this minus 90 degrees no longer an issue. I just thought I'll include this because um, this takes me now to what I've actually prepared. We were going to say something about immunity, but the background was the question 
what uh, this mRNA vaccine does to people. I um, have a focus on immunology and mucous tissue and uh, the um, the dendritic cells, uh, the PCR, as I mentioned earlier, is a laboratory um, method. Anybody can do that. Uh, you don't have to be a virologist, immunologist, or whatever. Anybody who works with this uh, can um, can do it as long as they know about the laboratory methods. So I found a few interviews and I found a very good review, very easy to read. Mr. Sahin, that is the head of BioNTech. Um, if you look into the question of whether the mRNA of the vaccination remains um, at the point of the vaccination uh, for a short time only, that's what they always claim. It's only the short uh, injection. Then we have the nanoparticles in the muscle and then the spike proteins are built there and then uh, the um, immune system recognizes it and uh, starts with antibody um, development, antibody production. And there are some things that don't match here. Um, we can see Mr. Barilla here, the Pfizer of CEO, no, the CEO of Pfizer. And then you have Mr. Zain here. And they gave a number of interviews. And uh, this one here to the German Physicians uh, Gazette uh, says the production. Um, the, the challenge is the production of the nanoparticles uh, encapsulating the mRNA and, and this is the critical point, uh, uh, and are to transport them to the dendritic cells in the lymph nodes. So this says that the nanoparticles <coughs> encapsulating the mRNA were included for the, sole, for the specific purpose of taking the uh, spikes of proteins away from the place of injection and taking them to the dendritic cells and the lymph nodes. And in another uh, interview, Mr. Zahin said it uh, literally um, for the COVID-19 candidate vaccine, we selected lipid nanoparticles that um, favor migration from the muscle cells into the lymph nodes. Dendritic uh, cells present um, the S protein to the spike protein to the immune system. And uh, Mr. Zain has uh, described it already that professional antigen presenting cells, which are the targets for mRNA based vaccine delivery. So that means it's definitely wrong what has been told us all that these nanoparticles remain in the muscle. They were created to take the mRNA to the lymph nodes and from there into the dendritic cells. And that is why we have to understand the dendritic cells. People who uh, get this vaccine often notice that their lymph nodes in the um, uh, armpits start uh, swelling. And um, Many um, doctors uh, realize that um, they can't diagnose for cancer in lymph nodes anymore because the lymph nodes are so swollen that you can't distinguish between cancer and swollen lymph nodes anymore. So uh, if we uh, expect them to go into the dendritic cells, that's the idea. 
um, uh, it goes into these um, um, into the um, cell uh, forces the cell to make the spike protein that are uh, to activate T cells designed to kill the uh, virus. So this is the um, antigen presenting uh, cell, and um, this is the dendritic cell. Then presents. Uh, i.e. these small protein um, parts are presented to the T-cells on the surface um, um, that are to activate the T-cells then in order to make the um, productive antibodies. Now what this simple uh, image uh, is wrong about is it lacks something that is shown here. Only if the cells make the right um, messenger cells and activation uh, uh, is right, then will this work? So simply dumping the um, mRNA there, which creates the peptide and that activates the T cell, it's not that easy. You need to have the right uh, cytokine or kinokines. Um, it has to be the right activation molecules in the right, they need to be made in the right way, only then will it work. And these uh, antigen presenting cells are completely fascinating when you uh, look at it in more detail. This is a uh, cover uh, image um, from the um, Journal of Immunology. Now you can see why they're called dendritic cells, because there's these dendritic extensions there. These are from the, the left hand side is from the skin. In the center, we had one from mucous tissue where you can see these long um, extensions, those long dendrites, and they um, easily attach to T cells, uh, which are brown here. And you can see how closely they cooperate. And that is how immune reactions are controlled. Now, the interesting thing is these dendritic cells line all our surfaces, i.e. our entire skin is um, permeated by um, a number of these cells, uh, like our um, mucous tissue as well. Uh, you can imagine like one of these um, stockings here, these uh, net uh, stockings, or socks in this case. Um, so that's how they uh, cover the skin. And if one of those captures and um, intruder, then the uh, antigens can be absorbed and the dendritic cell can then say, um, is it friend or foe, do I need to get active or not? And here again, that's what it lacks. It looks like um, this is immunohistology, what it's called. You have uh, cuts and then you can uh, dye them with uh, different surface um, properties. And you can see here a dendrite cell that um, activates a number of T cells. You just said it goes to the lymph nodes, so there's dendritic uh, cells there as well? There are dendrites there as well. The dendritic cells have a very interesting life cycle. I'll show you later on at what point they move into the lymph nodes. Well, maybe you can detail on that. There is a Japanese study with animal experiments where the share of lipid nanoparticles was measured and they found that they go to the um, liver, spleen and the ovarios ovaries first yes but i think that that i think i have it at the end 
the Nature Review uh, article by Mr. Zahin that they discussed at the time that the lipid uh, particles go into those organs and that that is a safety risk. So that um, has been discussed. It has nothing to do primarily with the dendritic cells. It's just when they're in uh, the blood uh, circle, uh, blood circulation, they just spread everywhere. But the real target of these cells they uh, are very entertaining when you uh, research them. There's a lot of uh, action in cell cultures. They jump around. They have little arms that move. And I, uh, um, I photo, uh, take a photo here. This one uh, grabbed another cell and moved through the tissue with this cell in tow. Um, this is another picture where we use an electron microscope. We have pneumococcus. Uh, and uh, some pathogens can escape them, and then they present this. And that's the uh, classical um, task of these cells, the T regulators of the immune system. So it's the, the key regulators uh, that um, um, decide how the immune uh, system works. They can deactivate it or activate it. So uh, if they're deactivated, that means um, there's a tolerance. And depending on uh, the conditions under which these key uh, cells uh, interact with these uh, foreign bodies, be they uh, be it an immune activation, i.e. reactive killer T cells, or effective uh, defense of infection, or reactive helper cells, etc. Um, so they can, can reject them on the one hand, or they can um, cause a tolerance, the um, tol uh, tolerogenous um, T cells um, inefficient uh, or inactive uh, CD4 or CD8 T cells. That uh, is important because there may be a tolerance of uh, foreign tissue. Um, in our research, um, a pregnancy, for instance, in uh, the mucous tissue of the uterus, you need a tolerance. Otherwise, pregnancy wouldn't work. So we have a surface epithelium here, like in um, the neck. Um, and I um, copied a few images here because it would have taken too long to do it myself. And a virus. Uh, meets an epithelium and infects a cell. And there's this network of uh, immature um, DC cells. And they notice, oh, something's happening here. Something is uh, breaking here. And they uh, recognize uh, this. And they take these uh, messenger um, um, substances and uh, bad cells, and when the uh, cell notices, oh, there's a virus or a bad cell, and that's important uh, for the dendrites, they start to migrate. Um, they go via the uh, lymph vessels to the lymph node, and they go through a, a maturing uh, process. So they take it up, and while they move into the lymph nodes, they digest this virus or um, foreign protein. They make very small uh, protein um, bits, very short uh, proteins that are then presented to the lymph node. Um, 
and they just meet very short peptides. They are um, presented to the naive T cells. Um, the, the right ones that match this cell uh, will be selected. And as soon as they've found, they've been found, if I have a small chunk of spike protein, there will be a T cell uh, will match it. And this is activated then. And then they start multiplying. That is the point where a lymph node normally swells because a lot of immune cells keep reproducing in there. And then they move from the lymph node via certain messenger um, substances. They move back up here and start um, fighting the uh, intruder. And the other path is then uh, to activate the B cells uh, with the right antibodies that can then be replicated. So uh, coming back to what we just heard in the lecture before, that would also work if the spikes uh, do not find complete viruses on the mucor tissue. Yes, of course. Um, that's the idea of the Stocker uh, vaccine. But that's uh, injected as well. The most efficient thing would be to spray this spike into um, your um, throat and mouth. Uh, and then this would work. You would have this very uh, same self-reaction. That's the normal pathway. And it's uh, very finely tuned. And what's really important is uh, these messenger substances, if they're the wrong, uh, once then I have a selection of T cells that recognize the uh, cells, but they can be primed for tolerance, and um, it could lead to um, the uh, T cells that are supposed to fight the virus committing suicide. And that's not what you want. So you can activate the T cells for defense. So the target would be the clearance of pathogens. And the downside is if it overreacts, there can be autoimmune uh, diseases. And the benefit is uh, you need it to fight a tumor. If you um, have the tolerance side, of course, you need that in order to not to have the autoimmune uh, cycle starting. But at the same time, the downside is that the tumor uh, tumors grow uh, when this immune reaction fails and we have chronic infections. Um, and that is very important for um, uh, for a pregnancy. So the question is, how can we, uh, those telerogenic signals, how can they be uh, sent out? <clears throat> and how can the pro-inflammatory signals be sent out? And that's what I need in order to get active here. And let's move on now to the combination uh, of the dendritic cells and RNA. Again, the idea behind the vaccines was that RMIA um, motivates dendritic, uh, dendritic cells to create the respective uh, external protein, which is what they wouldn't do. They would just process it. So this is the wrong step here and uh, activate an inflammation reaction. And they actually do this if the cells pick up the mRNA they detect it, which is free and doesn't uh, correspond to the own pattern. It is seen as uh, alien and that rings the alarms. And this detection works by so-called toll-like receptors, 
which is TLR7 and 8. <clears throat> These detect free RNA and say this is not true. There is a viral infect here, so uh, attack. Within the central cells, these are the center um, mechanisms that detect free um, mRNAI. So if I give this, the cells eat it up, just like the proteins, then I have free RNA. And uh, then the dendritic cell knows uh, there is um, uh, external RNA here. And uh, so that means they have to call the cavalry to do something about it. And in detail, we see this here, which is the RNA comes in, in these two uh, receptors. And you see, it's not a simple process. Um, changing all these change here, change is quite risky. If something goes wrong, I get the wrong reaction here at the bottom. So ideal, I've got the real SARS-CoV-2 virus inducing the RNA, injecting its RNA in the dendritic cell, and then uh, that would um, activate these toll-like uh, receptors uh, seven and eight. They would detect the virus and start the cascade of uh, messenger substances that activate the T cells. That is the normal process. And now the question is, can that work in a natural way? And I'm not an uh, RNA expert. I had to read this up, but it is uh, put on the Biontech website, web page. What we have is no normal natural RNA. RNA. It is a highly modified, I call high-end optimized mRNA. Uh, optimized to create proteins in the cell and switching off the antibody responses. We have that from the same page here, Biontech, a de-immunizing mRNA. So it's an mRNA which modifies, um, switches off the immune response of the body, and they did that by uh, our RNA usually consists of four nucleotides, adenine, tumidine, cytokine, uh, like in the DNA. And in the uracil is inside it and guanine also. And this uracil is put in this synthetic um, RNA. And this modification makes to does different things which are beneficial and one of these are like what they have also talked about um, in 2005 and the basic publication um, in the magazine immunity by uh Carrigal, who was um produced uh, suggested for a nobel prize for that proving that a nucleosid modification if we artificially change that rna we activate the dendritic um the activation of the dendritic cells is deactivated so it was either reduced or completely eliminated when the um, the RNA contains nucleosides um, like what in a pseudo way. So that means it's optimized to not activate the immune response. 
This has been published, and I've said this in the uh, review by Mr. Zadlin, together with Ms. Kariko and um, Ms. Turchil, his wife. Uh, it's good to read. They know what should happen, because here they say immune stimulatory activity of in vitro transcribed um, mRNA, which is created in the laboratory and for a vaccination, a strong immune stimulatory effect should be uh, added. But, uh, that's what I want, actually. And um, it's also an adjuvant, which is in this aluminium stuff that's inside the vaccines. And this can be done by the uh, mRNA if it is applied in a natural form. But now, um, this is uh, part of that work. Uh, this mRNA is optimized to be more stable, that it produces a lot of protein, more than a natural RNA would. And the changes of the nucleoses, nucleosides, um, is modulated and that switches it off in the end the mrna is um, not just uh, adjusted to this application area and it is uh, dissolved quickly after a few spikes have been produced this mrna by this capping and the different optimization make it extremely stable and as we see here this is the normal one day procedure some are only active uh, and stable for minutes and here it is a half drop time uh, over 10 days probably nobody knows how long it will actually affect and uh, that means uh, it stays unnaturally long inside the body and is unnaturally, unnaturally, unnaturally act effective, producing the response in great quantities and it stops the immune simulatory effect. All of this has been published. This is not a mistake. This has actively been put into the vaccine. This is again the unmodified uh, normal um, RNA would trigger all this cascade of maturing and effective immune defense against the protein that is uh, created there. Now, if this modified um, RNA, uh, RNA is applied, um, it means it's uh, active and it doesn't mean whether these three pots here, these are the modified um, uh, parts of the RNA, uh, it stops, it starts the spike protein, what, what I need, which is the activation, that is not happening. So this is really a problem that will create a lot of trouble for the people who have it. I have uh, summed this up, the lipid uh, envelope was selected to move from the muscle to the lymph nodes and uh, then it should affect the dendritic uh, the dendritic um, cells it stays a long time for days or weeks and so that means it can 
uh, trigger the cells to produce large amounts of spike proteins. Um, so the application to proteins is optimized. So this is a high-track product, uh, which is absolutely perfect driven that uh, process uh, to perfection. And the setback is that it doesn't actively activate the dendritic. So there's a few typos in here. I did this later at night. And uh, the immune response here is effectively changed to a protein factory, but the level of the uh, immune response is actively suppressed. So that means the immune system is become uh, becomes ineffective at a central point in this RNA with this RNA. It's called modified um, RNA. RNA. Um, so it indefinitely induces an immune uh, deficiency like AIDS. Um, here, the uh, defense can't take place. <clears throat> and if this is uh, the case, we will have a new syndrome of uh, sicknesses beside all these allergies. This would be an additional effect. I call this uh, VIIDS instead of AIDS vaccine induced immune deficiency syndrome. Something like that is something that we have to expect and that would mm, match what the pathologists say and the optim activations of um, herpes viruses uh, and um, Epstein-Barr virus, all the different neurological problems. I think in Sweden, the first case of pseudomegaloencephalitis has been described. Shingles are a case here. This is central symptom for immune depression, and this is the problem that HIV patients have died of many times. And this would also fit in the problem with cancer patients if the immune system has been damaged at the central point and these dendritic cells more and more come in. But uh, if I boost them again and again and damage them again and again, then the immune system will be damaged at one point. And then each of us stim constantly, we have cancer cells, but the immune system controls them very effectively. But if somebody has a problem, for example, they have a tumor and they are under therapy, and then they have this immune efficiency, it could happen that all of this grows again and i would say we see uh, dark clouds on the horizon which we can't foresee in all its consequences but due to the publications from um, mr zaidin scientifically and from biontech um, that uh, is accepted how come how does that match? They claim that the immune reaction is caused by the vaccine um, and that antibodies against spikes were measured. So after this vaccine, um, measurable antibodies are to um, be formed. But if it well, switches off the immune system, it doesn't match. Surely not all cells are switched off at once. 
this is a massive human experiment. I think uh, Mr. Koppel said this in a podcast. This is the biggest clinical trial since beginning of Homo sapiens. That's what we have to call it. And it surely depends on the efficacy of the vaccinations. Of course, um, it induces um, inflammations and also it moves not always in the same way to the lymph nodes. <clears throat> this is what Mr. Shetty, I think, um, we've just he's just told us. Uh, it's different doses or dosages. So there is a lot of unspecific variants. Could it be that uh, next to the dendritic cells, there are other uh, presenting cells um, that lead to an immunoglobulin um, well, response? In the end, it's a whole group. As the basis, it's the monocytes, and that includes the macrophages. So there is quite a lot, and all of these in the end uh, belong to the same realm. But if you have 100 cells and you switch off 10 of these, the other 90 can still be active. But if out of these, because the lipides, like lipides, um, also uh, hit non-dendritic cells, other epithelial cells, and they uh, create the spike protein without being switched off, and then the non-switched off dendritic cells will detect this. So it's a pure problem of balancing immune cells that are switched off and the ones that are still active. And then there's the uh, copper star cells, the epithelium, the, epithelium, the um, uh, erythrocytes, uh, they're all uh, linked to each other, don't, aren't they? Yes, they all belong together. The dendritic cells are always the Langerhans cells in the skin, and they patrol through the tissue. So we have a, how could I say it? We have a kind of border patrol, really. No. Um, which is quite fixed to where it is set, but they switch shift and those free roaming patrols as well that uh, patrol everywhere and check check everywhere. <clears throat> That's what the um, border patrol do as well. They go from the border to um, uh, park sites and truck stops uh, somewhere inside the country. Yeah, it's the same system. So this is a very, very, very small section of the immune system, which is highly complex. So that's why it's quite uh, far-reaching to say, with that simple action, um, I can control this. It has to go wrong. It's bound to go wrong. But this is really shocking, but it means that um, they know exactly that these problems are caused. Nevertheless, they go along with it, or go ahead with it, and they actually sell it with a lie um, by saying that it uh, provokes this uh, defense mechanism, and 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 they uh, don't, they hush up that this effect um, occurs, may occur, or maybe even 100% certainly occurs. And Paul Ehrlich Institute is so stupid not to know any of this. I can't imagine that. And that's exactly <laughs> the problem. A uh, basic biologist who's been working in a lab for 30 years and all, if you can understand it relatively easily, it's all been published, everything has been published. Um, 
I never had any um, anything to do with the mRNA stuff, but this um, article, this interview by Mr. Sain, is very much to be recommended. Um, it's easy to understand. It's very well described. Everything is known. Everything is published. And this immunity paper says it all. It says that these RNAs were specifically selected early on in 2000, back in 2005, to know um, what switches the immune reaction on, what switches it off. So um, it was probably written in such an easy way because he wanted to collect money from the investors and he said this is what they wanted. The system is optimized, absolutely. If you uh, consider humans to be um, um, a protein bioreactor, this modified RNA. But the problem is, if I see that as a defense mechanism, then uh, I can't switch off any of the uh, defense cells actively. That's what I would say is difficult. Well, we have highly complex reactions. These allergic reactions that we've heard of before and the temporal uh, the timeline is plausible. We see uh, the immune weaknesses. Um, we've uh, talked to a Swedish doctor where the mama tumors start exploding and uh, they are developing the theory for that as well. And we see the immune weaknesses developing and differentiating, explaining it on a molecular level. And there is loads of different things. We've got this myocarditis stories with that immediate effect, which may be caused by the intravenous applications of the vaccine. And that uh, is planned for, it is accepted in 2015. They said you don't have to aspire. So they. The, this is why the um, pattern mechanisms are so diverse that uh, affect here and that can be well dosed. And you can set how many people you want to suffer from it or not. And all of that against this uh, background, which is not denied anymore, or factor, check, check the facts, um, that neither the infection nor the transmission of these toxic uh, spikes is avoided. <clears throat> so if it is transferred um, is uh, uh, it doesn't matter for the allergic people whether it's uh, dangerous or not it's um, it's not the risk of the virus the reaction is you can't you can't be uh, allergic to strawberries strawberries themselves are not uh, dangerous so it's very unclear and we are starting to um, split all up and follow up what they have come up with. <clears throat> well, it's high-end. That's a high-end product. They spent a lot of money on it. With years of uh, research behind them. If you say uh, you want to develop that sort of thing, that is really very sophisticated. You really have to um, draw your hat to them. Um, Although you're drawing your hat uh, for a product that damages oh, people, definitely. It's like a nuclear bomb. And where is this sort of thing made? Is it realistic that all of this is made in the laboratory of Sain or, or is that 
well, uh, something when is that produced military? in a standard laboratory, or does that need a military, highly specialized laboratories? Well, it is from research um, by Mr. Sahin, um, this knowledge and from others, and this mRNA to make it uh, on large scale now with the necessary modification is relatively simple this uh, nowadays. So in other words, you don't need to have a military lab for that. You can buy this from companies, the synthetic steps. Uh, first, a, a plasmite is made. And this is then used to make uh, the mRNA uh, and modify it on an industrial scale. So um, biologically, a lot of things are possible today uh, in terms of bioengineering. There's no secret uh, knowledge behind it, the uh, secret knowledge behind or what's behind it. And that was in this uh, one article. The challenge is to get the uh, mRNA into those liposomes and then uh, to get the liposomes. Now there's no more about this to select them uh, for making this stuff migrate where it's supposed to go, at least a large part of it. Of course, you can't ever control it in the body. I can't say 100% of the liposomes go into the dendritic cells. There will certainly a large quantity go to the liver, to the spleen, wherever, what has been found uh, already. I think it's notable there must be a over-specialized producer between uh, a generalist to uh, guide all these individual experts um, and the expert uh, that are narrowed down knowing in the different points of viruses and uh, that people that know about organic damages endothelia and the histology pathohistology all of that there's so many narrow narrow fields of experts that are publishing it's all published it's all published the basics of what we're talking here and then there's somebody who put all of this together and put it together that it's difficult to take apart again and that the causes is not a single cause that a single person can understand you can only understand it if you think about it systematically and see how these effects are created and here you see that it's been planned a long time and uh, many smart people have been working on this to put all of this together that is very very frightening i have to say and i'd rather like to meet these guys around the corner uh, that is that is really challenging and uh, and frightening and it seems to work apparently. Maybe we could vaccinate them. <clears throat> well, if you've got enough money, you can get them to your court. No, scientifically speaking, we have to say that this is really fascinating. What's uh, happening here? There's generations of research results culminated here in in this uh, corona thing it starts as he correctly said with a foreign um, a point in the spike and um, that this is uh, very uh, solvable uh, and that it spreads all the way down to the mrna which is sold to us as an um, healing vaccine, but is the exact opposite if the principle works as it is described here.
and then we've still got this graphene stories um which is something that i really dare to accept i think that is a uh, diversion discussion it is not necessary for what we've heard uh, we don't need it it's all explained by the things that we've just uh, discussed what you can observe well there's another aspect <laughs> a legal aspect uh, that comes into play here if as you just said Arvika, if the people who developed this at least um, accepted the fact that uh, these damages are caused by switching off the immune system uh, well then I think it goes far beyond that who said it um, Graham uh, Artis uh, explained to us that two months prior to the start of the vaccination campaign uh, WHO had a slideshow on its website and one of these slides you could see all those side effects that um, uh, came to the fore now so they knew everything um, uh, some monstrous, entirely novel diseases for children, if they're vaccinated, they knew it all. It wasn't uh, simply accepted, it was the objective of it all. Well, it is to frighten and shouldn't stop you easily. <clears throat> That's the question. As a simple scientist like myself, you can conjecture about it um, based on the evidence, but you can't prove it. You can say, on the one hand, PCR is problematic, and secondly, based on uh, this intervention with the uh, central, the key uh, control cells of the immune system, uh, deliberate intervention, uh, and no matter whether it's uh, BioNTech, Pfizer, uh, or Moderna, the whole thing is also very problematic, probably even closer than the PCR, because that at least doesn't cause any direct damage. But the vaccination, well, it's, I wouldn't call it vaccination, this uh, modified M uh, uh, mRNA mo uh, application is damaging. I'm thinking of Biedermann and the uh, firemakers, the Duramont. Um, if you have the burglar at home and you think he's a friend, and meanwhile he uh, prepares all this uh, they all got their awards they have one uh, listen they go to hearings they are in the european union and in real life these are people who are uh, asked because they are needed to do something that uh, creates fear and not just briefly like in swine flu but a uh, put, uh, fear that you can control and keep on running um, to really forget your... Uh, they, they can do the political and economic plans. That's the instrument that's been used here, and we are now seeing the details on how it is tried to keep this fright upward, upright. And the um, clarification and the um, enlightenment that we do here is the most important counter method. method. And of course, we have to say, um, thanks God, the immune system is plastic and has a very strong um, regeneration ability. Somebody told me that you can have up to 60% uh, functional loss of an organ and let's consider the immune system um, an organ now uh, without it becoming apparent. 
So if the kidneys only have 40% of their filtration force, you don't have to go to the dialysis. But when that happens, then, then, then it's game over. And all of these <coughs> people who have um, allowed these vaccines to be injected into them, they don't all have to develop cancer. Uh, you can do something about it. If you have an adequate uh, lifestyle, main risk, of course, as you can see, uh, is the metabolic syndrome. If you try to have a healthy lifestyle, then I think you can also uh, survive such uh, toxic attacks uh, very quite well and quite long. So that doesn't mean that um, if you have this in your body, you'll die of cancer five years from now. Uh, there's a lot of smokers who keep intoxicating themselves with uh, smoke but never Helmut die of cancer. Yes, the German Chancellor. Well, um, so genetics play a major role if you have the preconditions. Epigenetics plays a role. But epigenetics, um, we can influence better than genetics, uh, which you can't influence. So everybody who uh, got out of this um, with um, just a scrape um, will have to uh, consider how can I keep myself fit epigenetically. That is what uh, the hope. If you've got bad genes, that's what some people think. Genes are nothing uh, that are unchangeable. They are. Um, you work on them the whole your whole life. You've heard this before. That it can even be the case, and I've got that kiwi example that I came up. If you've never had a kiwi, our genes don't know the kiwi, and um, if the 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 father has eaten a lot of kiwi, um, the son may be tolerant to it. So our genes are plastic and are shaped as long as we live. They we can adapt. Now. If I look at the overall picture now, by way of summary, very briefly, of what we heard from the various specialists and scientists, then we have three major problems that we need to consider and that we have considered already. First of all, what kind of a virus is this? We know how dangerous it is. Then what does this PCR test do? We know that as well by now. And then thirdly, what about the vaccine? And we have to see that as a, um, a whole. I am convinced that what our South African friend just said is correct. Uh, Chankara Chetty, what he said, and you confirmed it as well, Ulrike, that it's an artificial virus. It's probably an artificial virus made um, in a laboratory. We don't know where exactly. There are new uh, indications that it was made in the US, and in order to distract from the responsibility of uh, the U.S. Um, a, a number of soldiers were sent to those uh, world military games or whatever it's called. Um, uh, a lot of soldiers who had it already were sent there. Um, it doesn't matter really, but this uh, uh, is where Ole Damagat comes into play, who's uh, close to conspiracy theories here. It was planned to make it much more dangerous, not only for it to spread faster, but also to be much more 
lethal and that seems to have failed because otherwise we wouldn't have this uh, number with the PCR tests, uh, it wouldn't have been necessary. That's what we've been saying all along. Um, viruses only survive if they don't kill their hosts. I've always told people, don't be afraid of uh, dangerous viruses. They don't get far. Uh, I'm just trying to uh, look at the legal chain here. Well, maybe these uh, viruses, um, um, they they um, asked for that and for dangerous viruses, um, just getting the money with that fear scenario. The, the fear scenario, the virus itself was supposed to be lethal in itself, but that didn't quite work. Well, it is lethal in the, in the laboratory, but it can't spread. So the PCR test was noted, uh, needed. That was the uh, fear-mongering that was uh, needed. Otherwise, we didn't, wouldn't have had any cases. And behind it, as we know through the WHO um, staff that we spoke to, behind it, um, and also with you, when you worked with Johns Hopkins, they were working on it already, health security. What that means, um, it's the military who are behind it, who are the only ones to impose the control that you want to gain. So you have a virus that isn't as dangerous as it should be. You need a PCR test to generate the danger so that it becomes uh, visible. Um, you have the masks and at the end you have this vaccine that is the real problem. So we're in the middle of the bioweaponry uh, topic and we should uh, interview this American. We had one here who was a lawyer and a, a physician, Dr. Francis Gallo, I think. We could ask him about this again, because he is well informed about previous attempts to make such bioweapons. Well, using viruses as bioweapons is uh, well known that these are not very suitable. Um, you just have to check Ken Ellie back. He's the uh, bio. Um, he um, directed the bioweapon research in the Soviet Union and then fled. He wrote a book on this long time ago, about 25 years ago. Um, District 15, District 515, and he said the problem was that they wanted to have a mortality rate of a bio. Uh, weapon was 85 percent. Beyond below that, it didn't uh, help, and at the same time, it shouldn't pill, kill the other, the same one's own people. And so they did combination, combination, combining um, uh, pox with uh, Ebola, and it never worked. It uh, killed some of their own people, but they were never. Um, strong enough really to spread them that's what they write and on the other hand um, it was difficult to protect the own people and this is the surprising part right now when you said the military is behind this but what stupidity it's unthinkable they vaccinate their own people the same way that that's not that doesn't fit in but Ulrike, we had noticed that in the one page paper uh, from the CDC, I think it was, it said uh, for BioNTech uh, there was uh, an, uh, a paragraph on Evimectin 
which was about the environmental compatibility of Amectin. What does that have to do in a paper on BioNTech uh, vaccines? I can imagine that this was a version of uh, this uh, vaccine and that uh, via copy-paste it uh, just was left there. So maybe for a, a certain uh, clientele, um, it was used um, as a batch that is less um, lethal. So maybe that is something. Well, I would be interested to hear whether it could be the case that if it had been in, in the vaccine, that ivermectin, whether um, you could trigger an immune reaction to that so that uh, if possibly they found out that uh, it is effective, that if the people get it who were vaccinated, get a breakthrough, uh, that they are more allergic to ivermectin. So the question is if it was an approach to make people allergic to ivermectin as the effective drug, which would be very uh, perverse. There are allergies uh, to ivermectin um, because I think that is uh, mentioned on the on the blurb as well that you're not uh, supposed to take if you're subject to allergies. Um, and this um, drug is easy to sell. Yes, but you could trigger an allergy by the uh, vaccination. Well, it would be an unusual way of application, um, but it is pure uh, speculation now. We don't know anything about this. Um, it is uh, something uh, that Mrs. Ahin mentioned in this interview that uh, you can see um, uh, with an English-speaking journalist. He uh, said uh, he was asked, why aren't you vaccinated yourself? And, and he said, because I'm not allowed to participate in clinical studies. And then that um, his staff and all the suppliers are uh, need to keep working around the clock and they are thinking of making a batch for themselves for for those people who make the vaccine so he said it explicitly at time uh, looks like his wife had a facialis paralysis yeah but that can't have been the um, harmless batch. That would have had to be a batch. You can get things wrong. <clears throat> well, people, um, we've been talking for nearly six hours. We can keep speculating, but I think the facts we heard today are um, shocking in themselves. If you keep ignoring this, you can't help them anymore. You can't really help them anymore. I'm serious about this uh, doctor's uh, advanced training. We we have to make a film of this. Uh, the medical content of both presentations now should be summarized, and this film should be offered for um, doctor's training, quite clearly, in the chamber of doctors everywhere. And they should get scores for it. And then a few uh, questions, there's another CME point uh, more. I gave a presentation south of Hamburg um, that was a, tr a doctor's training, although Dr. Vodak did it. We can do it with the committee. We have this possibility. That's what the committee is here for, Viviana. Um, of course, we can do it. We can produce that film. <laughs> but it should be an offer today. It's. Uh, it's very hard to bear. It's uh, blank shocking. 
Well, I have to end my lunch break now, so I can do a bit of work again now. <coughs> Ulrike, thank you. And Wolfgang. Okay. Right, thank you. Okay, that takes us to the end of today's session. And I have to say, I'm really uh, quite shocked. Uh, another uh, point, our uh, account has changed to find it on the website. Um, and uh, we are very grateful for any donations so that we can continue our work here. And Oval Media, who are responsible for the technical transmission, they are happy if they get any uh, funding. So I would say um, enjoy your Friday evening, have a nice weekend, and see you again next week. I think there's a few videos to come. Yes, yes there uh, will we, be a few. We do have a couple, and they're good. Goodbye. The vaccination itself could trigger the illness. Decades before early polio vaccinations caused disaster. Children died of the vaccination. So, uh, some of the vaccinations in the 30s caused polio in children, and that stopped research for over 20 years, because we know that scientists had developed this vaccination. They said it worked. The Omicron, Pete, right? You just have to look at Africa. They didn't have the death rates from COVID that were predicted. And what is happening over time is that the entire response to COVID and everything that we were told about it from the beginning is being exposed and it's falling apart. The lies are coming apart. And really now there's no justification for putting people out of their jobs or forcing vaccine mandates for a disease that ultimately is very treatable. It's cheap to treat. Medicines are available all over the world, and it has death rates that compare very much to seasonal flu. And so in that moment, what you see on Dr. Fauci, this is what people say to me, that he doesn't represent science to them. He represents Joseph Mengele, Dr. Joseph Mengele, uh, the, doc the Nazi doctor who did experiments on Jews during the Second World War and in the concentration camps. And I am talking about people all across the world are saying this because the response from COVID, what it has done to countries everywhere, what it has done to civil liberties, the suicide rates, the poverty, it has obliterated economies. The level of suffering that has been created because of this disease is now being seen in the cold light of day, i.e. the truth. And people see that there's no justification for what is being done. So as they're being exposed and the control is slipping away, Lo and behold, another variant surfaces, and nobody should be surprised by that, because there will be more variants until the end of time. We'll never mm -hmm. be free of them. Well, you know, Will, uh, Joe Biden previously said no mandates, then there were mandates. Today he said we're not going to lock down when asked about it. What part of the track record of how they've handled it would lead us to believe that? Well, none of the track record, including the panic and fear porn over the weekend, Pete. Lara said that the COVID lies are being exposed. They're also attempting 
to be exploited. It's the same movie, the same franchise. This is Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious 9. <laughs> Would-be authoritarians, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Big Pharma, look to run this franchise into the ground because they've got a good thing going. Oh they love to bring back all those same policies that you reference, Pete. Here, something really quickly. Here is how off-base all the fear porn is, Pete. It's as likely, and you're right, you pointed it out in your great monologue, that we don't know much about Omicron. But it is as likely that Omicron is a good thing than something we should panic over. Respiratory viruses mutate, that's what they do, and they more often than not, not an ironclad, ironclad law, but more often than not, mutate into something more benign. And as you pointed out, in South Africa, it sounds very benign, does Omicron. So if we all get Omicron and achieve natural immunity, it can be a good thing. Five and a half. Oh, that's great, because the FDA said that anybody five years old and older can get this shot. Thank you for being so brave and helping keep your family and your friends safe. And for doing your part, you'll get this beautiful balloon as a treat. What do you think about that? I like it. It's a pretty nice balloon, huh? First, I need to explain a few things to get your informed consent. Is that okay? Yes. Great. First, this treatment is an experimental gene therapy, which contains formaldehyde, mercury, aborted fetal tissue, and synthetic mRNA. It has never been tried in human beings before. Is that okay with you? Yes. Next, I need to inform you that there are possible side effects. These side effects, Julie, include heart attacks, stroke, blindness, anaphylaxis, miscarriage, convulsions, seizures, transverse myelitis, and blood clots. Is that okay? Do you understand? Yes. I also need to inform you that these injections do not prevent infection or transmission, and they only can reduce symptoms. Do you understand? Yes. Great. Finally, you need to know that the software that is being installed into your body induces a long-lived antibody response which actually competes with your natural immune system and makes you more vulnerable to other diseases. This change is permanent, Julie. Do you understand? Yes. Great. So now that I have your informed consent, here's the balloon as we promised. We are ready to help you save lives with this injection. I have to let you know that the FDA has not approved this injection. And that the manufacturers are not liable if you become sick or ill from this injection. Do you understand? Yes. Here we go. <laughs> I win. I win. Wir machen heute ein Kokos-Kurkuma-Bananengetränk. Wie viele Hirnzellen tötet Kokos-Kurkuma-Banana-Shake. How many brain cells does it kill? Well, I don't know. Um, I think some will be killed. I asked, who is Lauterbach, the laziest MP I've ever got to know? Can you quote me? Um, quote you? Yes, you can quote me because I think it's really uh, shocking. He maybe attended 10 out of the 120 committee meetings um, and always was there for 10 minutes or so. The point is, he's always uh, facing the cameras, but when he's uh, 
uh, when it's about uh, getting involved in health policy, it doesn't he doesn't participate. He uh, fought the uh, Competition Improvement Act, and he said, as a social democrat, he cannot support this. He has to reject it, and that was the same uh, for uh, seven other SPD uh, MPs who then. Uh, missed when it was about uh, when it was time uh, to uh, vote on this, um, and had they voted with us, um, then it wouldn't have become an act. But because we we voted against it, and so I can't understand why he is always uh, talking in, uh, on TV. Now, in terms of Mr. Lauterbach, I prefer to ignore him. Now you can complain that I still have to deal with him, um, but that would actually upgrade him and his importance and its influence on actual health policy is reciprocal to his uh, public uh, um, prominence. And so I don't want to uh, grace him with any comment. Now I can uh, try to discuss directly with Mr. Lauterbach. Well, we'll see how this goes. Well, I announced that we will now look for the truth, um, uh, whether the hospitals are really uh, flooded with children under five years. Comment was no, uh, well, everybody said you're only in South Africa and uh, the background is uh, Croatia more likely than South Africa. That's true. I uh, had the steering wheel manipulated to the right hand side so that it's more authentic well people have to come out of the closet and it's true i'm really in front of the screen here i'm not in south africa i'm not in south africa that's the screen i'm uh, just uh, um the um, remote control is broken sorry so let's get going trial one We're only uh, breathing into the microphones. Yeah, also gehen wir los. There's a nurse coming. Um, let's see what happens. Selbst jetzt hier in diesem Hotel, äh, Hospital haben wir keine Krankenkinder, keins unter fünf. Und Sie wissen auch, dass jeder Angst hat, weil es überall heißt, dass die Krankenhäuser alle voll sind. Das stimmt nicht. Nein, äh, ich bin hier heute für das Krankenhaus verantwortlich und ich kann sagen, es ist leer. Wir haben hier zwei Patienten im Krankenhaus und wir haben äh, 280 Betten. Hier leer. Hier ist es leer. So, so laut ist es hier oder so leise, wie man das auch gerne sehen will. Hier ist es leer, überall still. Hier ist die Chirurgie.
Okay. Okay, auch niemand. Na gut. Okay, eigentlich, eigentlich reicht mir das schon. Hier ist es leer. Niemand da. Okay, gut. Also insgesamt gibt es auf dieser Station acht Patienten. Und kein einziger davon ist ein Covid-Patient. Was steckt also hinter diesen Medienmeldungen? Ich glaube, das ist einfach nur Angstmacherei. Das ist, äh, steht alles Mögliche in den Medien. Und um die Ausländer zu verschrecken. So, dass jetzt hier keiner nach Südafrika kommt, weil alle Angst haben, ist das die Idee dahinter? Das macht mehr Sinn für Südafrika, richtig? Wir können ja nochmal hier gucken. Okay. Wer ist sonst immer alles voll? Hier haben wir sonst unsere Gäste. Ist auch ein bisschen wie im Hotel. Also, man sieht überall, wird hier sauber gemacht. Nichts, niemand, niemand. Hier auch nicht. So sieht das hier aus. Okay, gut, danke. Ich glaube, ich glaube es Ihnen. Ich glaube nicht, dass Sie die Patienten irgendwo anders versteckt haben. Okay. Very cool. I don't have to comment. I think it speaks for itself. Well, things are really happening here. Alle Krankenhäuser sind so überrannt mit Kindern. Können Sie das bestätigen? Nein, das kann ich nicht bestätigen. So I spoke uh, to the lady uh, of security here. She couldn't confirm it and she's trying to find someone now who will, um, who is responsible for management today. Um, können Sie das bestätigen? Ist es wahr, dass hier so viele Kinder sterben uh, mit, diesem, mit dieser Variante? Nein. Können Sie bestätigen, dass die, das Krankenhaus nicht überrannt ist? Unter fünf hier nicht sterben? Nein, nein, nein. Well, I think the statements images from the other hospital say it all. Hello everyone. I am Linda and for 25 years I've been a nurse and I'm doing this video because I'm fed up. I'm fed up uh, completely. For two years, politicians and media tell me what the hospitals look like. Sorry, they are not at the COVID places. We shut up and do our work in the COVID wars, but it's enough. It's enough because we are over and done with this. 
I was never cared what uh, color the person has that I treat. Black, white, pink. I don't care. Male, wife, man, woman, alcoholic, whatever profession. I don't care. I treated everyone with all dignity and respect as I had. And suddenly I am stopped from doing this. I should differentiate whether they are vaccinated or not. Are you mad? Are you crazy? Do you know what times you stuck in? What do incidences tell us? Nothing. Did you know that there's a flu test? I hadn't. I didn't know two years ago. Flu is always symptomatically found. COVID, everybody is tested for COVID who doesn't run away fast enough. What do the COVID wards look like? I see people that I've seen in the accident surgery with broken legs three days ago. Now they are in COVID because they had a positive test. No, they have no short breath. No, they don't fight for air. They have a broken leg in the hospital. People that come for dialysis are positively tested and put to COVID wards. People who come for chemotherapy are put to COVID wards. No, they don't have COVID. They come here for dialysis and cancer treatment. Yes, there is severe cases in every flu wave and young people die in every flu season more than of covid but you're not interested in this because you want to be afraid you want to be scared and uh, get into your holes it's okay i was fearful as well when i came to the covid war i was massively scared but i see young mothers directly with their young babies to COVID. No, they don't have COVID. No, they are not breathless. They got a bravey. The best what ha can happen to a woman. Uh, but she can't share it. She's alone with her baby and her fear. And nobody comes to treat her. No child nurse. I got three children and I'm tough. But really, with every baby, I was afraid whether everything was okay. They are left alone. I measure the temperature and the, the oxygen, whether that was important. It's not. It's important that people are treated well. When, in a baby, this little human being, we should get urine out of it. I'm not a child nurse. At COVID, no child, no child nurses work in the COVID ward. So what did we do? We did, took a condom for uh, adults and after four days we didn't get any, but the vagina, that sweet stuff, that uh, tish, that sensible tissue got hurt. Do you want this? Yes, people die, but not because of COVID, but with COVID, and they die alone. Nobody in a flu season would have died alone who had relatives. You leave your grandmothers, your children and grandfathers and mothers die alone because you go along. And I'm so fed up with this to see the grandmas crying in their beds because nobody comes to visit them. Because of what? Because of pandemic that is tested? Are you, are you crazy? Are you mad? 
And everybody who doesn't want to get the vaccination is discriminated and kicked out. Yes, I think we got stuck in 33 and it'll get worse if you don't wake up. No, I'm not going to get vaccinated. And instead of calling me radical and Nazi and whatever and not let me go into shops, you should think about why this may be the case. I had a child on the cardiolog ward the other days and I wondered how why there were so many young people here. I got just shrugging shoulders. It doesn't matter how most of important are the money and the figures. That's what needs to be right. I thought there was a great hoax in the beginning when I heard what the hospitals get for all beds that I kept free. And it is a massive hoax. They put down the beds and you're not treated anymore. And it's okay for you if it is okay for you if your grandma gets a stroke at home and doesn't find a space in the hospital. It's okay for you, but it's not okay for me. I became a nurse to save lives, to help people, to make people healthy, and also to allow them to die in dignity, because death is part of life, just like birth is and life is. How do you live? Do you live at all? For two years we have been doing this. We have been scared by politics and medias. We get these pictures that are manipulated because I don't see this and I'm not working in a small village hospital. I, I work in a hospital in the capital with over a thousand beds. I'm fed up with what we do with our children. They have to ram these sticks up their nose three days, three weeks, a, three days a week, wear these masks. Stop it. Stop going along. The unvaccinated are not allowed to go to coffee shops and to restaurants, museums, shops. So what? Who needs to? I don't. But unvaccinated should not be treated anymore. What do you think how many of us are going to leave care now if we have to be mandatorily vaccinated with an experimental vaccine? We know what is going on. We see this every day that you don't ask for it. I don't understand. I'm not going to get vaccinated for my freedom, but mostly for the freedom of my children. Now we have mandates for the children and we are threatened with this. I'm going to fight until the end for my freedom and for the patients that I treat. I love my work, but I can't bear it anymore. I don't want to stand it anymore. And it's okay for me if you say I am not allowed to treat your grandmothers and fathers and your parents. Okay, who should do it? It's okay for me for me not to be taken care of. I can help myself, but can you help yourselves as well? Think about it. How can you be so stupid to uh, want to govern? I think this is really a horrible situation. Corona, 
and the job itself and uh, the problems of my ministry are so uh, big and I won't, I'll see so little of my family and I will be so much in the focus um, that I really wonder why am I doing this? Not to do it, well then you have to really resign and say I'm out of it. Somehow, I imagined winners to be different. What is um, um, an epiphany? When will it start, you know? No idea. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to do on Friday. I'm. Uh, five days ago, I washed my clothes. They've been standing around. Um, in the hallway for five days. For ten days I haven't washed up, I haven't taken out the garbage. Uh, the milk is all gone. Well, this morning I uh, had muesli with water, no, because I just didn't have any milk, no um, oat milk. Is your wife not at home? No. Uh, she doesn't want to watch me uh, go down. We haven't seen each other in a while.